Welcome to the Grand Theft World podcast, hosted and sponsored by GrandTheftWorld.com. We're going to be here tonight for episode 91 on July 31st, 2022. For the next six or seven hours, we're going to be discerning what's happened in the past week. We're going to be condensing that news, going into some deep dives to give you a better look at what's going on. There's some longer clips that I've done. Uh, I've taken one for the team and watched some of these longer clips to help introduce why you might want to dig into a little schedule of time, check these things out on your own. So uh, this is like the Reader's Digest version for the weekly news, and uh, it's in video format. You don't even have to flip through the pages in the bathroom like in the olden days. If you're not near 50, you don't get that joke. But back in the day, that used to be the go-to magazine for people during the day. Now, tonight, we're not going to be giving you the Reader's Digest summary of anything so much as breaking open uh the events of the week let's go to news stories like the bank of america memo that surfaced i mean it's, it happened a couple months ago but now the public knows that bank of america was looking for things to go down they wanted it to get worse they wanted labor and uh work situations people's ability to put food on the table they want that to get worse because they get better deals in the market when that happens see there's also a video floating around this week called never forget it's been a while since we had the uh, the coronavirus pandemic. This is a little hindsight video. Never forget. There's also there's a couple pieces this week about the ongoing Great Reset, and this is a sample that's going to come to you from Saudi Arabia. This is uh, one of the richest uh, uh, individuals in the world. Saudi prince or sheiks you know, of that variety. And it's a new mega city. It's an eco-friendly dystopian mega city. And I thought Matt Walsh did a really good clip this past uh, week on that to show you what they want your future to look like. And it looks like a big line in the sand. I don't know if it's supposed to be metaphorical. It's a totally enclosed linear city um, made of glass in a desert. So we'll see how that works out. I think it's a great idea. And um, Alex Jones has been on trial this past week. He's been on trial for many trials in several years. This one is going on uh, about the Sandy Hook defamation case, a case that, uh, to my knowledge, already decided. And what they're doing in the in the trial is deciding how much the families will get from damages. So we'll be checking into that story as well. It's interesting, though. There's a clip floating around of the lawyers bickering. Alex's lawyer giving the other guy the bird you know, communications, basic communications 101. And uh, times have changed since these types of things happened. Sandy Hook happened in 2012. I think the lawsuit proceedings probably tur turned on InfoWars, uh, Infowars 2015-ish, somewhere around then. We've recently had the Evaldi shooting where like hundreds of officers stood by, right? So the public has seen other child tragedies where people might not have responded as they should have and now have questions of their own. So there's a whole lot going on in the uh, that news milieu of uh, the anti-gun agenda, juxtaposed to current events, these sort of things. So we'll get into that later tonight. First, let's kick it off with Luke Rudowski from wearechange.org, bestpoliticalshirts.com. He's got a report from earlier today that's going to shed some light on many of the stories we're going to touch, out, touch on throughout the night. America is a nation that can be defined in a single word. I was going to put him in uh, Anyway. 
creepy but true and i have to say biden's old age i think is the perfect cover to push through all the policies that many special interests wouldn't even dare of a couple years ago welcome back beautiful and amazing human beings this is lukradowski here of we are change.org and we got a lot of absolutely crazy news to get into today as there is a plethora of absolutely orwellian double speak happening inside of the white house right now as there are some major policy shifts and decisions being made that are absolutely bonkers and disgusting there's a new bank of american memo that you won't believe actually came out that of course is going to lead to more civil unrest which is already gripping major portions of the world and expected to get a lot crazier from here we're going to be talking about that plus all the latest international geopolitical news hopefully if we have time all on this independent media broadcast but before we do the clip that we played in the beginning of this broadcast is by at Titus Tunes and the creepy video that definitely highlights this perfectly represented brain fart of a situation is uh, a perfect representation of the lunacy happening inside of the White House where just recently the White House spokesperson for the Biden administration came out and said that this government is building a wall and not building a wall as of course the U.S. federal government has just announced plans according to the Associated Press to fill the border wall gaps in Arizona. This is, of course, something that this president heavily criticized the former president of doing and now is doing it themselves. And if that wasn't Orwellian enough for you, the White House is also publicly trying to dismiss that we are in a recession, as, of course, the definition of what it is has been conveniently changed by some organizations. And now Facebook is officially fact-checking top economists here in the United States who are saying, yes, we're in a recession. Yes. Right now, big tech social media has just censored the research and education director of the American Institute for Economic Research, who had his posts censored and had a warning label put on them because he dared to question the White House's latest word games that they're playing, literally trying to obfuscate the economic destruction that they helped procure. They literally deliberately created situations that destroyed the U.S. economy that destroyed any financial prosperity, that destroyed Americans' ability to have any upward economic mobility, and now they're just changing definitions and even censoring people who are daring to call it out. And this kind of economic suffering that we're dealing with is directly because of failed government policies, especially at the U.S. Federal Reserve, as even major banking institutions like Bank of America, according to The Intercept, were passing around memos that said, quote, we hope conditions for America workers will continue to get worse this from a mid-year review memo from the head of the global economic research for bank of america and specifically their investment arm as they openly hope that american workers lose leverage in the labor market which quote should help push up the unemployment rate this as of course american jobs are being destroyed and ruined and wages decreased especially with the open border policies that now this administration is even combating this as the average American worker has been absolutely screwed over as the cost of living has been going up, inflation has been ruining wages, and in places like New York City, even boxes of spam are being put in theft-proof cases, as of course democratic policies there have incentivized crime and in many instances either excused it or left it unpunished. Yes, what you're looking at right now 
is a box of spam for $3.99 in a theft-proof case to protect it from people stealing it. When you're reaching these levels of insanity, when you need plastic theft-proofed containers for spam, you know we're dealing with the situation that is far off worse than just a recession that they're trying to deny you is even happening. Now, this specifically has been documented at the Dwayne Reed in Times Square, where there's even reports of ice cream being locked up. And these images aren't rare, as of course, we have been seeing them all throughout the United States, especially when it comes to meat and other high-ticket items that are becoming more and more expensive. This as democratic cities are becoming more and more lax on crime. Yeah, fair to say things are going crazy, as of course, with the record amounts of crime, we're also finding out that in New Orleans, the average response time by police officers to a crime is two hours and a half. Two and a half hours to respond to your calls in New Orleans. This, of course, as the most amount of crime, the most amount of violence is surging in places where the government has disarmed their citizens, doesn't allow self-defense. This, as the Biden administration is trying to make these policies federal, as the U.S. House of Representatives just passed a ban on the most popular self-defense tool in the United States. Now, this, of course, is most likely going to fail in the Senate, but this administration's plans on disarming you is not this as of course criminals will always find a way to have a weapon as of course criminals don't follow the laws anyway as of course there's a lot of laws in new york city that of course don't work that criminals just don't follow as crime has gotten so bad there that according to some economic experts and from a very interesting article from bloomberg it is crime that is derailing the new york city economy this as new york city has also just announced Another public health emergency when it comes to of yet allegedly another global sickness. And if the news and information we're getting couldn't become even more absurd than it already is, over the weekend, the president of the United States has tested again positive for sickness that he took four intrusive procedures for, as well as additional rushed experimental therapies like Paxlovid, which has been deemed a, quote, miracle drug by the corporate media, another product made by Pfizer, another product fast-tracked, which, uh, according to many media outlets, has led to the president of the United States being, quote, reinfected with the global sickness. This, as we're finding out today, that more than 40% of individuals who take this treatment are, quote, reinfected, and not 2% like Pfizer told us it would be. Oh, no! Big Pharma lying to us once again about the effectiveness of the products that we fast-tracked, that we poured millions of, excuse me, billions of dollars into, that we give them no liability from, that we allow them to run as an experiment on the general public. This, as we're finding out today, that this new miracle drug actually suppresses your immune system to the point where your body can't fight off new infections. This says, of course, the president of the United States was mocking the previous president about his bout with this sickness, saying that he recovered and was better a lot faster than of course the previous president of the united states and now he just tested positive again this again after taking four procedures which he himself along with the quote medical experts along with the corporate media along with the authoritative sources told us 
that if we just took, we would have not gotten infected. They said this a year ago, and Biden took four of these procedures, and he's getting it more than once. This as of course, he was forced back into isolation after doing a lot of public events, surrounding himself around a lot of CEOs and business leaders. This as there's some bombshell new studies and information we're getting about the lockdowns, the restrictions, the mandates, highlighting how the official version of events, the story that we were told was absolutely a lie. I think U.S. Congressman Thomas Macy definitely surmises what we've been through, and to call this tyranny would be an understatement in my own personal opinion. This, as of course, I'm not surprised we're not doing 1984 doses to slow the spread. A cheap plug, I know, but hey, we got to pay the bills around here, and one of the best ways we do that is, of course, through the best political shirts Dot com. And of course, there's been a lot of protesting happening around globally, as of course, if you're paying attention to what's happening internationally, you are seeing a lot of unrest. Just recently, protesters stormed the Iraqi parliament. There's a major pensioners protest in Iran right now. There's massive clashes happening in Sudan right now. The capital of Guinea has been paralyzed, according to Al Jazeera. And there is a lot of civil unrest in Argentina and many other places around the world, as of course, there's a lot of instability when it comes to energy and food policies that have been rocked through, of course, the centralized controllers and powers of politicians who work closely with multinational corporations at the World Economic Forum in order to push a great reset. Their claim is they're building back better, but essentially everyone's going broke. The poorest people of the world are being screwed over. And we've been warning you about these policies for an extremely long time. And here they are. It didn't have to be this way. It could have been avoided. It's not. It's made a lot worse by governments and central controllers that have impeded in the economic markets, in the free flow of capital, and their interventions is creating some massive upheavals. As an example, in Ukraine, we're finding out today that their wheat harvest, which is responsible for feeding many of the poorest people in the world, could be halved. As, of course, the conflict there is intensifying. This as the Russians are now demanding payment in rubles for grain, as they are one of the world's largest wheat exporters. This as today, we're finding out about the demise of one of Ukraine's tycoons in the grain industry that passed away after his house was just shelled in this country conflict which is escalating as of course the president of ukraine has just called for more mass evacuations inside of eastern ukraine this as a lot of the military operations have stalled in that country but russia is still making some persistent gains as of course this conflict is dragging on not only depleting the resources of ukraine of of and russia but a part of creating the massive upheaval that the world is dealing with this as the United States is looking to trade a Russian arms dealer in U.S. custody in exchange for a WNBA star, Brittany Griner, who illegally brought a controlled substance into Russia. This as the situation in Ukraine becomes more unstable and more insane by the day. To me, a lot of this is absolutely ridiculous. It has been brewing since 2014 and has escalated to this insane situation where the United Nations is, is literally trying to keep in place nuclear weapons treaties. Now, I definitely don't trust the United Nations. I definitely don't trust any government, any politicians 
who of course have has an invested interest in their own personal gain, success, and glory. I have this crazy idea that, that I, decentralization would be a lot better than the centralization that has led us to this specific chaos that we're dealing with. When you don't have governments impeding in business, business usually thrives, and with business thriving, people thrive, as of course, historically, one of the best progressions humanity has made. The most poorest people have been uplifted, and the most amount of people are usually helped when the government stands away and doesn't interfere in our lives. Having a government, having a, a mafia intervene and take a cut doesn't help anyone and has led to this insane situation that we're dealing with, which is creating massive chaos and unrest. This is just my own personal perspective and opinion. If you think I'm wrong, let me know why down in the comment section below. I always respond positively to debate and people challenging my ideas. This is why we're here. This is why we should be having more conversations. And sadly, those conversations are being tightly controlled with echo chambers by big tech social media. So you can help fight that by sharing this video with your friends and family members, someone who disagrees, someone who you think might see this video and, and, and at least entertain some different kind of ideas. Send them this video right now. And because you do, I'm still able to be here and the t-shirts t-shirts on the best political shirts.com seriously one of the best i'm more of a t-shirt salesman than i am a youtuber now and that's not a bad thing i think that's a great thing i wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you buying the shirts and sharing these videos and this is why i love you guys stay tuned for a lot more here on we are change he does love to sell shirts all right so there's a lot to take in this past week right you got this uh the Bank of America memo where it's actually in the banking class's best interest to see things crash because there's a saying in international finance and it's when there's blood in the street, I buy. That's a, it's a quote attributed to Lord Rothschild. That's a Forbes quote. But uh, when you look into where did Forbes get that quote, it was, it has an interesting background. It was used over many generations and the gist is, that when things go bad in the market, rich people were out there buying things for pennies on the dollar. You don't think rich people were buying up real estate as everyone moves out of New York City in a panic? They're going to buy a block? No. Like what type of people, right? Eric Schmidt from Google. Maybe some Jeff Bezos territory was acquired during that time, right? They're going to reshape the future in their image, which goes back to how are they doing this? Are they doing this <clears throat> by saying, hey, everybody, we have a plan for your future. Here it is. Would like you to be informed, have consent and go ahead and do this. No, no. They're kind of doing it on the side. They don't have informed consent of people. They're hoping you don't notice as they're unfolding it. But uh, right before we went live on this broadcast, uh, Joshua Hale was showing me a video that surfaced this early earlier this week. It's called Never Forget. It's a short video. But uh, a young woman took to uh, Instagram or TikTok or one of these places where you upload the vertical videos. And uh, she had a lot to say on patterns of not being give, given informed consent at a time when people were making serious medical decisions. And if we have that ready, let's go ahead and roll it. Yes, we do. One second. 
Never forget what they want you to forget because already they're starting to backtrack. Already they're starting to say, I never said things that they clearly did say. Fauci is out there saying, I never said we should be locked down. Never forget that he did say we should be locked down. Never forget that he did say that you and your children should muzzle yourselves with something that clearly never worked. Never forget that they never let us listen to opposing doctor views, listen to opposing science views. Never forget that they blocked, censored, and deleted us for speaking out against this. Never forget that they created this. And never forget that the thing that they created when it was making your loved one sick, when it was making your loved one die, and you suggested hydroxychloroquine and you suggested ivermectin, they laughed at you, they mocked you, they ridiculed you, and they prevented them from using it. Never forget that they said this was the solution. This was going to give herd immunity. This was going to solve the entire problem. And now what are they saying? We knew it wasn't going to work. Never forget that you lost your job for refusing to take something that they knew wasn't going to work. Never forget, even worse, you took something that they knew wasn't going to work just to keep your job. And at best, you're going to get the thing that it was supposed to prevent. At worst, you're going to get serious side effects. Oh, Sam, nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to happen to these people. Yes, nothing will happen to these people if we continue to keep our head in the sand, if we allow them to distract us and allow them to make us forget. If we allow, if we stay silent and we don't speak up, then yes, this will go down as another 9-11. This will go down as another weapons of mass destruction. This will go down as another, oops, I prescribed too many opioids. Wake up. Well, in the next step of our waking up process for this week, let's go to uh, Christy Lee with her week in media malfeasance. And let's see what else we can glean before we start getting into deep dives and rare artifacts of they, them, those who can easily be named who like to do these things to us. That doesn't sound like a recession to me. Thank you very much. President Biden and his administration continue the war on words. Recession has been defined as a decline in GDP in two successive quarters for decades. Now that we've officially seen a tumble for the second consecutive quarter, we're in a recession, right? I, I don't like that word. As Bloomberg points out, Biden team's take on technical recession, it's not real. Here's National Economic Council Director Brian Deese. Two negative quarters of GDP growth is not uh, the technical definition of recession. It's not the definition that economists have traditionally uh, relied on. But it appears Deese is arguing with himself. (laughs) What the hell are you doing? Because he said the exact opposite in 2008. That is not the definition. Brian Deese said in 2008, of course, economists have a technical definition, which is of a recession, which is two consecutive quarters of negative growth. But big media gleefully plays along, ignoring that by the technical definition, we are now in a recession. Instead, the propaganda puppets PR team all use the term recession fears, which is really strange because they seemed fine with the widely accepted definition before until it made the current administration look bad. A recession is just two consecutive quarters of economic decline. When we talk about the possibility of a recession, what is a recession? A recession is two consecutive quarters. Two consecutive quarters. Two consecutive quarters. Two consecutive quarters of declining GDP. Here's how the Associated Press plays cover. The decline reported Thursday in the gross domestic product followed a 1.6% annual drop from January through March. Consecutive quarters of falling GDP constitute one informal, though not definitive, indicator of a recession. Now compare that with how the AP described recession in May and June of 2013. A recession is defined as two consecutive quarters of negative growth. Same thing in October of 2020. And oh look, even earlier this year, Mexico's economy entered a technical recession at the end of last year with two consecutive quarters of contraction. 
Not to be outdone, Politico now bends its previously held definition of recession. Turns out we're insane. We're hallucinating. Lucy in the sky with diamond stuff. And the media have confirmed it. This is from Politico. Quote, the White House is pretty obviously right that even two quarters of shrinking GDP would not show the economy is currently in recession. That's the word from Ben White, who is the chief economics reporter at Politico. This? June 22nd of this year, this same Ben White, assuming he's real, wrote in Politico, which unfortunately is, and we're quoting, I'm sorry to report that the conditions are ripe for a slide in gross domestic product growth that lasts at least two quarters, comma, the technical definition of recession. Ooh, Ben White. Could that be the same Ben White, the same Politico? Could be. Wikipedia editors are getting in on the game, trying to match the Biden redefined game. No, we are not in a recession. Everything is great. Don't you feel it? A recession is broad-based weakness in the economy. We're not seeing that now. In your view, is a recession in the United States inevitable? No. Typically, economists date a recession as being at least two quarters of negative growth uh, and, other com and other factors, which we have not seen at all. You sit on a throne of lies. But this is nothing new. These same posers refuse to define woman. Can you provide a definition for the word woman? Can I provide a definition? Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. I can't. They change the definition of female, change the definition of vaccine, and they see how well denying inflation went, going from temporary to transitory until finally... I was wrong then about um, the path that inflation um, would take. As I mentioned, there have been unanticipated and large shocks to the economy. So Janet Yellen was wrong on inflation, but we're expected to believe her now that she says we are not in a recession. It didn't work the first time, but they sure do love the word transition. We're, we're seeing, what we're seeing is that we are in a transition. We had this strong economic growth because of the, of the work that this president has done in the past 18 months. In other news, fact checkers like to point out Donald Trump did not order the use of National Guard troops on January 6th. Epoch Times agrees. Former Pentagon Chief of Staff Cash Patel says that would have been a violation of the law. Rather, the former president authorized up to 20,000 National Guard troops for use, but the use of those troops was later rejected by D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser and the U.S. Capitol Police. So the D.C. Mayor didn't want National Guard for January 6th, but she does want the National Guard activated to deal with a flood of illegal immigrants in the city. So she's fine with the flooding of the borders, just not in her backyard. So what Republicans are doing, the way that they're meddling in the process and using uh, migrants as a political pawn is just wrong. So the White House's preference would be for small towns in Texas and Arizona to have to take care of these migrants rather than a large metropolitan city like Washington, That is not what I said. That is not what I said. That is what you said. No, that is not. I said that there is... Yeah, they are. They're sending migrants to big cities on purpose, so using they, them as a political ploy. So if they don't go to big cities, where should they there's go? There's a process. I just there's laid a, it out. There's, there's a, process, a process. And they come to a big city, and now there, that the is, mayor says she needs the National Guard. Bringing you what's ignored, sensationalized, misleading, or just plain false, I'm Christy Lee. And that's your media malfeasance for the week. It's like the spokeswoman said, there's a process. It's how it gets done. You know, it's interesting, though. They didn't need to change the definition of recession until we were in a recession, right? It looks really shady when they do that. They do the same thing with pandemic definition of a case. What is, you know, 
a whole a whole slur slew of uh words being redefined recently i'm not mm-hmm. sure like tony as as logic goes like the law of identification and uh our ability to compare and contrast and reason right isn't it isn't it isn't there isn't it dangerous to society if you go changing those things around if i say well, fire is cold and you touch it because you think cold is all right because it used to be you know but now it means the opposite like it's very confusing to people yeah why is that what would be the purpose of continually redefining key terms it would seem really Especially. hard to get through a day in life like that regardless of where one falls on the metaphysical spectrum of what a something is things have natures things have like repeatable patterns cause and effect so when i go and touch fire and i call that thing fire and we communicate to each other that's fire fire hot fire hot yeah fire burn fire does this to my my hand whereas cold does not so if we start calling that cold uh yeah i'm gonna be i'm gonna get burned people you know, get hurt at least once you would think but the problem is people are getting burned many times over they keep going back to the fire that they keep calling cold in this yeah. strange scenario so that's that's sort of the mass formation that's taken hold where people are like they're loving the fire but you know what tony cold. i'm not an etymologist and i'm not a sociologist so maybe i should just leave it to the experts because they're doing a great job right now they're doing a bang-up job out there well you know luckily experts have this tool rich it's called science and it, let me tell you, it, it does. I mean, it, it replaced God, it replaced religion, it replaced metaphysics, it replaced anything of any greater value or worth. Yeah. It has redefined the way in which society and the world will be shaped. So you don't well, have to Well, I got worry. even bigger news for you. Don't if you worry, just bro. ignore all the data and the facts that exist in the world and you just go to Google Scholar and look through their filter at what exists, it greatly simplifies everything down for you. So... Like oh, these, good. Yeah, these things we see going on, the food shortage, the fuel prices, the economic crisis, recession into depression at some point, that'll all go away because they're changing definitions of words. So it's all going to be fine. All right. So um, controlling words is controlling the be, mind. That's the another, reason why you change the definition, because like you're controlling words is controlling people's reality. And so if you uh, keep changing people's definition, they start getting confused. It's a way to gaslight them. It's a way to up. essentially disconnect them from reality. If, if words are supposed to be our relationship to our concepts of that, which we experience in reality, if they confuse that, you know, then all of a sudden you have a disconnection between what you experience and it uh, creates cognitive dissonance, which then creates sort of the mass formation type of uh, So the recession gaslighting could have a purpose and it's, you know, why they're denying it, right? That gaslighting effect. Could. Is it, Absolutely. it's, it's really not unlike being in the middle of the Ukraine war and doing a shoot with Vogue with your wife to show off fashion, because that's what you do in a war zone. Let's go to this story with that is uh, what you do in a war zone. the comedian in his garage. You know, we like to keep it serious here. So let's go to the comedian in the garage. Who's got more facts than most of the three. And you got to remember, but she's a hero. That's why Vogue had to do this. Zelensky's a hero. Oh, Zelensky's a hero. Of course. I'm in favor of the popular and, thing, so and black leather and all. There you go. Did you find it, LD? It's the second yeah. one under yeah. Ukraine. Vogue clip. Yeah. All right, cool. I'm ready for you. Oh yeah, good. So get a little of this. 
I don't know if you know this is this is Zelensky and his wife, and they took time out from their busy war schedule of you know their war schedule of showing up at American award shows, <laughs> the Grammys, the Oscars. Did he go to? Did he go to the Emmys? I'm sure he he Zoom called in to like bless some orgies, some rich people orgies. <laughs> <laughs> so look at that. Uh, that's heroic. Don't you think? A lot of leaders wouldn't risk that without wearing shoe lifts. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Tom Cruise wouldn't be seen without his lips. I wouldn't. I never am. Look at this little guy. Boy, he is. He's not the tallest guy in the world. Look at that. I, you know, I have camaraderie now with short men. I'm, I'm short. I'm a short man now myself. I used to be much taller. So I feel for him. I think Kevin Hart could play him better than Ben Stiller now. <laughs> <laughs> why wouldn't he you ever see bono that's why bono wears those giant boots all the time he gets like four inches oh of, yes bono's not he's also challenged height is that why his album is mandatory with my phone because oh. he was short so there they are this is them <laughs> oh action <laughs> shot casual oh that's a famous photographer look Wow. It looks like a perfume perfume commercial. It doesn't it? I think right he 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 looks like a hot little pierogi if you ask me. Come on. <laughs> Come on. Okay. So, uh a complete loss of sovereignty, a poor country, currency, devalua currency devaluation, a third of agricultural land sold to U.S. corporations. The last grain is exported. What is Zelensky doing? A photo shirt shoot for his wife for glamorous Vogue. <laughs> I thought after it said the last grain is exported, you know, Zelensky, the fragrance for men. Caitlin <laughs> <laughs> yes. Johnstone, she says the phoniest, most PR intensive war of all time. Now I know what you're thinking. How is Zelensky making time for a Vogue photo shirt shoot amidst his busy schedule of PR appearances for other major Western institutions? <laughs> you know, now I think Zelensky might play Ben Stiller in a movie. Oh! I think it might be the old the switcheroo. Old, the old switcheroo. <laughs> so look at this. Uh, why, did we, why did we send $54 billion to Ukraine so Zelensky and his wife could pose for Vogue? You're at war, and you've got time for a photo shoot. <laughs> there they are. Boy, I hope him and his wife get a Spotify contract. <laughs> <laughs> they seem like a great couple. And 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 you know, that's a seven hundred dollar black T-shirt he's wearing. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's a seven hundred dollar black. You didn't just go buy some Ricky Gervais polos. That's he right. Went, he got some. Mm -hmm. Annie Leibovitz brought that seven hundred dollar. Is yeah. that the pho photographer? Is Annie Leibovitz or no? No, no. It's a diff, but she's also very famous. The, the I don't know her name, but I recognize her. I recognize this person. Mm. Uh, let's send another forty billion to Zelensky. Maybe he could do a Vanity Fair spread after his Vogue photo shoot. Very funny, Eric. Uh, war is profitable for many. There's always an alternative to war. War is brutal. Nice that Zelensky has time for Vogue in the midst of war. What's brave about fighting a war to suit U.S. NATO agenda while tens of thousands of less privileged Ukrainian sons and daughters die? 
Nice said, nicely said, Mick Wallace. Now he's part of the European Parliament. He's the guy who shows up in t-shirts and then tells the truth. Mm. I'll tell know. him what's. I'll tell him what's brave for Zelensky to not to even though he's a little chubby to not be ashamed of his body in a tight tight t-shirt. That's pretty brave. <laughs> pretty brave. And the photography is by Annie Lebovitz. Oh, it is Annie yes. Lebovitz. Oh. oh, that is who that is. That's what it says right That's here. That's who that is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. So that is her name. What do, oh, I, I, I'm mixing her up with that. I'm mixing that name up with the writer. Uh, Fran, oh, yeah. Fran, Fran Lebowitz. Fran no, right. Yeah, that's she's the one who said you don't you don't earn four hundred million dollars, you steal four hundred million dollars. Yes. <laughs> she's very well said. She's good. So, uh, and that's Mick Wallace from the European Union. He's got a shirt with a collar on his picture. I don't know why you can't wear a collar when you go to the parliament. I mean, some people like it that you're radical in your t-shirt, but I think you should look presentable. <laughs> he needs uh, his freedom of motion in case the war. Yeah. Breaks out during his photo shoot. <laughs> How about this one? Zelensky and his wife posing for Vogue. The optics are really bad. Terrible. Anyone with half a brain is going to find this photo shoot. Why can't I say photo shoot? Because Zelensky's wearing his Vogue photo shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone with half a brain is going to find this photo shoot repellent. But the people with the Ukrainian flag in their bio will lap it up. This is for them. So very shallow and very sad. Well said, Nat. Well, not if you have quarter of a brain, and it's probably pretty great. <laughs> it probably fantastic. Here's a, <laughs> our last slide. Today's Prime Minister Boris Johnson presented President Zelensky with the Sir Winston Churchill Leadership Award for incredible courage, defiance, and dignity in the face of Putin's barbaric invasion. The UK <laughs> will always hashtag stand with Ukraine. Hashtag oh, Churchill Awards. You either die Chris Farley or you live long enough to be Boris Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Zelensky doing the. Uh, there he is making another one of his many appearances. Yeah. There he is doing it, getting it done. Oh, this is when he's getting the award. That's the award in his hand there. Yeah. And there they, there's uh, Churchill and uh, who's that guy? That's Churchill and then know. Zelensky. Oh, that's um that guy. That looks like Zelensky. Oh, that is. <laughs> he's wearing. I didn't know he's wearing a tie. I never see Zelensky in a tie. That's why it threw me. Well, he certainly looks grumpy, Winston Churchill. I mean, I guess if you live through a war, World War Two, I guess you would be grumpy if someone's bombing your city, your your town. <laughs> it's hard hard to stay upbeat. Um okay, that's uh there's your way to go, Zelensky. Look forward to <laughs> I almost interrupted to say something about Winston Churchill because people in Britain might venerate him. People in India don't venerate him, people in Palestine don't venerate him, and Americans who know their history people on Wales don't look first off not that it's incriminating but let me set the context winston churchill came from a very well-established family let me bring him up in the history blueprint let's go to uh churchill winston not from 1984 churchill this is the grandson your your brain on uh, screen is it on oh sorry there you go there we go picture yep all right, so this is the grandson 
who's uh, who passed away in 2010. Okay. Uh, so if you go back to Sir Winston Churchill here, who's the grandfather, he's involved in a lot of historical events over a long period in time. But when you go back to the beginning of his history, there was something called Room 40, and it was related to the RMS Lusitania. And Room 40 is like their NSA back then, right? GCHQ, Government uh, Communications Headquarters, is the signal intelligence agency from 1901 to present for the British Empire. In that infrastructure, under the Navy at Bletchley Park, they had a room called Room 40. And this is where they did the cryptographic breaking of where the RMS Lusitania was going to be juxtaposed to German submarines. And when you put this together with Colonel House's letters, uh, Lord Gray's letters about meeting with the king and predetermining that if the Lusitania was sunk by Germany, that America would soon thereafter enter the war. Yeah, because they had the press, everyone in the press set up already. Winston Churchill was part of that, and then he had a rise to fame after that. And by the time they get to their second war that they start to reshape the world, another great reset, right? Because World War One for America has, uh, you know, has something to do with Lusitania. And from World War One, uh, they took over and did the British mandate over Palestine, and then they get to World War Two. Now, pretty sure he referred to the Palestinians as uh, the quote was a dog has no more right to lay in a manger uh, and he compared them to animals right so there are a lot of valid criticisms of Winston Churchill but uh, my criticism would be he was instrumental in getting America into two wars that America didn't need to be in and uh, a lot of Americans and other people from around the world died because of that so anyway there's a good book you can check out room 40 Lusitania declassified documents. If you wanted to read the U-20 position decrypted in real time for RMS Lusitania as monitored by Room 40, or if you want to learn more about it, go to the World War I Conspiracy by James Corbett. He talks about all these subjects, I believe, in that. It's no longer available on YouTube, you can see, but it is out there on his site and many other fine video purveyors of documentaries. That's the gist. Yeah, Winston Churchill was definitely not. How uh, back to Zelensky? Many, so. he, uh, Jimmy said he wasn't. He didn't recognize him because he had a tie on. I didn't recognize him because he didn't have his heels on. Because he has that that video where he's dancing on stage. And oh, I'm, I don't know. I'm holding it. He's like, he, he's like, I deleted it from my brain, bro. Don't make me take that out of my recycle bin. <laughs> All right. Uh, other stories in he's, the Ukraine you know, and he's Russia. Quite talented. Uh, section that we need to cover because there's lots of areas um, to cover tonight not really no I right. not specifically in the ukraine section no. ukraine russia all right so we already took care of the first clip in the vaccines lockdowns therapeutics section uh that was the uh never forget and that was samantha marika that was a short clip one minute 19 seconds and uh now let's go to the second one politicians saying if you won't uh, you won't get covid if you're vaxxed which is something that a lot of people had heard over the years. You won't get COVID if you get the experimental non-informed consent gene therapy put in any brand, any brand they'll take it. Maybe, maybe not. But so 
I guess the point is what they say changes over time and truth stays the same through time. So if what they're saying, saying, uh, if what they're saying is changing through time and it's not actually reflected by the evidence and the facts, then there might be a problem there. There might be an incongruency. There might be some contradictions. There might be some yet to be bridged communication gaps that very much probably need to be bridged sooner than later before they try to create a civil war in this country. And they've been drumming up to it. I don't think we should give them the satisfaction. I think we should learn to talk to each other and bridge the gap with knowledge, experience, skills, experimentation. Let's let's figure it out. Let's do it real time. Let's do it in reality, they not imagine. actual science. Yeah. Yeah. Actual science. Things that can be measured. We could talk about those. We have common interests, common uh, five senses allow us to have common interests. That's right. We could. Yeah. It's like when we look up documents, we can all look those up at home. I'm, I don't have a magic Internet browser. Or Tony doesn't have a magic Internet browser. We have access to pretty much the same Internet, depending on what and browser we all have using. reason. We have the ability to analyze and come to our own conclusions about what we understand about those documents. So. Yeah. All right. So let's go to this uh, hilarious mashup from Jimmy Dore. That's pretty funny. That's the title of it. I haven't Jim, seen it yet. That's Jimmy coming on the heels of Zelensky. Oh, sorry. Oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> well played. That's trip one. So this story is very close to my heart because it uh, exonerates me. And uh, so they were, they've been lying about COVID. They've been lying about the vaccines. They've been lying about herd immunity. They've been lying about natural immunity. They've been lying about masks. For context of people watching now or in the future, Jimmy Dore took the vaccine. He claims that he was injured by the vaccine. And now he is a, a skeptic of such concoctions. And he speaks with great parhesia. So I just wanted to say he's not someone who didn't experiment. He went to the shop and got the thing. He didn't like what it did to him. So let's go back to Jimmy Dore. Asks, they've been lying about children. They've been lying about everything. Every goddamn thing. Who would have thunk that Big Pharma and the government would lie to us? <laughs> <laughs> For profit. I I am flummoxed. <laughs> I am beside myself with slack-jawedness. Is that slack-jawed? Is that what that is? <laughs> yeah, I think so. And so they always say about the so my big thing was when they came out with mandates, I was here to inform people why mandates were a bad idea. They were. And so I stuck my chin out and people started calling me anti-vax. I'm not I, I was I was saying there's the other ideas. First of all, what they're saying about the vax is a lie because this is a lie. You're OK. You're not going to you're not going to get covid if you have these vaccinations. So that's a lie. And someone, this guy put this together, I think, what's his name? Milk Bar TV. Mm -hmm. So this is very funny. So he shows people saying things like that, and then they show him getting COVID. So let's watch it and laugh, and let's have fun. You're okay. You're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. Hey, folks, guess you heard. This morning I tested positive for COVID. When, when people are vaccinated, they can feel safe that they are not going to get infected. Dr. Fauci says he has COVID again. Oh, if you've done the right thing and gotten vaccinated, you deserve the freedom to be safe from COVID-19. And this morning, I learned, I, I tested positive for COVID-19 oh. as well. So all of us are part of widespread vaccine programs. No one is safe. 
New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has tested positive for COVID-19. If you are vaccinated, you are protected. They are effective. Vice President Kamala Harris has announced that she's tested positive for COVID-19. With three doses that you'll be prevented, not just from serious illness, but from getting this virus, this Omicron variant, and therefore giving it to others. Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews is in quarantine for seven days after testing positive to COVID. So I'm fully vaccinated. It gives me some comfort. Uh, The fact that that's there, not for myself so much, but the people I'm coming into contact with. Anthony Albanese has just tested positive for coronavirus. Uh, Having received two doses of AstraZeneca, it's a very effective vaccine protection from symptomatic illness and therefore (laughs) risk of transmission to others. It is great that companies have developed safe and effective vaccines. No. uh, But we can't seem to make them quickly and Safe and effective. Well, I think the point of this video mashup is to speak to their level of effectiveness. So I knew this. So that's why I was against mandates, because I had on a the guy who invented the mRNA vaccine technology on my show. And he told me that there's no way we can vaccinate our way out of this pandemic. So I knew that over a year ago before they started wanting to mandate vaccines. I knew this. And why? Because it's a leaky vaccine. What does that mean? What's a leaky vaccine? That means that it doesn't stop you from contracting the virus. It doesn't stop you from spreading it. In fact, Fauci has said everyone's going to get it. So if everyone's going to get it, who do you care if you get it from a vaccinated person or an unvaccinated person? Because with vaccinated people spread the virus all the time. In fact, they call them super spreaders because they don't feel so sick, so they spread it more. So these were these were lies when they said this stuff. And I knew they were lies when I saw Joe Biden say that. If you get the jab, if you get the vaccine, you're not gonna get I knew that was a lie. That that was not true. And he wasn't making a mistake. They were lying. That's what politicians do. And why would they lie? For their donors. So he wasn't, they, he didn't get taken down from CNN for saying that. There's more to this. To stop the global spread that threatens all of us. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren just announcing she, in fact, has tested positive for COVID. With the ongoing um, circulation of the the COVID virus in our communities. If you're eligible as of uh, today to get your third dose, please do so. Like so many other Victorians and Australians, those dreaded double lines came up. So if we uh, put a clamp on COVID-19 and prevent it from spreading from anyone, even if they have minimal symptoms. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau just tweeting out that he has tested positive for COVID. This would be the second time the Prime Minister has tested positive. You're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. Hey, folks, guess you heard this morning I tested positive for COVID. So those people now imagine if you said the opposite. Imagine if you came out and you said, hey, if you get the vaccines, you're going to get they would have kicked me off YouTube. Kick me off Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and then everybody would call me a crazy. But you could say the exact opposite, which is false, and nobody still 
says a word about it. No one says, why was Joe Biden spreading misinformation about the vaccines? Why was Kamala Harris spreading misinformation? Why, why was Elizabeth Warren spreading misinformation about the vaccine? Why is everybody in government spreading misinformation about the vaccine? No one ever asks them that. They don't get called that either. They don't get called spreaders of misinformation, even though they did. You want to see a great big sp spreader of it? Here you go. Means for instead of the virus being able to hop from person to person to person to person, spreading and spreading, sickening some of them, but not all of them. And the ones that it doesn't sicken don't know they have it. And then they give it to even more people because they didn't recognize they were... Right? Instead of the virus being able to hop from person to person to person, potentially mutating and becoming more virulent and drug resistant along the way, now we know that the vaccines work well enough that the virus stops with every vaccinated person. A vaccinated person gets exposed to the virus. The virus does not infect them. The virus cannot then use that person to go anywhere else cannot use a vaccinated person as a host to go get more people. That means the vaccines will get us to the end of this. Means for instead of the virus. Not true. Wasn't true. Isn't true. Was never going to be true. I brought on Dr. Robert Malone. Came on our show. Told us that you can't vaccinate your way out of this. And people like that who get paid by Big Pharma, $30, 40000000 million, I'm a hundred, she makes like a hundred grand a day. Then that's what they say. Not one skeptical thought in their head about the vaccines or Fauci or, or Collins or the CDC or the, or the COVID policy or lockdowns. Not one, not one skeptical thought. All they had to do was find your fear point and they coupled it with your Trump hate. And they had you. And some of my good friends, they got them. They got, got inside their brain and that's they found their fear. Some of my good friends who wagged their finger at me about my coverage of the vaccine, which was correct. My coverage was correct. They tried to argue to me that the vaccine would stop it and that we could get out of this pandemic by if everyone just got vaccinated that wasn't the case everyone's vaccinated and everyone got omicron everyone got covid fauci got it twice so how effective is a vaccine you have to it, that it, it loses any protection in a couple of months or sometimes less what 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 effective and now we have Bill Gates saying, Bill Gates said that, well, we didn't know a lot about the virus. We didn't know that, well, it had a very low fatality rate and it mostly affected only elderly people, kind of like the flu, but different. That's a quote from Bill Gates. You know, the hospitalization rate for COVID was 0.89%. <laughs> Under 1% hospitalization rate. And the people who were hospitalized were obese, Two, two, seventy-seven percent of the people hospitalized were obese or overweight, and the average age of death from COVID was over the age of life expectancy. But man, they sure didn't know how to scare the shit out of us. And then they gave you propaganda like that that made you turn on your neighbor. That's what Rachel Maddow is doing there. She's making you turn on your neighbor. And by the way, uh, I would say 
half the people who I know personally who haven't been vaccinated, half of them would be lean conservative, half of them would lean Democrat. So this isn't a Trumper thing. Um, as, as far as my anecdotal evidence can tell you. But anyway, and by the way, uh, I, I have to choose my words because I'm a still afraid. I don't know what I can still say or not. Even though everybody kind of knows that the COVID narrative is now bullshit, people won't admit that they were wrong about it. People will never say it. I have friends who still wear fucking kerchiefs, cloth masks. People lost their jobs. People lost their jobs over this. People lost their jobs. People worse. I got injured. Um, lots of people got anyway. It's just and just like with RussiaGate and just like with Syria, they'll never they'll never admit they were wrong. They'll never say, hey, I, you know what? Uh, I do. I admit I was wrong. I was there was nobody more afraid of the covid virus than me. Nobody. I was crazy. I got an argument with my brother because I felt he wasn't locked down hard enough. We got a big argument. Mostly came from me. Yeah. So uh, I so I believe me, I know what it's like. And um, if you made that mistake, too, and you were uncritically swallowing the propaganda from Fauci and the government and Big Pharma and Rachel Maddow, but you now know better, that's fine. Admit it, say I was wrong, and move on. I, that's all I need, but that'll never happen, I'm telling you. Those people, I still see them wearing cloth masks. I'm not kidding. You see somebody with a kerchief? That's a virtue signal. That's all that is. Uh, okay. And so now you have the video. So now they always would like to say that, oh, no, the vaccine was always just about to keep you out of the hospital and keep you not getting sick, super sick. No, no, they said it would stop the pandemic. That's what they said. And that's why some people and my friends, people close to me, who I no longer talk to over this, they they believed her and they believed Fauci that they and that's why they wanted to force other people to take an experimental medical treatment that has side effects. That's why they wanted to do it, because they believed this and they didn't do their own research. They didn't look into it. They didn't even watch the fucking interview I did with Dr. Robert Malone. My friends who were close to me, who were critical of my coverage of COVID and the vaccines, didn't even watch my interview with Dr. Robert Malone. So they know nothing about it. They would have arguments with me saying that the vaccine does stop the it will stop the spread. It will end the pandemic. That's what they would say. Tell me. And I'm like, you guys don't know anything about what you're talking about. It wasn't based on science and the whole idea of following the science or trust the science. You don't trust science. You question it. You don't have faith in science. It's not a religion. Science becomes science because people are always questioning it. That's how we got Einstein. He didn't go, Ed Newton already thought about this. We're done. And they shame you. So that's always bullshit. When they say, no, the vaccines were always the, to, to keep you out. That, that's not true. And that's why we got to this point. And that's why people lost friendships. That's why people lost jobs. People, they still demand boosters and shit in a, a lot of theaters. Federal jobs, I Fed, believe. I, yeah, they still, they're still doing that. 
yeah, there's a lot of contradictory information there. <clears throat> you want to see more contradictory information. You could dip into um, the Center for Health Security. They're a fun group of people that have a YouTube page. And what you're looking for on their YouTube page is the Event 201 playlist. It's about a five-hour sampling of their tabletop exercise, which foresaw a novel respiratory coronavirus pandemic in October of 2019. The useful part of that exercise, if there was going to be a useful part, was that they knew ahead of time that PPE, gloves, masks, sanitizer, all this sort of stuff was going to be, there's going to be a shortage of it. Um, ventilators, these sort of things, there was going to be a shortage of it. And these thoughtful billionaire type people, it was the Gates Foundation, uh, Johns Hopkins University and Bloomberg School of Medicine, uh, World Economic Forum that sponsored. Oh, there it is. See, you can just go on your YouTube app and find it and watch it for yourself. But these people had this thoughtful exercise of, hey, if this happens, what can we do to make everything better? And uh, ironically, I think it all they were just incompetent or they meant well, but it all went worse. Everything uh, kind of went against the people's better interests and a lot of power oh, was accumulated. Yeah. You know, did, did it go again? Did it did they I sometimes wonder, like, did they play out the scenario in the way they sort of wanted it to play out? Control of they, information. Yeah. Make sure all they these sort the, of things. Closing of schools. They, all they had no epidemiologists throughout the entire event. Or very few. I don't remember any. No, they but they had like, it. you know, head of hotels. They had like these weird like right. institutions corporate. and industries. Pepsi, corporate. Right. Yeah, that's World more Economic about continuity of business for Fortune right. 500 companies yes. is what I saw. Yes. And like that, if anything, I think they've achieved their goals of what event a two one was supposed to do. If we put it into context. I got this pesky artifact. I was looking for something else before, like uh, during the show over here. I got some artifacts. Uh these are things that were published in the past that are interesting, right? So I, I stumbled across this and then Jimmy was talking about, you know, all these contradictions. Let's look, you know, let's take the time machine. Let's go back to the year of 2005. This is the month of October. It's a, a small publication called National Geographic. Not many people have ever heard of it. They had an article called, <laughs> let's see what's going on there. <laughs> the next killer flu. Can we stop it? And hopefully we can, because it would be bad to have like a killer flu shut down the world. So hopefully what I did we was, have uh, Anthony Fauci, Peter Dajak, and Ralph Barrick, and you know, I have to like you know, we have Lee. to have a, a moment with the Queen for a second here, because before <laughs> I could get to that, they had to tell the me about the color of money. Hey, <laughs> sixteen authorities—that's nation states—still issue bills with her portrait, including many of the remaining. British dependencies, as well as Commonwealth nations like Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. So I'm sure she doesn't have any power or money in the world because her face is on the money. I don't know. Maybe they did a deal with the banking family back in the day. I don't know, but that's not the point of this. So uh, nothing to see there. Tracking the next killer flu. This is what Bill Gates now currently does, right? He's the flu pandemic prevention. Let's you know, got a germ. Let's set up a together. germ team, right? right? This is, they even had a foldout, you know, to make a. Wow. Make a nice statement national, there in this National Geographic. National Geographic. Very high quality. Look how dramatic a, those photos are. They must have a big budget for like a magazine like this. Anyway. But it's oh, only look, small, of course. Right? Here's a death small chart. magazine no one's ever heard of. Uh, back then, they're comparing the Spanish flu pandemic that started on an American military base in Kansas uh, right around the time World War One kicked off for America. And uh, maybe it had something to do with 
maybe sending soldiers overseas had something to do with that. Not sure. But uh, that what they're saying was the 1918 uh, pandemic today would be like 180 to 360 million people could die. So I was, I was, I was pretty sure that uh, Neil Ferguson had read through this 2005 national geographic to make his <laughs> predictions when the pandemic came around. But the points I want to get to is, you know, no one wants to sit and wait for the virus to make the move. So they're going to have to do a little gain of function, function stuff and bring out new technology. Now let me give you an example of this. The best shot. Can I get it in the shot? It's ironic because the title is the best shot. It's not going to be the best shot. Let's just get it in frame. Let's just go for close is good. Can we get it? Can we get it? Doing it live. Certainly. It's a big format magazine. I'm trying to get it. There we go. Kind of crooked. I'll just do it live. Right. Yeah. yeah, Uh, I mean, this, this, the cutoff flu vaccines, flu vaccines are made from virus grown in fertilized chicken eggs. Like those at the Charles river laboratories in Connecticut opposite where the workers harvest virus rich tissue from eggs to produce a test for detecting flu infections in poultry. So there's a limitation to growing your flu vaccine in eggs. First off, they're pointing out these bird flu viruses are messing with their system, right? So they're going to need a new process. Now, a new process surprisingly did come along. It's called mRNA technology. It was brought to us by DARPA circa 2013 and licensed to Moderna. And Rick Smith from BARDA has that talk on stage at the Bloomberg thing in October with uh, Fauci, where they're like, if we just had a pandemic, a to bring worse this pandemic, in, if only right, we had they're talking about like fertility coming from eggs and it's an unreliable process. Right. The Milken Institute. Not the Milken Thank Institute. you for the fact yeah. check, Tony. We're doing it live. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there's a couple other parts in here. It's also this is what's driving the mRNA research. Let's zoom back out. Let's see. get it straight on the page. So we're going to go here. Ordinary flu vaccines contain flu virus grown in fertilized chicken eggs, then killed and split into pieces. But, but because it's so deadly, H5N1 requires expensive safety measures and tends to kill the eggs it needed to grow it. This is then a driving reason for mRNA research because mRNA technology replaces the chicken grown fertilized eggs with the virus in it. And Rick Smith and Barta, uh, uh, he was now a you're telling, representative but... Fauci at the Milken Institute. They talked all about this, but they talked about it 10, 15 years later than what they were. Uh, well, and then 2019, article. they're basically hinting to that point to the Trump administration that we want to get this pushed through. And then he signed it that year later that year. I think it was that year. Now, he the great the vaccine of the modernization future. act. The great predictor Sorry, of the future. Tony Fauci makes an appearance. Makers would know how to produce it and could boost production fast, says Anthony S. Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. At the first sign of a pandemic, we'll be able to say, go take off the brakes and make millions and millions of doses. Well, thank goodness. Oh, they sure Tony did. They call that warp speed. They do it uh, at warp speed. That's how fast they do it now. So anyway, that's an artifact. That's not what I was looking for. I didn't find. Uh, I was looking for a different newspaper, but I did also find this. I'll give you a bonus because it's not all about still having found what we're looking for. Look at this. Officers and committees, members, honor roll for the Bohemian Club. Mm-hmm. I got the whole membership list, appointees, all this good stuff. Look at this. 1943, officers and committees. They got the members, the honor roll, and people who passed away. Right. It says, they just had spiders come not here. Mm. They already got their own web. 
and these people are all caught in it. So it's pretty interesting. It gives a history of the, the club and how it changed over the years. And you see some people uh, who are running it, officers of the club, right? They're putting on their sort of flamboyant and Austin. There's this guy, Frederick W. Kroll. My question is, and I haven't had a chance to look it up because I just noticed this when I found it a couple minutes ago. Uh, is he related to Jules Kroll in any way, shape, or form? So <laughs> drop that in a rock fin chat. You're probably going to get noticed. <laughs> but we need the references. Uh, Nicholas Murray Butler. There's a bunch of honorary folks that, that got into it. Herbert Hoover, right? Mm. So he's in memoriam section too, but he wasn't like a real, real, you know? These are people they wanted in. Not a real, real. Never joined. Yeah. Not a real, real, real. They have a list of 50. Then they got like the general list. There's lots, dude. It goes on like, damn, man. Like, it's not. That's a little overpopulated, is it not? You're right. This is proof of overpopulation right here. All these people (laughs) in the Bohemian Club (laughs) from 1940. Yeah. And then uh, I got this one last one here that I found over there. In the same pile. This is a New York Stock Exchange history organization, operation, and service. And this is a, a rare pamphlet from back in the day, printed 1929. There's the New York Stock Exchange. Mm, wow. And uh, yeah, to maintain progress and ensure prosperity, every modern nation must provide a central marketplace for its public securities. Napoleon. Mm. They cited Napoleon at the beginning of this. All right. Let's get back to uh, news of the week, but just wanted to share a couple of those artifacts that I found along the way of not finding what I was looking for over there. Now we're out of the, uh, why are we, let's see, we're in the vaccine therapeutic Mm -hmm. section. I want to get that. um, I liked Chris's interview with Matthias Desmond better. I thought, yeah, uh, Chris Martinson's clip and uh, let's just do, First 10 minutes of that, Desmond does a good job of laying out his case. And then if you're interested in more of that, we'll give you the link. And uh, just like we do for every clip we ever play, it's going to be in the sources, references, and notes for this episode. Uh, yeah, I thought Chris Martinson did a good job talking about, uh, with Matthias Desmond, who is from the University of Ghent, which is in Brussels, Belgium. And he had written half of the theory that became known as mass formation psychosis. I think he wrote on the mass formation part, if I'm uh, yeah, remembering correctly. Yeah, yeah, I believe so. And then there was the other guy who wrote the you know, Thompson. Maybe his name is Mark Thompson. And, uh, it was McDonald. Like McDonald, McDonald. McDonald. Yeah. Like the farmer. Um, yeah. I have his book as well. So I think he talks about like psychosis or mass psychosis or something like that. And they just, it was like, who was it, Robert Malone or McCullough who combined the two terms together. Yeah, people don't like the Reese's peanut butter cup of like combining the two terms. So I study this, uh, the terms separately and I don't need to like intersect them. I can have peanut butter over here and chocolate over here. I'm fine with that. So it's about reading is fundamental to formulating knowledge. The point is neither intellectual is any issue with one another from my understanding. Like it's just those, they both independently arrived at the same conclusion and happened to term it something different. Right. That's it. Many such cases. Mm-hmm. Newton and Leibniz were working on calculus at the same time as some mm-hmm. other folks. All right. Let's go to the clip. We'll be right back. This comes from Peak Prosperity's Chris Martinson. That's the end stage of mass formation. This radical intolerance for everything that goes against 
this absurd theory uh, the masses believe in, uh, in which uh, the cruelties which are committed to everyone, even to the people whom uh, they used to love most before the mass formation started, such as their own children, their own sons and daughters. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the program. I am so excited for today's guest. We are talking with one of the foremost leading authorities on something called mass formation as it pertains to COVID-19. This is, of course, Dr. Matthias Tesmet. He is a professor of clinical psychology at Ghent University in Belgium. Hey, uh, Matthias, so great to have you back here with us today. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me again, Dr. Martinson. And this is the book we're talking about, this one right here. If you get it, which you absolutely should, it won't come with all these uh, note marks and everything. Matthias, I, I marked up this book more than any other book I've read in, in years because uh, you were just hitting me with line after line. It's the psychology of totalitarianism. What is totalitarianism, very briefly, so we can set the stage? And is this something people need to be concerned about today? Oh, well, yes, totalitarianism. If we are talking about totalitarianism, we are thinking in the first place about uh, communism, Nazism, uh, the Soviet Union, and so on. And that were indeed the first totalitarian systems. Um, so the first totalitarian systems in the, 20, in the first part of the 20th century. Before the 20th century, totalitarianism did not exist. That's important to know. Many people confuse totalitarianism with classical dictatorships, but it's something completely different. A classical dictatorship is very simple. The psychological structure of a classical dictatorship is very simple. It's a group, it's, it's the population that is scared of a small group of people, uh, the dictatorial regime. And, uh, and therefore, this, the population accepts that this small group of people imposes unilaterally its social contract to society. That's a classical dictatorship. Totalitarian states, states are something completely different. The, the psychological basis is, com is completely different. It's much more impressive, the psychological basis, uh, and much more profound. Totalitarian systems are based on the process of mass formation. That means a small group, um, uh, a kind of group dynamic, uh, which uh, uh, makes that a part of the population fanatically believes in a certain narrative or a certain ideology. And when this, this group, this mass, is led by a few leaders, uh, they can easily seize control of society. And that's when uh, a new kind of state system emerged, uh, a totalitarian state, which uh, does not only control politic political space and public space, such as a classical dictatorship does, but which also controls private space uh, because to the totalitarian state has a huge secret police at its disposal, namely this part of the population that fanatically believes in the state narrative. So that's a totalitarian state. Uh, Hannah Arendt uh, warned us that um, in 1951 already that we've seen uh, communist totalitarianism, we've seen uh, fascist totalitarianism, but that the new totalitarianism, the totalitarianism of the future would be a technocratic totalitarianism that would that means a kind of totalitarian state which is led not by gang leaders such as stalin and hitler but by dull bureaucrats and technocrats and uh, that's what i think around 2017 i had the impression that we were ready for such a new technocratic totalitarianism and when the corona crisis started i i in my interpretation We've seen this huge leap forward um, 
towards a technocratic system, uh, which is a system which is led by technocratic experts rather than, than by democratically elected politicians. Uh, and uh, well, that was when I started to think about the book on, uh, on um, uh, this new technocratic totalitarian system that uh, might emerge now. Or that is All right. Well, it absolutely has so many things to talk about, but I, I really want to make sure I have my, my arms around this and the listeners can follow along. The idea behind a totalitarian system as opposed to a dictatorship. Dictatorship's a strong person. They rule with fear. You understand what's happening. But totalitarianism is, is a structure that people buy into fundamentally, right? And that structure, it's an idea. It's an ideology. And that ideology doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't have to be sensible often. Isn't that actually a feature of it, that it's kind of, on some level, provably nonsense, uh, you know, that we'll get to this great utopian ideal if we just kill all these people over here um, or something like that. Do I have that right? Yes, absolutely. And uh, 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 totalitarianism all starts with, with, with this, indeed, this, this fanatic belief in the population that uh, a certain reshaping of society is needed to save the world from all kinds of uh, dramatic uh, problems or from all kinds of objects of anxiety. Uh, that's how totalitarianism starts. Um, it starts from an ideological conviction, a blind and fanatic ideological conviction. Uh, um, uh, and, 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 and so it, that, that makes that it is completely different from a, from a classical dictatorship. For instance, in a classical dictatorship, the point of gravity of the system is always situated at the level of the elite. If you eliminate a part of the dictatorial elite, a substantial part, then usually the system, the, di the dictatorship will collapse. But in a totalitarian state, the point of gravity is not so much situated in the elite, it's rather situated in this part of the population that is in the grip, phonetically in the grip of this ideology and ultimately the root cause of the totalitarian system is always the ideology itself. The ideology itself, which has a grip both on the elite and on the masses. So uh, the ideology in the Soviet Union, for instance, was historical materialism of Marx. The ideology uh, that seized control of, the, of, of, of society in Nazi Germany was um, kind of race theory, neo-Darwinist race theory. And now I believe that the ideology that uh, is imposing itself to society now is a rather a kind of transhumanist ideology, a technocratic ideology. And, 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 and then you see that this ideology um, is becoming dominant or, or, or is taking control of society through all kinds of narratives. That's important. You have to mm. distinguish between the ideology and the narratives that are used often by the elite, to convince people to go along with the ideology or to accept all these changes that are this reshaping of society that is needed if, uh, for this new society to be created. And these, these narratives, in, in my opinion now, are like the climate narrative, they are the, the corona narrative, uh, the, the, the narrative of the war on terror, all these narratives are in one way or another, narratives that make people feel as if it is unavoidable that we need more technological control 
that we cannot rely on democratic uh, decision-making procedures, but that we need experts to take control of society through technological uh, devices or through te technological instruments, uh, or that otherwise we will never be able to successfully deal with all these objects of anxieties, the, 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 the terrorists, the, the, the viruses, the, the anti-vaxxers, the uh, no matter what, um, uh, climate change and so on. So that's, that's a little bit the mechanism. You have to distinguish between the ideology and, uh, and, and the narratives that are used to, 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 to convince people that uh, the ideological changes are necessary. Um, but in the end, it's the ideology itself, whether we are talking about uh, the Nazi ideology or transhumanism or the uh, uh, historical materialist ideology, in the end, it always boils down, it are all different variants of the same ideology. It are all variants of mechanist ideology, the mechanist view on man and the world, the idea that the entire universe is like a dead material machine, uh, a set of elementary particles that interact with each other according to the laws of mechanics, and that's crucial, that can be perfectly understood in a rational way. That's the idea, the basic, the essence of mechanist ideology, the belief that the universe is a machine and that everything can be understood in a rational way, controlled in a rational way, manipulated in a rational way, and that the essence of life can be reduced to the categories of our own, of our own, our own logical understanding. That's the core problem we are facing now. It's that kind of thinking, that kind of ideology that ultimately leads to the concentration camps. That's what I describe in my book. I connect these two things to each other uh, in my book. This mechanist ideology and the end result. There's a, these totalitarian systems uh, uh, of the 20th and 21st century. Yes, and, and <clears throat> we're talking with, with Matthias Tesmet, uh, author of this book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism. And, and I, I, I have to thank you for writing this. And I've been coming at this from a slightly different angle for a while, but, but this, I love rotating the Rubik's Cube and coming in from a different angle. So the idea that, hey, this all begins, you kind of pin this at the Enlightenment. Good idea. We're going to be very rational. We're going to come out of our superstitious phase. But then maybe we just overdid it, right? We just went too far down that path. And of course, what I love that you connect here, I'm a scientist by training, and I still read lots of science and physics and all this. And, and what's amazing to me, you study some of the same people, listen to the same scientists, is that good scientists, when they get right to the edge of what the known is, they almost invariably become spiritual in some level because they go, wow, I rationalized my way all the way down to the heart of this thing and it's completely irrational. <laughs> Meaning, you know, it's, 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 it's ineluctable. You can't describe it in words. You can't, you can't get your arms around it. The more you try to understand it, the less you can. So you have to come at it with the irrational side of us, which we could also call intuition. Um, so, so connect those pieces for us. This is, if, if I'm understanding this book right, not to jump to the conclusion, but there's an evolutionary process here and that's what's before us right now. Nothing less than sort of maybe the heart of our species is really at a cusp of something here. And if we get it wrong, we go down a place that ends in mass atrocity. Guess what? We've been there before. Probably not a lot more to learn from that, except it, it, it sucks. Uh, but there's this other path we could take. But first, we have to understand the dimension of the problem. W how has enlightenment led us astray, in your view? Or how is yeah, our interpretation well. of it? 
Yes. As you said, uh, the strange thing is that we all believe that this mechanist view on man and the world is the scientific view on man and the world. But the strange thing is that this actually um, uh, is not correct because most seminal scientists, uh, they almost all started more or less from this mechanist view on the man and the world. But very soon they acknowledged that this view on man and the world is extremely limited. That's something that was very well articulated by, for instance, René Tom one of the most famous uh, mathematicians of the 20th century and one of the founding fathers of systems theory, he said, this part of reality that can be understood in a rational way, in a rational mechanist way, is very limited. And the rest of reality, we can only understand through empathically resonating with it. So he was talking about two different kinds of knowing the world. On the one hand, there is this rational way to know the world, and on the other hand, there is this other way of knowing the world, which is a resonating way, an empathic way of knowing the world, which is hard to define, but it are two different ways to know the world. And he used two different words in French for knowing. He used savoir, which refers to voir, to see, to what you can see with the eye. So there is a certain knowledge that you can generate by looking at the world with your eyes and thinking logically about what you see. That's the rational knowledge of the world. But then he also referred to this different uh, way of knowing the world, this resonating knowledge. And that, for that word, he used the word connaître, which means as much as, if you look at it, connaître means to be born together. That means that, that, means that this kind of knowledge is a knowledge that uh, is a revelatory and which makes you understand things in a new way as if you're born again. So it are, it are two different way of, ways of knowledge. There's this rational knowledge and the resonating knowledge. And also traditions mm -hmm. such as a samurai tradition in Japan and every mystical tradition, I think, knew that difference. The samurai tradition in Japan said that every time you learn something, an art or a craft, there is this first stage of the learning process, which is a technical, rational stage. You learn certain techniques. For instance, if you learn the martial arts, you will learn certain techniques in a rational way, which make you understand what you should do if you're under attack, for instance. And then, but the first stage of learning an art is always practicing these techniques. That's the rational stage. But if you practice for a very long time, you will start to develop a different kind of knowledge, a kind of feeling, a kind of mm -hmm. resonating knowledge. And it's that knowledge that is the aim, the goal, the end result of a learning process. And the samurai said, it's difficult, they said, to learn the techniques of a martial art, but it's even more difficult to forget them again. And if you don't succeed in forgetting them again, before you go to the battlefield, you will die on the battlefield. And that shows, like, it's exactly the same with science. There is a first stage, stage of science, which is a rational stage. And then the sciences of, of the 20th century and even the, the sciences of the 19th century as well showed it so clearly. They showed that certain objects, for instance, certain phenomena in nature, can be rationally understood to a certain extent, but the core of the phenomena can never, escapes all rational understanding. Niels Bohr said, when it comes to atoms, language, so Niels Bohr, the famous physicist, uh, he said, uh, when he won the Nobel Prize, he said, when it comes to atoms, 
language can only be used as poetry. And he meant, he was dead serious. He mm -hmm. meant that when you try to grasp the behavior of elementary particles, you will understand a certain part of it in rational terms, in logical terms. But in the end, the core of it is radically irrational. He said that no theory could be right if she was not completely absurd. And uh, for me, it was, it, was a, it was a complex dynamical systems theory, which made me wake up at that level. When I was about 35 years old, and when I, when I dived deep into the uh, mathematical basis of complex dynamical systems theory, I suddenly understood that the essence of life and of nature is irrational. That's what it shows. This theory shows it paradoxically in a strictly rational way that the essence of every complex, complex dynamical system, that it always behaves irrationally, literally like an irrational number. So science as well, just like the samurai tradition or any, uh, every mystical tradition starts from rationality. But if you walk down the road of rationality to the very end, you will soon stumble upon a land that you can never enter uh, with rational thinking. And there you have to switch. You have to develop this other kind of knowing the world, this much more resonating way of knowing the world, a way to know the world, of knowing the world, which brings you in touch with the real, which brings you in touch with the eternal principles of life, which are, which, which are ethical principles. <laughs> that's, that's so, so you make this switch from an existence based on rational understanding to an existence based on a more resonating knowing and in which you feel, become in touch with principles which can never be articulated in a definitive way, I think, but which allow you to position yourself in life and in society towards other people. So I think that so I've, I've when I went through that process myself in a very concrete way in which I, I was a very someone who very stubbornly uh, tried to understand in a rational way. And at the moment mm -hmm. where I started to, 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 to become aware of the fact that uh, rational understanding is, 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 is limited and never capable of grasping the essence of life, um, it was like a true revelation for me. I started to feel that suddenly... Right, go ahead, pause it. That all right, so he gets <clears throat> deep in the second half of that that uh, first part of the conversation, right? So it goes on for like an hour. We got like 10, 15 minutes. How much did we get, LD, of that? Uh, 18 minutes in. 18 minutes. Yeah, All right. So I'm going to address what he said last, then I'll work our, uh, our work our way back to like the useful references we can take from that and learn from. Um, existence exists cause and effect exist. I'm conscious of it. Therefore, I have to think my way forward, right? I can use reason and logic to discern all of that perception through the five senses of reality. But if I want to go taking that apart, I'm going to need a different set of tools. It's going to look wild and crazy, like chaos physics and, you know, uh, quantum uh, uh, states of matter and plasma physics and all these sorts of things, right? So it's going to have a different set of rules because it's like, it's like if you look at a word document you think it's a word document and you can read the words but really it's a bunch of code behind that and that code's not going to make sense to you so it's the same type of vernacular what desmond is saying at the end is getting in and learning how to read that code is uh you know the secondary stage but the first stage is what is the commonsensical reality that we can perceive with our five senses and talk about in useful ways to each other and the schism comes 
when people are talking about things that are not real, are not true, and then holding people to account in that same reality, which they are denying, that becomes an issue that causes civil strife, that causes civil unrest, all these other things. He also alluded to they're, they're getting people away from acts of consciousness and you know speaking from your soul to cybernetic control of clockwork oranges uh, around the world. You know, seeing you as a mechanistic being, if they deny you consciousness and soul and downgrade you just to an animal, they can manipulate you just like they manipulate pigeons and mice and all these other animals. They can seem to teach to read and, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, have uh, condition responses, Skinnerian type of situations. So that's transhumanism. It starts with cybernetics. So I wanted to give you a couple books. Let's go here. Neil Postman, Technopoly, The Surrender of Culture to Technology. And um, he wrote this, I think, in the 90s. So let's check, uh, check, check, uh, let's see the date. Also by Neil Post, 1992. So a little bit ahead of his time, you know, writing uh, very descriptively about what was to come with the Internet and every new piece of a technology that we adopt. We also have to sacrifice part of our culture that made us self-reliant prior to that technology being uh, instilled. Next one I would point to also fits yeah. in with Death Desmet's, uh thesis there at the beginning the logical leap this is kind of a story of how physics became corrupted over time and uh yeah you know it became uh, based on sort of like rational sort of prescriptive based physics imaginary science went from measuring reality to what you want reality to be and then you make the measurements fit into it so he talks about the importance of going back to Induction, starting with experimentation, experiencing the world, developing hypotheses, testing those hypotheses, and the importance of getting back. And he he details a lot of the great, you know, a, a lot of the great inventions, great discoveries in history, how they went about that process, like the the great inventors, some of the great scientists. And he relates, he, he shows like their struggle, their imagination, their creativity. Um, and he juxtaposes that to the, the 20th century, just the 19th and 20th century. Um, right, the yeah. 19th would be like the romantic portion, the romantic sort of portion. They were the like inspirations the for the technocracy, the romanticists, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. August the Comp. Well, and that's so like I have a lot of not to, I don't want to dovetail because I don't want to take up too much time, but like, so for those that are interested, Tuesday night town hall, I can address and I, I know exactly what Matthias is uh, d- talking about. Um, but without going into like a lengthy dissertation about it, I'm willing to sort of uh, translate and critique parts of i think what he's trying to get at in regards to what he's talking about like two different types of knowing two different like one based more on sort of into intuition and emotion other and like i would say the two really aren't disconnected and i don't i don't think he means to i don't, it's I don't our know job, what he means it's to. our job to bridge those two pieces with thinking correct and so i i get what he what he's trying to do is trace back this mind virus to make to a a uh, a philosophical epistemology it's an epistemological theory theory of knowledge which is called reductionistic materialism where you can sort of break matter apart to its like tiniest constituents and that'll sort of give you then the rational sort of hierarchical understanding of how all the pieces fit together and and, and anything and through that we can sort of understand everything in the world and uh, be able to create those so- sort of scientific societies that you know the Bertrand Russell types and Albert North Whitehead sort of allude to right but Niels um, Bohr said you can't do it. Correct. And so as you try to, to break down in that uh, extreme materialistic type of way, 
it gets like unknowable, almost like as as if reality. Girdle said it in mathematics. Bohr said it in quantum and quantum yeah, physics. Kurt Girdle wrote um, the incompleteness theorems. Obviously, Einstein said it with right. his relativity. Um, but I would argue there's ways to see this sort of mind-body dichotomy as being unified. And, you know, sort of reason being that sort of like actually the meeting place between the two. And so, well, like, I, I'm reason going to go science into used to be the meeting of the two. That That's actually true. That's take that's reality. True. And, and Matthias actually to alluded your, to that. In thinking the very process. Yeah. So uh, for people who want to know more on that topic, you can go to Peace Revolution podcast title, The Philosophic Corruption of corruption reality. reality. Yeah. Yeah. And then. A lot of the people talked about in the history of corrupting that reality in physics uh, is in Technocracy Rising by Patrick Wood. And you're talking about uh, like August Comte and who were the other yeah, progenitors back in the day. Maybe this isn't even the right book of his. Oh, uh, Henri Saint-Simon well, Saint from Simon, 1760 yeah. to 1825, father of modern technocracy. And then the next guy I thought was August Comte. Mm-hmm. But uh, which should be positivism, right? And like, he talks so that's about carbon why when, currency. When I mean, everything is going when on, when I bring up positivism all the time, like that's such a positivistic argument. They sort of relegated reality be nothing more than essentially statistical me- measurements of probability functions. So it's based on your what you perceive to experience in the moment. So let me translate that. Everything's in a state of chaos or unknowing until it's measured. And when you do measure it, you're never really sure that the laws that make it what it is in that moment are going to stay the way they are. So all you can really do is measure a sort of probability of what something is or how phenomena relate to one another. And so they, you know, they they do these brilliant sort of statistical um charts and graphs to try to describe the nature of something, but not describing it as though it's an essential part of it, but as though there's other things that could come in and change the essential characteristics of what the, that thing that they're witnessing and how it's being experienced is. I, so. I did find that reference, uh, August Comte and Thorstein, Thorstein Veblen. Yeah, right. Sorry. Yeah. Now, Veblen, he, uh, Helped to found the uh, New School for Social Research, Research, the New School, and then uh, he was also the I editor. Thought that's I thought he was something more. Yeah, that's crazy. He was the editor of the Journal of Race Relations. Thorsten Veblen was, uh, and then that journal became the Council on Foreign Relations, Foreign Affairs magazine. So these were some of the you know Fabian Fabian socialists supported technocracy. Uh, and transhumanism, these sort of things. Real quick, yeah. Oh, he's a student, yeah. Positivism, okay. Founder of positivism, uh, man. Yeah, modern sociology. He's supposedly has been adorned as being the father of modern sociology. I also wanted to point out he was spot on with uh, calling out the unsaid conference and agenda 21 and the biodiversity assessment. That's all the stuff that they're doing today. I mean, they're making a global village. We're going to see. Look at this. Global Village, right? They want to make the Global Village. Let's go to that uh, that Matt Walsh. Hmm. Cities of the future, the dystopian city of the future that they're building with all this uh, anti-logic and reason, plus Technopoly, which is uh, 
totalitarian transhumanism technocracy. That's about the gist. Uh, that one's in the intermission section. That would be just in case you're. Yeah, because we got a different intermission we're going to work through tonight. We're doing audibles all night. I had a couple. Of it's unpredictable. As it always is. Keep me a dynamic on GTW. Yeah, they got a global eco village coming for you. They're building a prototype over in Saudi Arabia. And it's like if they wanted to build like a Great Wall of China. But instead of China and being a Great Wall, it's just a big wall of glass. Because I said, I think they said it's 300 meters high or 500 meters high. And it's like U-shaped, right? And you'd have your whole ecosystem. And it's just like a glass wall in the desert. What happens when the electricity goes out? We will see yeah, what they want for you and me in the future. Glass wall in the desert. Well, they, I mean, they only have so much to work with. It's Saudi Arabia. A lot of desert. Yeah, I mean, they're making the best of it, recently. So, when they started a new golf tour, so making the best of it. Mohammed bin Salman's project. Hmm. He wants to leave his mark on the world that can be seen can be seen from space. So is he creating like a terrarium then? It's like a terrarium. It's like uh, eco city of the future, the, agenda uh, twenty thirty model for everyone yeah. else to follow. Something uh, like a panopticon. It's like a really long panopticon. That's what it looks like. Hmm. I figure they already have the pin on common place. So. Well, let's see how. Uh, so Walsh probably gets into it like three minutes into a show and it goes to like 12 minutes, probably that clip, that episode segment. Yep. We, uh, <laughs> let's go to it. Are you ready? Oh, yeah, you're good. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we got it. It's working. The architects of the New World Order are always searching for ever more efficient ways of containing and controlling and dehumanizing us, stripping our lives of beauty, destroying our freedom, and treating us like cattle to be herded and used. As we know, the goal is to have us all living in pods, stacked up on top of each other, eating bugs, owning nothing, and having no privacy. They seek even to lay claim to our inner lives, our consciences. The complete human existence, they believe, is one spent sitting in your rented prison bunk, eating your ration of grasshoppers for the day, numbed by psychotropic drugs while wearing your virtual reality headset to attend an endless string of corporate diversity seminars. And millions of people are already living a life that comes very close to this utopian ideal, but our overlords know that there are still advances yet to be made, new and innovative ways of eating our souls and making our lives even drearier and uglier. Enter the crown prince of Saudi Arabia with a concept that has been ominously dubbed the land scraper. The Guardian reports, the promotional material is striking. Two mirror-encased skyscrapers stretching more than 100 miles across a swath of desert and mountain terrain, providing a future home for 9 million people. Is it the ultimate in-high-density in high living or, or a grandiose science fiction fantasy? In short, economists, architects, and analysts are not quite sure. So, so extravagant is Saudi Arabia's plan to create an urban utopia that even those working on the project, known as The Line, do not yet know if its scale and scope can ever be realized. Skeptics and supporters alike were this week given more insight into the extraordinary ambition of the development, the centerpiece of the futuristic Neom uh, site near the Gulf of Aqaba, when the kingdom's crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, outlines central aspects of what he intends to be one of the most ambitious urban developments built in modern times. Now, the concept will cost about a trillion dollars to build, 
And the hope is that this idea can be exported to many other countries, including our own, to make cities more efficient and eco-friendly, you know, to save the, the planet and to finally bring into being a real-life sci-fi dystopia. There have been a lot of different visions for how this, this can be done. Many different people in different countries have had ideas of like what the cities of the future will look like in order to save the planet. And um, this is what this one's all about. Here's a promotional video explaining it a little bit more. Watch. For too long, humanity has existed within dysfunctional and polluted cities that ignore nature. Now, a revolution in civilization is taking place. Imagine a traditional city and consolidating its footprint, designing to protect and enhance nature. The line will be home to 9 million residents and will be built with a footprint of just 34 square kilometers. And we are designing it to provide a healthier, more sustainable quality of life. The line's communities are organized in three dimensions. Residents have access to all their daily needs within five-minute walk neighborhoods. And the line's infrastructure makes it possible to travel end-to-end -end in 20 minutes with no need for cars, resulting in zero carbon emissions. By leveraging AI technology, services are autonomous, saving you time and effort. Designed by world-leading architects, the line is 500 meters tall, 200 meters wide, 170 kilometers long, and housed within an elegant mirror glass facade. Intelligent solutions create efficiency and year-round temperate microclimate with natural ventilation. Energy and water supplies are 100% renewable. The line is designed as a series of unique communities offering a wealth of amenities, providing equitable views and immediate access to the surrounding nature. Oh, well, I mean, as long as you'll have equitable views, because that's the kind of view we all want, isn't it? You, you hike up to the top of a mountain, look out at God's creation and say, wow, the view up here is so equitable. That's a very normal and human reaction, right? Anyway, the plan, as you see, is to build a narrow 100-mile-long mirrored prison in which you can live and work and never leave and then die. As others have pointed out, it looks very much like a sleek and modern border wall of sorts, actually. So how quickly we went from, no, don't build the wall, to build the wall and live inside it. And speaking of living inside walls, this plan appears to have been inspired partly from sci-fi dystopian films that the architects have mistakenly taken as how-to guides, but then also partly from the living quarters of household pests. What, what they've come up with is, is an exciting opportunity for anyone who's ever dreamed of living in a termite colony. It may seem like, you know, you'd have a rather dismal existence inside this thing, surrounded on all sides all the time by glass and steel, totally cut off from nature, but at least you'll have the entertainment of watching birds constantly smash into the enormous mirrored exterior walls. Same for any other species of animals whose migration pattern happens to intersect with the human filing cabinet that they're building. Now, it may seem pointless to complain about this. It's in Saudi Arabia. It's not here. Actually, it's not even in Saudi Arabia. It's nowhere. This is a concept, a plan. We don't know if they'll actually be able to build it. And if they do build the thing, it seems highly likely that the experiment will fail in spectacular fashion, mitigating the risk that something similar would be attempted in this country. There are many ways that it could fail. You know, starting with the enormous damage that a few well-placed suicide bombers could do in a place like that, 
This is the, Mid- the Middle East, after all. Not to mention the fact that you'd be living in a literal transmission tube for disease. In fact, the whole thing seems like it was designed by a virus, but both the biological and computer variety. Because the entire structure is supposed to run on computers and artificial intelligence, leaving its inhabitants totally vulnerable to cyber attack. By the way, what happens when someone takes out the generators in the giant glass rectangular prison in the middle of the desert? What then? Of course, the worst thing that could happen, though, is that the monstrosity is built, and it works, and no disasters befall it, and all of its inhabitants are kept satiated and numbed enough that there are no uprisings where the peasant class violently overthrows the elites of the rectangle, eventually setting fire to the whole thing and dancing around it as it burns. If nothing like that were to happen, tragically, then perhaps eventually we would end up with something similar here. Either way, whether they try to force us into this particular hellscape or they construct a slightly different sort of futuristic livestock stable for us, the fact is that this is the direction that the powers that be wish to take us and are taking us. So it's worth pointing out the problems with this plan and any plan similar to it. And by plan similar to it, I'm including modern day cities as they currently exist, which in their construction are only slightly less horrifying than the total recall-esque concepts that people like the crown prince of Saudi Arabia are coming up with. And all of the problems, including the ones I've already outlined, can be summarized this way. This actually is just a problem with leftism in general. It does not take into account human nature. This is one of the defining features of the elites in society, the globalists, the the utopianists. They do not account for or understand human nature, both the good and the bad of human nature. So let's start with the bad. Human beings in our fallen state are naturally disposed to antagonism, tribalism, hostility, violence. That doesn't mean that every human being is a violent savage. It just means that humans have that natural capacity. And the more that you cram humans together into tight living quarters, the more that you're going to bring this side out. And since everybody is living in such a densely populated environment, when the violence does emerge, as it so inevitably will, the harm it inflicts will be exponentially magnified. One violent psychopath by himself out in the woods makes a good villain in a horror film, but the violent psychopath living in the city right on top of hundreds of others uh, of, of other people is by far the greater danger, especially because he can now form tribes, gangs, with other violent psychopaths, and pretty soon your beautiful, harmonious, sardine can existence has turned into a dirty, grimy, bloody, awful nightmare. For an example of this phenomenon, see any city, anywhere. Now, that's not to say that the violence and crime in the city and the violence and crime that would turn the giant rectangle into a glass prison of despair is all due to people living too close to each other. That's part of it. The bigger part is, of course, the breakdown of the family, the the destabilization of necessary social structures, the deliberate institutional effort to undermine law and order, etc. But these are all the work of the very same people who are planning the utopian cities of the future, so those problems are all sure to follow. But human nature is not all bad, thankfully. One of our nobler characteristics is that we hunger for adventure, creativity, independence. Now, there may be people who, for whatever reason, for whatever perverse reason, enjoy cities, but everybody feels at peace in nature. Everybody can appreciate a beautiful lake or a stream or a mountain. 
People go to cities for convenience, for job opportunities, for bars and restaurants and nightlife and so on. They don't go there for beauty. They certainly don't go there for peace. They don't go there to fulfill any of the deeper longings of the soul. The ideal, most whole and complete way to live is on land you own, in a house that is yours, where you can breathe fresh air and enjoy at least a little bit of quiet and solitude and have, along with your family, at least a semblance of independence and self-reliance. But the issue is that we're harder to control and manipulate when we live like that. Which is why the powers that be wish to usher us back closer together on property we don't own, living lives we don't control. Packed into our stalls like so many horses in a massive modernized barn that smells only slightly better, if we're lucky. That's just no way to live. Yet it's how they want us to live, which is why we should live any way but that way. Now let's get to our five headlines. I don't know why he's hating on the line, man. I think it's a brilliant architectural idea. They should do it. They should build that. Build that line. That is the most absurd concept. Are you kidding me? A giant mirrored line in the desert. I mean, I was was trying to put it together, right? So they asked MBS, MBS, you got enough money? Let's make a city. And they expect him to put a dot on the map or maybe make a little circle, like a big city. Mm-hmm. And bro, bro just goes like this. Just like, line across the map. And they're like, that's brilliant! Because they, t- they never say no to the guy with all the money. They're like, that's brilliant. And they're like, what will it be like? And he's like, I picture Snowpiercer, but not moving, and in the desert. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, brilliant. So- they're like, Awesome. Now, where do you think MBS lives on that line? A GTW member. So I hope uh, you want to live on the line. And where do you think MBS lives? Do you think it lives at the front of the train or the back of the train in the snow piercer metaphor? <laughs> right. Sand piercer coming to you. Sand piercer. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> actually, actually, I just got from the control Watch out room. for the we, Tuscan Raiders and the Sarlacc. It's right in the chat. We just got a preview of what the city looks like in the future. They've got a new piece of marketing out for it. Let's go to uh, marketing of uh, the line in the future. The terrarium living from the makers of the matrix. Just imagine a world where you will hold your entire future in the palm of your hand. When a tiny glowing crystal will guide you through an existence in which each day is more wonderful than the last. Where it will be possible for you to obtain the fulfillment of every fantasy. The satisfaction of every vanity. The absolute attainment of every wish. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer presents the Saul David production of Logan's Run. A fantastic journey through a world beyond imagination. Welcome to the 23rd century. The perfect world of total pleasure. Imagine a world in which you need never be alone. You touch a switch, turn a dial, and the perfect lover steps into your arms. Every pleasure is yours to experience. Runner! There's just one catch. When the tiny crystal in the palm of your hand flashes its final message, your time is up. Michael York is Logan. Run, Logan! Policeman in a perfect world. No! Trained to track down runners. Run, Logan! 
until he is forced to run himself. Understand, we all go crazy once in a while. But she's a runner, and it's over. Over well, 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 am I not? <laughs> Box, an incredible being, more than human, more than machine, diabolical guardian of the gateway to freedom, or Logan and the woman who loves him. like that before. That must be the look of... of being old. MGM takes you into a new age of adventure in the first motion picture of the 23rd century. Logan's Run. It begins where imagination ends. Hmm, that, that's funny. Machine. It picks up. Because it begins where imagination ends, and where imagination ends, MBS made his line. He just <laughs> drew his line. And uh, Logan's run is about trying to get outside that line and uh, escape into the desert <laughs> of the real. See, there's another Warner Brothers Matrix callback to finish that off. And uh, yeah, so the Snowpiercer in the desert <laughs> coming coming to uh, an earth near you. A stationary like. Snowpiercer. In the desert, Jason it's like said. snow pierce. Yeah, stationary snow yeah. piercer in the desert. That's the, that's the pitch. You know, I bet, it, I bet the ad agency was like, we got it, MBS. We got it. We know how to bring that into reality. Just a trillion dollars. Everybody loves living close together. Look, everything's within five minute walk. Why you need to be connected to the rest of that line? Anyone? Anyone? I was no. thinking that same thing. It's like if all your meads are net within five minutes. Like why? It's, why have the it's whole for thing the desert, Tony? So. They have to preserve the desert. They want to keep it. <laughs> it's for the. I'm joking. I don't know about the, the the weather and terrain in Saudi Arabia. Personally, I've only seen pictures. So maybe it's a very lush area, and the urban sprawl has choked out the uh, the natural wildlife, and they should live in the line. Maybe maybe it's a good idea. We have to weigh these things. We can't just assume living in a panopticon a hundred miles long. I thought it was a joke. With nine million other people is a good thing to do in the day of safety distance. What do they call that? Six feet to stop the spread. What was the thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Six feet. Social distancing. Right. Yeah, social social distancing. distancing. I thought that was a thing. It, apparently it doesn't exist over there in the world of MBS. Drawing that line. He drew the line and COVID's not in it. They're fine. It's, it's a great plan. I mean, he redefined what the Israelis have been doing. They built a wall. But he well, built a line that's both a line and a wall. They weren't smart enough to live wall. inside the wall, bro. Like, you can live inside. You know, there right. you go. It's, it's like a Trojan horse Titan that doesn't style. move in the desert, but it's 100 miles long and looks like a snake. That's it. Thank you. Nazca line style. Oh. That's the guy, MBS. Uh, can you just type in Mohammed bin Salman and bring up like images? Isn't he the guy with like the gold plated jets and stuff? 
not like private jets. I'm talking like 777. Type in gold-plated 777 or, you know, pimped out. He spent a lot of money on it to point. I don't know if that much gold would actually fly. What kind of paint do you have to use, Tony? He's like, use real gold in the paint. We'll see. Or we could have Justin look that up. He's got his hands near a keyboard, right? We got Justin in the control room. I don't want to confuse LD from his next topic because I'm going to throw to a clip he doesn't know about because I haven't figured it out yet. I don't know. I don't know about that. Is uh, electrolysis. It doesn't have to be like gold plated. You can actually do really fine flake coatings of gold. Well, I'm sure he did like the really not so fine. He's like, use the big flakes. <laughs> Will it fly? No, I'm serious. Did LD find a picture or did Justin find a picture of? Not of a gold plated 777, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, there's a search of. Muhammad bin Maybe Salman. my brain like hyperbolized his eccentricities. Gold-plated MP5? Something like that? Um, <laughs> Once you have the gold-plating machine at your, at your, at your mansion, it's like, uh, what, oh, what fits in there? Will the plane fit in there? Let's do it. The plane won't break it into pieces and put it back together. Wow, he has really it's tight control over what pictures. Midas. Can you guys just yeah, look at that? Look at that PR work right there. No random pictures of that judge. No, it's a carefully uh, bin, crafted image. Very maybe it's been to law. There was another Saudi prince because he's the one that used to own Twitter that Trump used to fight with, but Trump sold his boat to him. You know that guy. They act like they're enemies, but they're really swapping yachts that came from Adnan Khashoggi and Iran Contra. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I digress on that sort of thing. No time to talk a number about of times, man. BCCI tonight. All right, so uh, the next clip we want we want to go to, uh, building on that theme of uh, the eugenics totalitarian future. This future. Hey, Tony, do you see that they're planning that future in three dimensions? They are so modern. They might want to add a fourth dimension, and then it'll actually exist it in a time. System. <laughs> People have been building three-dimensional cities for a long time, bro. Hate to break it to you, but you know, you know, what you're doing is building a city within one, like a line is technically zero dimensions, right? If we're breaking it down, like point, well, technically, it's, line is lined one dimension. It'd be one dimension. It'd be one dimension. Line with so like they're taking a three-dimensional like city a, a and putting it in one dimension in the line. One dimension. So there's no plane yet. So yeah, there's okay. not even two dimensions, and then from right. which it arises, yeah. But they're yeah. working in three dimensions, Tony. But it's not in reality. So Once let me it get is, this straight. They're working in three dimensions to go back to one dimension. They're pretty advanced. <laughs> it's called uh, regressive learning, I think. It certainly does not take someone who is well understood in logic and reason hmm. as a science to figure out all the contradictions with what is going on. I thought it was a joke. I mean, I was laughing as I was on mute. I'm like, there's no way. This is a concept. When you look up his net worth, you'll see that's not a joke. That's he. He says stuff like that. People take seriously. Then a net worth that was installed (laughs) by the British, like, and also divvied up through World War One Sykes Pico that we were talking about a little bit earlier. Well, if everyone in America didn't secure those resources for 99 years, make sure they have drilling rings. Yeah, yeah. Support Wahhabism. Let's support. Oh, you know. All the same things that um, that we played a number of times. 
Well, the uh, Islamic oh, extremism the, came alongside the, the Western drilling oh, in Saudi Arabia. This is the, the Saudi family. Yeah, the Ibn Saud Saud, and we supported them, and then we divvy up the Middle East to support drilling rights, and then whenever those drilling rights go up, we go in and say, we take them over, and we call it uh, spreading democracy. No, we don't have to take them over. We just arm them with who our was stuff. It, uh, who, what was the run. clips we played a number of times um, from the interview you conducted in Florida? Oh, John Loftus? Yeah, Loftus, that's it, yeah, there's a whole history of that, but that's not for this episode. Oh, yeah, this no, episode no. we, talk, we talked too. about it a number of times. Yeah. All right, so um, let's go to uh, some Jackson report before we leave this section on uh, the therapeutics, the lockdowns, the vaccines, the side effects, the sudden adult death syndromes. While we're doing that, just to say thanks to everyone who hung out through that little technical glitch. I got a little special artifact because I found it in the box while I was looking for this other stuff. Now, first, I'm going to show you this. This is an artifact. It looks like this. I saw in the box, I was like, certificate of authenticity. What's this? What is the thing? Right. And it's got all these certificate and stamps and all this cool stuff. Right. And I flipped it over and I'm like, oh, it's that letter from E. Howard Hunt. So hmm. E. Howard Hunt. Wow. Right. 1991. He wrote it to somebody who like uh, did an interview. Right. So he wrote a thank you letter. And then that woman. At some point, went to eBay, so, you know, authenticated it and sold it. Right. So this is an artifact from E. Howard Hunt on his own stationery after he killed President Kennedy. And then at the beginning of the, that part of the box, I found this artifact with the guy that they said killed President Kennedy. <laughs> right. I mean, this guy right here, E. Howard Hunt, he has a deathbed confession. If you've never listened to it, you might want to listen to it. And these people here who brought you this. They owned the Zapruder film for years after that. The guy who ran and Life came Magazine. came up with the term conspiracy theory that is confused right. people. The, the guy who ran Life Magazine, well, Henry Luce founded it. He was Skull and Bones. But the guy who ran it was Charles Douglas Jackson, who was yeah, CD Jackson. Warfare. And, and like that's evidence of some of the first CIA Photoshop and stuff that they had going on back then with, uh, you know, a guy who's holding what looks to be uh, some sort of rifle that was yeah, not like the first found at the something. scene, by the way. This is not the first rifle found at the scene, by the way, right? There's a lot of things that you could just figure okay. out just by scrutinizing how photos are put together and presented to the American public and then how people later admit to being there at the, uh, the big op. So it's uh, interesting, you know, uh, Anglo-American establishment, I think chapter six, I think it's, uh, I think it's entitled time or something like that or how the order controls time or something time, talk, talking about time life and the origins of time life and how they've been able to control time magazine for quite some time so cd jackson's then and within a long line of essentially the anglo-american establishment through cecil Rhodes' initiative of controlling major media publications time being one of them hence why he created a whole chapter on it in the Anglo-American establishment, which I can bring up. Well, I mean, here's I what I got in the history blueprint, because I remember now this yeah. is this is interesting because there's Henry Luce from Skull and Bones, right? He worked, he's part of the Pilgrim Society, psychological operations, worked for Henry P. Davidson, JP Morgan and Company, Military Order of Malta, right? Knights of Malta, mm -hmm. University of Oxford and Yale. So very Pilgrim well vetted Society into is the really one of the big important. Yeah, so right. And then working with Dulles and the Rockefeller Brothers Fund and Claire Booth Luce. What, what, she did Booth? something. 
Oh, Vanity Fair. Mm. Oh, she's in charge of Vanity. Oh, so she's also a U.S. senator. Oh, interesting. She got the Presidential Medal of Freedom. She worked with Roald Dahl. Oh, this is a British spy who infiltrated America along with Ian Fleming back in like 1938 through 1943. So there's a lot of interesting camaraderie between Maybe these like characters. cultural infiltrations. Roald Dahl and like Ian Fleming. Yeah. In regards to yeah, that's I'm just like putting into content. Well, specifically, they were intelligence operations. That's why they're here. They're mm-hmm. working with people who assassinated American citizens who might have been against America getting into the side of uh, World War II on the side of the British. Or just supported isolationism in general. Father of advertising who brings you the Gallup, Gallup Company and Ogilvy Mather is a British spy who worked with these guys at the same time in the same operations. Anyway, I'm sure none of that's relevant. None of it's relevant to history. You don't need to know about Henry Luce or Time Magazine or his wife to understand that uh, maybe, maybe status quo runs that to inform people what they want them to think. That's all. It's their mouthpiece. Sorry, I got stuck on that screen. There you go. All right. So. Moving beyond beyond those uh, political machinations and uh, Life magazine and such, let's get to uh, let's do a sampling of the Jackson report from this past week's High Wire and uh, see what else has been going on in the world of uh, vaccines, boosters, lockdowns, mask policies, new worldwide emergencies over the monkeypox as being claimed. Uh, get into uh, the last week of news and all the incredible things that have happened since last time we had the, the chance to hear Jeffrey and Dell have a chat. All seven days ago. All seven days. Let's see what happened. Just queuing that up. And uh, yeah, wow, we got through that pretty well. I don't know what happened. That was very strange. But um, you guys hear me all right? Hey, you're good. Affirmative. It worked out. Five by five. All right. Four by four. Going off road. So. Hot dog, holly golly. Hot dog, holly golly, dagnamit. Damn, son. Come on down. Get your Grand Theft World on. We're going to have a good time every Sunday night as we do. See? All right. All right. There's about 20 seconds on this. Yeah. They're. There's not much fine control over the, uh, all right, but let's just go to it. It's like using like, uh, the, the tin cans with the string, but you can make it work getting it done. But first it's time for the Jackson report. All right, Jeffrey, there's so much going on. <laughs> Um, it's, it's really amazing, but I mean, the lies, the way it all just keeps revealing itself. It's like these people actually forgot that we had cameras rolling, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and you know, I really respect P- Dr. Pierre Corey, a, a, a quick story. It just popped, you know, I'm on standby here listening to these stories and we, we re- initially reached out to him. I reached out to him and talked to a, a woman working for him, a secretary to get him on the show, you know, years ago when he first came out and did his testimony. And um, the secretary said, you know, 
I, I, I looked, I looked you guys up. I looked up Del Bigtree on Wikipedia and uh, <laughs> it said you were anti-vaxxers and, you know, we kind of want to just really keep this space pure and, and to see him come around full circle and have this journey in the public eye and the courage he had to take to really get to the truth. Yeah. I, I, I so respect him for that. And um, I really think people need to understand that, that, that he has done so much work in the last really two years of awakening and he's brought the entire world along with him. So hats yeah. off to, to Dr. Corey. I agree. Um, but, but in the news here, so I, I, kind of out of nowhere, we've had Dr. Burks, Dr. Fauci start to do a media tour and they, they've really only accomplished incriminating and contradicting themselves. And here's Dr. Fauci, take a look at this, talking to you like, I guess it's 2020 still. Take a listen. All right. The Lancet published a study on the effectiveness of COVID-19 vaccines and the waning immunity with time. And the study showed that immune function among vaccinated individuals eight months after the administration of two doses was lower than, than that among unvaccinated individuals. Um, we, I guess the question I get a lot is why don't we hear the downsides of any vaccines? We really don't hear that. There's a study out of Germany um, that says the Federal Institute of Vaccines, Biomedical Drugs, the rate for a severe adverse reaction, uh, according to them, is one reported severe reaction per 5,000 vaccine injections. Do we have any data about, you know, vaccines and the, the back end of that or the negative side of that? There's been a, yeah. a number of studies. New York yeah. Times just did one about um, sure. menstruating cycles and how that is affected by vaccines. Yeah, though, well, the menstrual thing uh, is, is something that seems to be quite transient and, and temporary. That's the point. That's one of the points. We need to study it more. There are downsides to every intervention. But the issue is, Brett, you've got to balance what we call the risk-benefit ratio. And if you look at the deaths and the morbidity of the curves that no one will argue with when you look at a vaccinated person versus an unvaccinated person, particularly a vaccinated person who's boosted. You look at it and it just explodes out of a slide at you. The difference is stunning. It's not perfect. No one is saying it's perfect, but it does a very good job in protecting you from severe consequences. We didn't anticipate that we would have a virus that has such a capability of evolving and continuing to mutate. And the reason for that, I might say, is because when you give the virus the opportunity to continue to spread from person to person, it gives it an opportunity to mutate. And when you give it an opportunity to mutate, in many yeah. cases, some of those mutations lead to a variant that has characteristics, we call it phenotype, has a characteristic that makes it a bit more dangerous in the point of being able to spread better. Mm -hmm. That's what we saw with Omicron, and that's what we're seeing with BA5 right now. I mean, I could play like 10 flashbacks when it's like, we didn't know, we didn't know, we were just discovering now where we did know, the whole time we knew. But I mean, he is almost sounding like Geert van den Bosch now. I mean, just yeah. short of explaining that he's actually, actually the reason that the vaccine that was a leaky vaccine 
couldn't stop infection, therefore didn't stop transmission, therefore allowed this virus to live amongst us longer than it ever should have. Had we all developed natural immunity, we would have kicked it out. It would have been a barrier. It could have been stopped. Instead, everybody vaccinated is just catching this over and over and over again. Their bodies can't fight it off. And now he's telling you, and it could lead to more dangerous variants, more infectious variants. Well, that's it. And we didn't know that that was going to happen. Well, Geer Van der Bosch was telling you that was going to happen, you know, when all of this started. So, you know, it's just shocking. It's shocking. And now they're finally admitting, because there's no, we, we said this, right? We said it all along. Mm. The truth will prevail. In the end, we will know whether we were right or wrong. We've been right the whole way. All the scientists we're talking to have been right the whole way. But there's so much to this that he's wrong about. And there's so much that is really a continued lie, right? Right. Uh, uh, there's so much in there. I mean, uh, this menstruating thing, we probably should study that more. I don't know. It's just the basis of uh, right. one of the most important female anatomy components when it comes to you know childbearing. So, but, you know, he's, he's essentially saying there, you know, no one's going to argue. The data just explodes off the slide. It's just another way to say this is, you know, he's basically saying this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated still. He's just, he's just dressing right. it up a little differently. Get your booster, go out and get that sucker. But any conversation, you know, like you said, transmission infection they're not even trying to defend that hill anymore that's gone and so now they're talking about severe critical and fatal uh covid so yeah. it's going to keep you from dying get that get that booster but any conversation has to start with this recent study recovered a couple of weeks ago from qatar yep. and it's uh, the, the duration of immune protection they looked at across their national database of sars-cov-2 with natural infection against reinfection so what did they conclude the authors wrote this effectiveness of primary infection against here it is severe critical or fatal COVID-19 reinfection was 97.3 percent irrespective of the variant of primary infection or reinfection and with no evidence for waning similar results were found in a subgroup analysis for those uh, and, over and 50 and that was uh, in the group that age. That was the group that did not receive the vaccine, but had just a previous infection. So after that primary infection, 97% effective at getting any version, any variant, didn't matter. You are not going to catch it. Uh, something that they cannot say for the vaccinated who we just showed a montage or catching this thing over two, twice, three times. Uh, it's unending. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so uh, we have new research now out of the New England Journal of Medicine. This was a correspondence and they're talking about shedding. So duration of shedding of culturable virus in SARS-CoV-2 Omicron infection. But still, again, it's the BA1. We're kind of past that. But what they found yeah. here, they write, we did not find large differences in the median duration of viral shedding among participants who were unvaccinated, those who, who were vaccinated but not boosted, and those who were vaccinated and boosted. But let's look at the slides from this study and take a look at this. This was at the time since people's first PCR positive test. And you can see the step down on the bottom. Those are the days. And then you have different colors you have in the red there. Those are the unvaccinated. And you can see that the unvaccinated and the, the vaccinated, that would be two doses. They have that pot from the first day positive. They test um, the, the negative at about 15 days. But I'm, I'm sorry, but the boosted. So, so basically, are at 15 we, days. we it's everyone. They look at the PCR test. You have the unvaccinated, the vaccinated, the boosted. The red line is the unvaccinated. The yellow dotted line is the vaccinated, and then there's the boosted with the dotted green line. And then it's how long it took before you finally got a negative, um, you know, uh, PCR back. And clearly, there the unvaccinated lead the pack at 15 days out. They are doing far better than the vaccinated, who go up to 20 days still testing positive. But I, what I think is interesting 
interesting is that line drop, right? Right there around day seven, like day six, day seven, look how far down the unvaccinated, they, a, a huge group of them are testing negative by day seven, yet that's prolonged further out for the vaccinated and boosted, isn't it? Really yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's a little longer. Yeah, yeah, it has a little longer tail on that. And now, so those are just the PCR tests. So someone could argue, well, you know, the false positives, sometimes they're not that accurate to begin with. Um, they may be positive for longer that someone is infectious. The, the researchers also looked at the culture, positive culture, so viral loads essentially. And let's look at this next slide here. We have, again, the unvaccinated still dropping down at about the day 10, but then we have the vaccinated and the boosted. The boosted are that green dotted line that shoots out to almost 15 days. They're still carrying that. They still have a positive viral culture. And to look Meaning at this a little- they could be shedding and infecting people. So they're infecting people for 15 days, whereas the unvaccinated might potentially be infecting people for 10 days. I'd also argue that if the vaccine does what it says it does, which is remove your symptoms, that person that's unvaccinated probably has some symptoms, isn't running around, going to work, deciding to stay home and be practical about it. The person that's boosted potentially is running around and getting people sick, not knowing that they are infecting people. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And to look more at this data at a little different way, there's a chart here and it showed, as you correctly pointed out there, that big drop. Now this is, again, back to the PCR positive tests. At day 10 here, that blue line is the unvaccinated. You can see only 31% at that day 10 are still testing positive, but we have 62% of the boosted and 70% of the double dose vaccinated are still testing positive wow. there uh, as this thing goes down. But again, really the, the important one is the viral culture. And let's look at that slide. This one here, we have only uh, basically 6% of the unvaccinated testing at day 10 with this viral culture load, 8% of the double vaccinated, but the boosted are we're walking around with 31% still at day 10. And then you can see it drops down to, to 15 days. So that just, again, points to that fact that these people are walking around. It's a small cohort in this study. There's a small amount of people, but the data is the data. And are we seeing this reflected in the real world? That's really the question here. We see right. these studies. We see these, these, these really uh, controlled environments. And this is data out of New South Wales, Australia. This is Joe Smiley. He's a data analysis. We've covered some of his information before. This is his Substack, and he writes, New South Wales, Australia, COVID update proves the pandemic of the vaccinated. So what they're looking at here, he takes the data from New South Wales government, from their own government. Remember, a lot of governments have stopped publishing data because people are doing this. And what he looks at is hospitalizations. So again, we're not talking cases anymore. We're talking about that severe, the critical reason people are going to the hospitals. And let's look at the chart that was created using this data. It shows here a stepped process. So each color is a dose of vaccination. So the blue, we have no dose, all the way up to four doses, and that uh, light blue is unknown. And you can see the four doses- So the doses green is, is the one like the, the green, just for people, if they can't read it on their phones right now, that big tall green line, all those green lines, those are the four doses. Right behind it is the red, three doses. The yellow is two doses. The, uh, I guess it's like a dark blue is one dose. And then at the beginning of each of these charts or each of these columns, you'll see a tiny little blue line down there. Those are the no dose, the unvaccinated, okay. And so what do they exactly. look at looking at this here? What, what, so, what's, what's going up? Something's going up. I can per, see it's going up. 
Yeah, this is the rates per 1 million people by vaccination status of, for hospitalization. So we have a step okay. progression. And what that means, what we're looking at here is it's dose dependent. Hospitalizations right. using New South Wales data is dose dependent on whether you're going to the hospital or not, depending on how many vaccination doses you have had. And that is a really, really big deal. So let's look at the risk multiplier between the vax and unvax. There's a, there's a calculation that was done here. And Joel Smalley writes this, according to their own data in the last seven weeks, that was what this data window looks at, you are 37 times more likely to be hospitalized with COVID if you are vaccinated than if you are not. I mean, wow. that is the data, ladies and gentlemen. And that is the that is a that is a shocking graph that should really be talked about a lot more. I don't know why people aren't talking about this, but that is dose dependent and it's showing hospitalizations, which is no that's not a small cookie there. For We're not people, talking about a false right. PCR. And for people that are watching for the first time, we can be very technical. Some of it I know is really easy to understand. Some gets more technical. But why we keep saying dose dependent in science, you know, imagine you, you want to make sure you're not seeing an anomaly, just some weird mm -hmm. thing that happens and you don't give it too much importance. Dose dependence is one of these things that really is a strong marker that you have a problem. If you have a problem when you give this much and then the problem gets worse when you give this much and then the problem gets worse when you give this much, it shows that there's actually like a coterminous event happening with the interaction of this product and the human body or or in this case the virus or the disease that's what they're seeing here that you know if it went one two and then it drops way down you say well maybe those first that first dose was an anomaly we're not seeing that this product is clearly getting in the way and 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 when they say hospitalizations there you have it the hospitalizations going through the roof amongst those getting that fourth dose and I sit here Jeffrey and I think how many times we do a show and think that should be it Honestly, if yeah. we just ran your report right now all day on CNN today and MSNBC, just give us one day. Let us show you everything that we've showed you from the beginning of the show, how they lied to you, all the way to here that no, the, un the vaccinated are not doing better, better than the unvaccinated. You're the ones that are spreading it longer. You're the ones ending up in the hospital. Unfortunately, I'm not proud about this. These are just the facts. How long are we in this mess anymore? How long is Deborah Burke still appearing on TV? How long is Tony Fauci still got a job? This is why this is so important. Folks, if you are not signed up to our newsletter, you can't really get this across to your friends. I know they're hypnotized. We, we know the Matthias Desmond thing. Well, how do you unhypnotize them? By talking to them. What's the best way to talk to them? How about be on our newsletter? So on Monday, you're going to say, hey, you're going to go and sit down with them. And you say, look at this chart. Just look at this chart. These are charts. These are this is real life data. You can look the data up. But here it is. The vaccinated are shedding longer. Here's Tony Fauci admitting. Here's Deborah Burks, all of this is in your hands. Seriously, utilize this, folks. We only win this by enrolling people. If you're just tuning in because this is entertainment to you, man, these people are going to eventually kill us all with this stupid stuff. All right. You don't want to die. You don't want to be in another lockdown. You don't want the next product to come along and be forced into you with no choice, no ability to get a job. Then start doing your part. Start taking these tools we're handing you and use them with your friends, at least those that are intelligent enough to be able to read it and understand what we're talking about. Great stuff. Amazing. Right. And Dell, it's starting to feel a little bit like Groundhog's Day. You know, two years ago, plus we were reporting on COVID, but something else is on the horizon now. And this is what it looks like in the news. It's called monkeypox. The stark warning about the monkeypox outbreak. Powerful words from the head of the World Health Organization amid rising cases of monkeypox. The global monkeypox outbreak represents 
a public health emergency of international concern. A public health emergency. A public health emergency. A public health emergency. Monkeypox cases surge in more than 75 countries. Here in the U.S., there are about 2,900 cases, including two children. States across the country are struggling to get the monkeypox vaccine as cases are on the rise. The U.S. originally ordered 2.5 million vaccine. They've now ordered an additional 2.5 million, but health officials admit they they do not have enough vaccines to meet demand. We got an allotment of 200 vaccines and the appointments for that went in about an hour and a half. The Biden administration considers whether it will also declare a public health emergency here in the U.S. I think they're going to be reluctant to use the word pandemic because it implies that they've failed to contain this. And I think at this point we failed to contain this. I think the window for getting control of this and containing it um, probably has closed. So far, the majority of the cases have happened in men we're intimate with other men, but officials stress this, anyone, anyone can get this virus. Yeah. So, well, we have a public health emergency of international concern, basically just um, that, that asks other countries to donate money to this, trying to, it's basically a big fundraiser and to right. get public awareness onto this. But really right from the beginning, this is the headline here because there it wasn't a, a solid consensus on declaring this. So Tedros really did step in and, and did a uh, authoritarian declaration, if you will. Unprecedented WHO chief Tedros defined, uh, defied experts to declare monkeypox emergency, falsely claims nine to six vote a tie. So there was nine people against this thing and six for it. And he stepped in and said, well, I'm going to break this tiebreaker here and just kind of do it. So I mean, I mean this, he must be like one of the first graduates of Common Core. Nine and right. six is equal. Nine is equal to six. It's a tie. It's amazing. All right. And so we have the uh, the critical work of uh, one of our previous guests, Dr. Claire Craig. She's a diagnostic pathologist. And she, w she took to Twitter and really looked at these... Uh, these international health codes to figure out how this happened. And here's the chart she came up with. See this big flow chart. And then you say, because Tedro said so right in the corner, that, that kind of trumps everything here. <laughs> But, but to get back to a more serious topic, in the U.S. here, the Biden administration is uh, is mulling the idea of declaring an emergency here in the United States. Uh, Biden administration ways declaring uh, monkeypox a health emergency. There, um, they may name a coordinator, a monkeypox coordinator. That's going to look good on someone's resume, I'm sure. Uh, as early as tomorrow, uh, I have read. And you know, the big question here is. We're talking, what can we do or what is the administration going to do to try to counter this? And that's the vaccine. So we're back to the vaccine route. You well, know, and, every, let's just, every... let, and just let's imagine here, because we just had Pierre Corian, right, talking about this. Mm -hmm. You know, the pharmaceutical lobby is the most powerful lobby in Washington. So they're in everybody's office right now saying you need to declare a state of emergency. And what does that do? It frees us, Pfizer, Sanofi, Moderna, frees all of us up to start making drugs or dreaming about drugs that we can rush out to you and we get to skip all of that expensive and pesky safety trials we can just rush it out because now it's an emergency so you know the right. pharmaceutical industry loves every emergency declaration now they get to try all the different drugs maybe it's for hiccups but shoot let's try it on smallpox because we don't have to do a safety study anymore i mean the whole thing this is what that pressure in government is and i'll kind of be shocked if biden doesn't declare a state of emergency given the amount of controls we see from the pharmaceutical 
pharmaceutical industry in this, you know, in, in the middle of politics. So here we are. Emergency sets everybody free to do whatever they want. Rules out the door. Safety out the door. Efficacy. Who cares? We'll lie about it. And when Tedros, the director general of the WHO, declared this public health emergency, we had during that same press conference, uh, actually right after he talked, there was the head of uh, Global Infectious Hazards Preparedness. He had something to say too. Take a listen. I would like to underline one thing that is very important to WHO. Uh, we do have uncertainties around the effectiveness of these vaccines because they haven't been used in this context and in this scale before. And therefore, uh, we are uh, calling and working with our member state that when these vaccines are being delivered, that they are delivered in the context of uh, clinical trial studies and prospectively collecting this data to increase un our understanding on the effectiveness of these vaccines. Thank you. What was that? Wow. <laughs> wow. Or th then I'm, I'm going to put even more money onto the table that Biden is going to call this emergency because now I get it, right? <laughs> the vaccine may not work at all, probably has side effects we don't know about. And in order to protect everybody, you're going to have to protect them the PrEP Act, right? All the protections like the 1986 Act, PrEP Act protects anything that during emergency, yeah, we didn't know a lot about it, but you can't sue us because it was an emergency. So, right. I mean, and I'm sure that's where this is going now that I recognize the product is potentially a dud and they're admitting it right there. And this just wasn't an isolated concern that was brought up by the WHO or within the confines of that establishment. We have the CDC's own website. Let's go to the website under considerations for monkeypox vaccination. And it reads, there are no data on the efficacy of Genios for PEP and PREP. That's a pre and post exposure to monkeypox. Genios is the vaccine, the monkeypox vaccine from the current outbreak. Although this is also true for ACAM 2000, that's the other vaccine for monkeypox. There is evidence that the related Drivax vaccine worked well during the smallpox eradication period. A side note on that, Drivax was approved in 1931. That's that smallpox <laughs> epidemic. Why? Public health officials have concern about the lack of e efficacy data for Genios, especially because it requires two doses 28 days apart. Um, so that's what you're talking about to elicit, you know, an unknown efficacy response to this. And it, just a side note, the incubation period for monkeypox is known. That's that's the time from that's the interval from infection to the onset of symptoms. It's known to be about five to 21 days. So, okay. you know, this this vaccine's not really even kicking in if it's going to kick in at all for, you know, we're talking about at least three weeks to four weeks, uh, according right. to this, 28 days apart. So right. well, that, we have these so two you get your second shot, and then how long to that second shot actually works. And then we're back to the Geert Van and Bosch question. If you're vaccinating during a pandemic, how effective is it going to be? You're having a suboptimal response in your antibodies with that first shot. And now you come in contact with monkeypox. What does that do? I mean, it's, it's a whole right. can of worms, none of which has ever really been studied prior to COVID. So now we're going round two. Let's try vaccinating in the middle of a pandemic again. Right. And we have this Genius vaccine. We're being told there's shortages of it. So the other one that was approved in 2007 by the FDA, that's ACAM 2000. Let's look what the FDA has to say about that. It says adverse events following ACAM 2000, including myopericarditis or vaccinia virus transmission to household contacts can be serious. There's a high rate of uh, a higher percentage of uh, myopericarditis with this vaccine. It's one of the reasons the Genius vaccine was brought in, although it still showed some higher troponin levels. But 
let's and these are live virus vaccines right i mean technically it's the same vaccine that they would use for smallpox right i mean it's an orthopox but we're literally i mean these these live virus vaccines can be problematic they can you know end up being shedded spread we just saw the first case of polio in america because of such a vaccine someone that got vaccinated for polio brought it infected someone here i believe it was in new york so there's an issue here makes me a little bit nervous especially when they're saying we don't know a lot about it now you're going to give it a bunch of people running around me and my children all over the place and, you know, we look at the U.S., how could the U.S. be caught so flat-footed with this it, it, with this vaccine rollout, really? I mean, we're, we're told that we have these stockpiles. And let's look back to 2013. This was Bavarian Nordic. This was um, their, their press release. This is the, the company that makes the Genios vaccine. And they say monkeypox vaccine for, from Bavarian Nordic wins EU approval. So they have the EU approval, but they also have, in the United States, Bavarian Nordic completes delivery of 20 million doses of Evamune, that's the smallpox vaccine, Genios, to the U.S. Strategic National Stockpile. And it says in here, again, 2013, this order completion is the result of a decade-long research and development partnership between Bavaria Nordic and the U.S. government and fulfills the, uh, the original contract awarded in 2007, valued at USD 549 million. It goes on to say, in April, the U.S. government awarded Bavaria Nordic a nuke contract valued at up to USD 228 million to supply 8 million additional doses of Evamune needed to maintain the 20 million dose stockpile over time. So let's do a little math here. We're at 777 million around 2013 when that was done. So now all of which, let me let all of which, by the way, let's point out since we now have the WHO saying, I just want to warn everybody, you're really a part of a giant clinical trial because we have no idea if this thing's actually going to work. So what I know for a fact that statement is out of the $770 million my country has given you, none of that went to doing a proper efficacy study. None of that went to a proper safety study. You're still telling me it's unknown. So you're just pocketing the cash instead of doing the work, the true R&D, to make sure this freaking thing actually works. Two decades they had, and I have a little more bad news on that front for you. So let's go to a 2020 press release. This is BARDA invests another 83 million into Bavarian (laughs) Nordic's smallpox vaccine. It goes on in there to say this follows a $106 million investment into the vaccine made in April. So now we're up to about 966 million. The Biden administration just bought about 2.5 million more for over 100 million. I think it was 116 million. So we're over a billion dollars invested in this vaccine so far. And to your point, doesn't seem like there's much in R&D and the research part of it for efficacy. So now when the green light comes, the second we need this thing, we have statements from the WHO, the CDC saying, we really don't know the effectiveness of this thing, but we're going to try right. and you're in the clinical trial. Congratulations. And as we saw with, you know, just to end this up for a second, as we saw with uh, the, the COVID outbreak, more testing meant more cases. So this is probably, if I was a betting man, what we're going to look at here. U.S. monkeypox cases jump as testing increases. The Biden administration um, has freed up five national labs, Abbott labs, other labs. Um, it's kind of the same players in the COVID-19 pandemic to do these testing. Before that, everyone had to send it to the central repository at the CDC and wait for the results to come back. So now that's what we're looking at. But let's Man, look at some of the stuff. it is a great decade for lab you know, for laboratory work. I mean, I wish I'd invested. Someone told me the PCR test was going to, you know, is the future, man. Billions to be made there. Who'd have seen that coming? 
a test that doesn't even work too well. Right. It's going to make a lot of money. So let's look at the studies. We have one of the first studies out of the New England Journal of Medicine looking at this current outbreak. Um, this is monkeypox virus infection in humans across 16 countries, April to June 2022. This is looking at 528 people between those times in 16 countries. And the authors write this. Overall, 98% of the persons with infection were gay or bisexual men. 75% were white and 41% had human immunodeficiency virus infection. The median age was 38 years. Transmission was suspected to have occurred through sexual activity in 95% of persons with infection. And that's what the science is saying so far. I mean, that's really the elephant in the room. And this is what I find so interesting about this conversation. I mean, we live at this time now where I don't even know what pronouns, you know, you're supposed to be being spoken to about. Like, how do we talk about, you know, uh, our genders, our preferences and all of this. But let's just sort of get to the focus here. I mean, there really is a group of people that are at risk here. And here's my problem. I don't want to, I'm not in this group. I wasn't in the elderly group that was at risk for COVID. I was in the healthy group, the ones that were all asymptomatic. I do not want to see this turn into a situation where I'm suddenly going to have to do something and change my life because this is affecting a very specific group of people. Now look, if that group of people wants to line up and get a vaccine that's never been tested, that's your choice. This is the United States of America. What scares me is emergency use authorizations, this decision that vaccines only work if everybody on the planet gets it, so that we create the herd that like protects everybody. So, you know, and I, I read an article in The Guardian that really kind of states it plainly. And here's, you know, what do we talk about? I literally screamed out loud in pain my two weeks of monkeypox hell written by a New Yorker describes as harrowing ordeal to receive care through a system under uh, under equipped to handle another pandemic. But here's the part of he says, I had sex with several guys over the weekend, then a week later on the 1st of July, I started feeling fatigued. I had a high fever with chills and muscle aches, and my lymph nodes were so swollen they were protruding two inches out of my throat. Now, here's the thing. Like, you said it, right? Monkeypox has an incubation period of roughly five to 21 days or so, and then you have the pustules, and then they go away. Now, my understanding is you have to be symptomatic to be spreading this thing. Is that is that the case? Is that mostly what we know about it? Oh, you're, you're, did you mute or do, okay, there we go. Go ahead. Yeah, they are finding some evidence of asymptomatic, but the okay. studies are really not out there at this point for that. All right. But isn't it, I mean, you know, look, I don't like to tell anyone what to do. This is, I am all about, you know, every man for himself, but you're creating a situation where now we're getting WHO announcements that this is an emergency. We have our own president making announcements about an emergency. And I want to know how far this goes, because it seems to me that, you know, what would be really nice is if for like the next, I don't know, 28 days or so, if everybody in a community where men are, you know, sleeping with other men, that perhaps why don't we just chill out for a second? Can we just chill out for a moment? I know I'm probably going to get attack mail like crazy, but, you know, every once in a while, I fast once a year. Like, I don't need any food for a little while just to, like, regenerate, you know, some biome, change it up. You know, is there anything wrong with maybe just a little bit, like, hold off on, you know, a little celibacy for just a little while so we can let this thing go away before they end up locking us all down, masking us, putting my children through hell, stopping down airports, destroying my jobs, and then forcing me to take a product that has nothing to do with me. All right. I've said it. Go ahead. Attack me. <laughs> well, but no, that's what's going for, through my mind while all this is happening. For once, <laughs> I think you and the WHO are on the same side of the fence. This just came out right before we went on air. WHO advises men who have sex with men to limit partners 
amid monkeypox. So that is the official Good. statement now from the WHO. Um, it doesn't seem too radical, and that is that is the advice at this point. So we'll see if the Biden administration does call this an emergency here in the U.S. But moving over to uh, another kind of emergency of a different of a different. Uh, route, I guess you'd want to yeah. call it. We covered the Netherlands uh, about two weeks ago. Those farmers were up in arms because of a climate push that the government was doing. They wanted them to have a large percentage of uh, emissions from fertilizers cut, which meant life, yeah. getting rid of livestock. And so we're seeing that same push here in Canada with Trudeau and his administration. And what's happening in Canada, this just last week, um, and now it's it's kind of running really fast. Here's the headline. Farmers feel ignored as Trudeau government pushes them to reduce emissions. This is emissions of nitrous oxide fertilizer. So when they put fertilizer on the ground, it releases this. And then also with the manure and the urine from cows, that that's releasing that as well. And so it says in the article here, there was no prior consultation. There has been no modeling or analysis provided to explain this 30% target. It appears to have been pulled out of thin air, one industry source said. In fact, the reduction target wasn't even developed by Agriculture Canada. It was the work of Environmental and Climate Change Canada, which is why neither farmer nor industry groups were consulted. And sure enough, days after that, the headlines look like this, as they did in the Netherlands. Trudeau fertilizer emissions plan sparks backlash from farmers and provinces. So we have Alberta, we have Edmonton, we have Ottawa. There's some footage of uh, farmers protesting. We have semis, we, uh, basically people, they're waving both flags in unison. We have the, the Netherlands flag, we have the Canadian flag, and people are not gonna have this. And you can see them, again, stopping up cities, stopping up roadways, uh, just like they're doing in the Netherlands. A lot of people are not happy with this. Uh, really, first and foremost, we have a lot of the um, the administrators, um, government officials, and this was in Alberta and Saskatchewan. They put out a joint statement. Uh, governments of Saskatchewan and Alberta disappointed in federal target for fertilizer emissions reductions. And they say in here, quote, this has been the most expensive crop anyone has put in following a very difficult year on the prairies, Alberta Minister of Agriculture Nate Horner said. The world is looking for Canada to increase production and be a solution to global food shortages. The federal government needs to display that they understand this. They owe it to our producers. So remember, this is the agenda 2030. This is trying to get yeah. to net zero. And number one, the number one tenet of agenda 2030 is end world hunger. So we're, we're kind of scratching our head here by saying that, you know, this global food shortage, people are looking at Canada for this and Canada's cutting its farmers. Right. Now, this has been a conversation that's been going on in the background for a couple of years. Will they do this? Will the government put these cuts in? And this is in 2021, the, uh, the Western Canadian Wheat Growers Association, they have, they put this uh, newsletter out, analysis of proposed fertilizer emissions reductions will devastate Canadian farmers. They did an analysis and they said if Canada adopts the EU model, which it now has, the potential economic impact of reduced fertilizer use would be devastating to Canadian farmers. The calculations show that by 2030, the Prairie Provinces will have the following losses. Alberta, 2.95 billion. Saskatchewan, 4.61 billion. Manitoba, 1.58 billion. And this is losses to their corn and spring wheat and canola. Um, just devastating, devastating uh, losses. And who is really speaking up? Well, we have we have these industry groups speaking up. We have some members here and there, but we have a member of the Canadian Parliament. She also has a master's degree in environmental studies and a law degree, Leslyn Lewis. She's been doing local talks to really raise the alarm and try to tell people what they're signing on to for this and what net zero actually is and what it looks like. Take a listen. Right. This whole net zero is a, nobody has ever asked 
to define net zero. And that's what the farmers are fighting over right now because the government of Holland and Sri Lanka and, and here has defined net zero. And I'm going to give you an example. You eat a piece of steak. That steak, the carbon footprint is calculated by every single thing that that cattle consumed up until you ate it and then the fact that you ate it. That's, that's what the carbon footprint is. And so the nitrogen in the soil, the feed, the transportation of the feed, everything is calculated. And then they do an equation and then they say it's not sustainable. And the problem is, is that even for agricultural production, where farmers have gone to even zero um, tillage and have invested in technology, and they thought that that would have been enough, and that's what the, the, the government in Holland said, that would have been enough. Then they changed the rules and they said, no, it's not enough. All that money you invested, I'm sorry, it still doesn't meet net zero. And that's the problem because a net zero calculation is almost like it's sorcery almost because when you look at an electric car and if you're going to do a net zero calculation on an electric car and you look at a cobalt mine or even a computer too, a cobalt mine or a lithium mine and you look at the degradation of that and then you look at the fact that five-year-old African children are working in those mines and you then you look at the battery in an electric car and how it gets disposed of afterwards and the years that it would take to break down that battery and you do a carbon footprint on that, you would see that that is far more damaging than agriculture. But it's agriculture what is being attacked and that's why I believe that there's an agenda. She makes such a good point here. And again, I wanna tell everybody to just be totally honest uh, I grew up a progressive liberal from Boulder, Colorado. I still consider myself an environmentalist in the old sense of the word, which I want clean air, I want clean water, um, I want you know healthy, clean food for my children. I want all you know a world where my kids can fish and eat the fish and not have to be totally filled with poisons, toxic uh, chemicals, and heavy metals. So I believe in that. But the point she's making is is a good one. Like you are just picking and choosing. I said the last time we talked about this fertilizer shortage, all right, I get there's some issues there, but where's the discussion of glyphosate? How about stop spraying this deadly chemical that causes non-Hodgkin lymphoma? They're not saying that. So she's right. There's an agenda. This isn't, this isn't really about health or a healthy environment. You're all lying. And then she talks about, you know, the electric cars. I'm not against trying to create new ways to move things. I think the electric car is very interesting, but we should be looking at the batteries. And my thing is this, you know, ultimately you have a battery driven car and we're, I'm in Texas. We have, we have a serious, you know, drought. We have heat issues in Arizona, even in the UK, California, all these places where, what are they saying? You know what? Limit the use, your electrical use. You got to limit the use of your air conditioners. We don't want to blow the grid, but by the way, go out and put, you know, a million electric cars on our grid. It makes absolutely no sense. These people aren't making any sense.
And, and she makes some great points in there. And I looked into the, the lithium part about the batteries and Chile is has one of the world's largest, if not the world's largest lithium reserves. And they're extracted through this, this method. It's a water intensive method of evaporation of the brines found beneath the salt flats of something called the Atacama Desert Salt Flats. And I think we have an image of this I, I had sent over and th there's brine pools and processing areas. And th there's a picture of it right there. And yeah. so this is basically in a desert. And what is it doing? And they need a lot of water to do this. And they're, they're using the local water to do to do these things. And what has that done is headline here, lithium mining is leaving Chile's indigenous communities high and dry, literally. And it's a really interesting wow. article to read there. The quotes are, are, are really uh, heroin quotes of just people having to bottle in water now and, w and just wait for trucks to deliver their water because the local water is being used for this. But then uh, it reminds me of fracking, by the way, like I remember yeah. at, like I, I voted for uh, President Obama, you know, I was really excited. I was in the environment and oh, the, the great idea there was fracking. Let's like frack and get natural gas and all of these things. Obama says fracking can be a bridge to clean energy future. Well, it wasn't that simple as the Washington Post pointed out. And what do we see? We saw his vice president saying during the election, I'm going to stop all fracking. That's a terrible idea. You know, we're destroying the environment. We're destroying all the water that's being used to frack. All things that are true, but guess whose stupid idea that was? So great idea yesterday, terrible idea today. This is what we're talking about. Vaccine, great idea today, terrible idea tomorrow. I mean, I'm this is again, these people are making terrible, terrible decisions, yet they're enforcing them, they're pushing them upon us without a place to go. Right. And what Leslie Lewis said about child labor, I thought, wow, that that's really sounds like an explosive yep. claim she just made. And I looked into that. So to make these batteries, not only do you need lithium, but you need cobalt. And here's something written up from Amnesty International. This was written up about uh, several years ago, but exposed child labor behind smartphones and electric car batteries. And it said in 2014, approximately 40,000 children worked in mines across uh, Southern Democratic Republic of Congo, many of them mining cobalt, according to UNICEF. Now that was then, we know that the globe, the, the, the slowdown has killed economies. So how many of these kids are working Working just to just put food in their mouths and their families' mouths right now. But don't worry, the World Economic Forum has a solution, Dell, and they just published it on their own website. And here it is, three circular economy approaches to reduce demand for critical metals as we make this transition. What's number one? Go from owning to using. Another word to say that, go from owning to renting. Yeah. Number two and three are basically just use old stuff and repair it. So you know, while we climb into our private jets and laugh at you from our gigantic ships out in the ocean, uh, go ahead and reduce yourself down to all the rusted things you had. And if you need something nicer than that, we'll rent it to you for a little while. Right. And now let's look at the other countries. So Netherlands, we're going to keep an update on this because this is, again, rolling stories. As we continue to report on this, more countries are signing on to these these climate reductions and emissions. This was written in their in their paper in the Netherlands. It was translated. We posted and broke it at the high wire here. This is the headline Dutch Ministry of Finance report. 11,200 farmers must stop 17,600 uh, reduced livestock by third to a half. This was an internal document by the Minister of Finance that was forced into the public by uh, the members of parliament uh, requesting this. And this is basically what it said. This was translated. The current nitrogen strategy of the cabinet will mean, according to the calculations of the Ministry of Finance, that 11,200 farmer businesses must be stopped and another 17,600 farmers will have to significantly reduce their livestock by a third to almost a half. The calculations were published on Wednesday afternoon to show how hard the agricultural sector, a total of 40 
thousand to fifty thousand farmers with cattle is affected by the nitrogen fertilizer plans of the cabinet. So again, just massive reductions already on a on the back of a global downturn right. from COVID food uh, shortages, we have these. And the same thing's happening in the UK. People, you know, you got to start scratching your head when you read these headlines. British farmers are being offered a lump sum payment to leave the industry, but at what cost to agriculture? And this is the UK's own website. Here it is right here. How to apply for a lump sum payment to leave or retire from farming. And it goes on to say, before you receive the lump sum payment, you must do all of the following. Transfer your agriculture land to England, but you can keep up to five hectares acres or plant it with trees under a woodland creation scheme. Transfer grazing and penage rights you have on common land in England where required, give up, surrender your English BPS entitlement. So basically get the heck out of here because, you know, the, and maybe if you change your mind in the future, deal. we'll rent it back to you. I mean, like the whole right. thing is so disturbing. Uh, the farmers are the problem. Farmers are not, you know, not all of the I industries that are tracking us and tracing us or causing problems around the world or starting wars. It's the farmers, those people that are out there digging the dirt, bringing us our food. And what? where's our food going to come from? And like you said, the whole place to stop global hunger. Yet the very people saying that are literally paying people to shut down their farms so that they don't grow anything. Right. We're under right. attack, man. I mean, that's that, I don't know how else to see it by some really, really stupid, sinister, dark, strange, I don't know how to call, I can't even put them people, uh, entities. Yeah, and, and Dell, one of the things that I found interesting, you and I had talked about this, is that it, it just a couple months ago, we were reporting on the war in Ukraine right. and Russia causing a fertilizer slowdown. We're going through this, we're unpacking this, but you know, it's really important for people to be realistic about yeah. what possibly might be happening here. So I, I pulled some more you know, data points on this story as it's moving forward and developing. So this is out of Bloomberg talking about Russian fertilizer. So Russia jolts global fertilizer market by seeking end to exports. So uh, the Ministry of Industry and Trade in Russia uh, is urged their Russian fertilizer producers cut volumes to farmers due to the delivery issues because of uh, what's happening there. And let's look at one of, the one of the images from this article here, just to give you an idea. So here we have, uh, Russia is 9 million metric tons. Belarus is 8 million metric tons. Together, it's about 17 metric tons of, uh, of uh, potash. It's the, the fertilizer that they are exporting. Interestingly enough, at the bottom there, Brazil is the world's largest importer of fertilizer. And so they they're an, they're one of the they lead the globe in uh, exports of soybeans, coffee, sugar. So that's that's on the uh, the docket too. As they do not get these fertilizers coming in, the exports of uh, soybeans, coffee, and sugar are you know people are keeping an eye on that as expected to go up as well because this is all interconnected in this in this food chain. Wow. You know, it's really weird to look at that now under the circumstances. We talked about Sri Lanka is now revolting because they can't use fertilizer. They're having to get rid of cattle. We're talking about the Netherlands. You know, we're looking at Canada now. All of those countries are basically saying to farmers, we are not going to allow you by law to use the amount of fertilizer. You've got to re reduce nitrogen. Yet, as you pointed out, we were reporting here in America, there was no fertilizer available. Oh, there's a shortage, you know, so farmers are going to have to find another way to grow because we have a, 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 a shortage of the stuff coming out of Russia. I mean, 
but you realize it all suits the same agenda, right? It all suits the agenda of reducing nitrogen. And I mean, you really have to ask yourself, is this just two sides of the same coin or the exact same story? In the countries where you don't have freedom, where you don't have a First Amendment or a Second Amendment, we're just going to tell you straight up, we're denying you the use of fertilizer. You're not going to get to use it because we signed on with Klaus Schwab and we're going to reduce it by 30% or what have you. But in the United States of America, where you have a First Amendment right and you might just own a gun, uh, we're probably not going to just try to tell you what to do. We're just going to lie to you. We're all out of fertilizer. There's none available. You can't get to it. So you're going to have to figure out another way to farm. I mean, it really makes you wonder if we're just in America, we just be lied to. We're in other countries that don't have our same freedoms. They tell them the truth because there's nothing they can do about it. I don't know. This is right. <laughs> suspicious. Same, same results either way. Reduction right, in fertilizer. Absolutely. It's, it seems like the same uh, story we were given with the gasoline shortage, that's Russia's fault. But at the same time, they're coming out on the other side of the mouth and saying, this is a great, great transition to electric cars that we've been waiting for forever. So yeah. you got to really start digging in these stories to find the truth. And um, hopefully we can present enough of the information to where we can find it together with the audience. Absolutely. Great job, Jeffrey. Amazing stuff. Lots of information there. Um, just I, I love the work you're doing. Well, we'll see what you got right. next week. Take care. All right, Del. Thanks. You know, it's interesting when you look at the Jackson report and they're sitting there saying, well, wait a second, the 2030 agenda says you want to end world hunger on one hand, but then you want to reduce nitrogen and you have this zero carbon or zero emissions agenda. And it's like, well, there's one thing you might be overlooking to that, Dell and, and Jeffrey, or maybe they just don't want to have to go into some of those details and I understand, but admitted by many of those that support the World Economic Forum, either in their business ventures or as consultants on the outside. Depopulation. What other way? Like, how, how can you at the same time reduce food production dramatically and end world hunger? So, I mean, it's in, that's the scary thing to consider about what these, what these, these groups, these elites, these billionaires that own these multinational corporations that have such power and influence over most industry throughout the entire world and most of the technology we use, like this is what, this is how they think. We'll merge with machines, we'll limit population. Uh, at the same time, we'll have this, uh, you know, zero emissions agenda and we'll continue to push the climate narrative I, I thought you know a, a lot of pieces sort of align there where it's like well how many ex the ukraine war has become one of the most convenient narratives most convenient excuses one can imagine inflation uh fertilizer exports of grain which by the way they are not the top producer of grain it affects certainly the middle east and like africa for example but this idea that they are essentially the world's breadbasket for graining only for grain, that's not true. Same way with oil, where they make it seem like as though they're the only exporter of crude oil. And that's not true. We get 3 to 7%, um, depending on chart you look at and the metrics involved of crude from Russia, for example. So they're using the smokescreen of Russia, in other words, Russia and Ukraine, to hide the 2030 agenda that they're accelerating behind the scenes. And that's, it's clear what's going on. Um, the fact that's happening and it's rolling out in lockstep, nation to nation, all at the same time in ubiquity. I mean, that's a little bit suspicious as well.
And one has to wonder uh, what enabling legislation is down the road in America that'll be fought on, fought within the, between uh, Congress and the Senate and the president. We'll have to see what happens with all that nonsense. But what are you looking up there, Rich? I see your I was giving typing. LD mixed signals to the control room. <clears throat> okay. I was like, I want this. I want this Jake Tran next, uh, mm -hmm. this, this video about cobalt and how they mine cobalt because that was brought up. But my other note, my earlier note from the Jackson report was, Web, by the way, was from Chile. I, and she was talking about some of those mining issues. I wanted to play the Rick Smith, Barta, Milken Institute clip where they mm -hmm. said, if we if only we had an emergency, we could go from making these vaccines from the chicken eggs and use the new mRNA technology. But unfortunately, we got too much bureaucracy and that's not going to happen. Right. And then the pandemic comes, <clears throat> they get emergency authorization and they move all that forward before with, that. So there's one piece in that. Go you got everything right. But there's one more piece, I think. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think after that Nelkin Institute 2019, a couple of months afterwards, that uh President Trump signs the Vaccine Modernization Act. And then you have the pandemic after that, I think. He signs that in September, that. I think, of, September 2019. of 2019. Which I think the Institute happened before that. I don't know, though. That, yeah, and Barta might have been in, in charge. So we can go executive orders, Trump executive order, September 2019. And it would be uh, that vaccine yeah, look act. That yeah. uh, but anyway. I was I'll looking look for the right Rick now. Smith Barta clip because they state their agenda and it's very similar to what Jeffrey and Dell just covered. And so when they were talking about that first part, I was like, people, this would, this would resonate. This is a clip that goes with that topic and talks about sometimes how they have to work outside the boundaries of the rules. And we'll find that clip in a second. So this was from 2019, right? Yes. I believe uh, it was 2019. Yeah, I know we we have we played it somewhere back there. I'm looking at their playlist on the Milken Institute web. Uh, All right, YouTube. so how about we reserve the yeah, idea of find. that clip? We'll play the next clip, which is uh, how these how these kids are used to mine the cobalt and the coal tan. Cobalt and coal tan are two key ingredients in all this green ecostructure, battery powered, everything from the coal powered and nuclear powered electric plants that don't somehow equate in that carbon zero equation. It seems like only thing demonized is things that keep people autonomous, like fuel and food. Seems like those things, persona non grata, what's well, not persona, uh, vegetable non grata. But it's, 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 it's all Putin's fault, man. It's all Putin's fault. Yeah. If something Inflation. befell Putin, I'm sure it, all, it would all go away. Not. War. All right. So people are aware of blood diamonds. I mean, that's the propagandized Beer version shortened. of the story. The real blood diamonds are the Cecil Rhodes to beer official ones with the, that's the micro stamps and stuff on them. But this is going to be a similar uh, theme. People who think they're all green and eco-friendly and solar panels and electric cars and all this get rid of uh, coal power plants and electricity from traditional sources. We're going to use wind and all these other things. I'm, I'm, it's not it's, it's not eco-friendly. It's not carbon no. neutral. It's a big scam being pulled oh, over everyone's no. eyes. Oh. And when you see how coal tan, a coal tar and cobalt are mined by kids in Africa, maybe you have a second thought about that Tesla or whatever else. And you might say, you know what, at least dealing with the Saudis, Saudis aren't perfect, 
but getting oil out of the ground over there is not a whole bunch of child labor in Africa for generation after generation after generation to poison the earth forever with these things that they develop in these, uh, you know, we just saw that DuPont documentary that uh, Jake Tran did a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. So these permanent toxins being created in our environment, do we need uh, nonstick cookware that bad? I don't think so. I think it's okay to use a scouring pan and, you know, scouring pad and clean the pan. Also, use carbon steel and season it, or use polymerized cast iron. So we're going to go to a a short, like a mini documentary, less than 20 minutes on cobalt and things that uh, people in America supporting the green agenda should probably be informed about because that's your agenda, right? We, We know about this. It's not even our agenda. So let's check it out. We'll share it. And then we'll uh, have some more thoughts on Rick Smith, Barda, and the Milken Institute and their plan to expedite mRNA vaccines before the pandemic. So you're a multi-million dollar cobalt refiner. You sell refined cobalt, an essential metal used to create batteries in smartphones, electric cars, and laptops to companies like Tesla, Apple, Samsung, and Microsoft. Your business is responsible for feeding the world's constant need for the latest tech. Without you, all these new devices, iPads, smartwatches, and electric vehicles, they wouldn't exist. They wouldn't have even been invented. You see, 15, 20, 25 years ago, cobalt mines were not in a good spot. They were losing money, going bankrupt, and closing down all over the place. People had known about lithium-ion batteries for years, the rechargeable batteries used in electronics today, but back then, phones and desktop computers still had to be plugged in. There was no real demand for these batteries. But then came the tech boom. We were designing this product for, for the people that loved the iMac, but they wanted to take it with them everywhere. In the late 90s and early 2000s, companies like Motorola, Apple, and Microsoft started marketing all these new rechargeable devices. Excuse me, sir. Do you have a cellular phone? Why, yes, I do. Oh, so do I. <laughs> Suddenly, everyone had to have cell phones. They had to have laptops. And at the center of it all was cobalt. Every new laptop and cell phone had cobalt in its batteries. Without it, the battery wouldn't last that long, or it could even catch on fire. And since the 90s, demand for cobalt has skyrocketed. In 2011, a pound of cobalt costs around $18. Today, that same pound of cobalt costs around $32. And it is not slowing down anytime soon. Not when electric cars are set to take over the world. And that's where you come in, the cobalt refinery. The Democratic Republic of Congo produces over 70% of the world's cobalt. And like other African countries filled with corruption, this has given you an opportunity like no other. You see, you could go buy cobalt directly from legit international mining companies in the Congo. That would be the legal, more ethical thing to do. But it wouldn't make you the most profits. These companies charge standard prices for their cobalt. They're not leaving you any wiggle room for negotiation. So instead, you use an alternative. A much easier way to get your hands on dirt cheap cobalt to rake in more profit than you could ever imagine. I'm talking about, of course, informal mines. Mines dug by regular Congolese people, with no safety equipment, no medical insurance, no sick leave, with a very diverse workforce. A workforce made up of everyone from 4-year-old kids to 80-year-old grandmas. That's right, I'm talking about child labor. The cheapest, easiest route to buying cobalt for the lowest prices possible. The local government calls it artisanal mining, a very nice sounding name for one of the deadliest industries in the country. But why should you care? You sit thousands of miles away from the Congo. You're not worried about kids dying in mine shafts or working themselves to death. For you, it's all about the numbers. 
And as long as the world is too obsessed with the newest iPhone, you're gonna keep raking in billions. My name is Jake Tran. I make documentaries on money, power, war, and crime with my team. If you wanna win $1,000 cash, all you have to do is follow me on Instagram at Jake Tran and you're automatically entered. Watch out for fake accounts. I would never message you asking for money or to invest. And this is Blood Cobalt. Imagine if you had insider knowledge about EVs way before everyone else knew how big the EV industry would become. You could have built your own EV empire or invested in one before everyone else, making you billions. But big trends like this that change the world are hard to spot. So if you want to know where the world is really headed so you can act on the next big trend, you need a trusted source. You need your own insider, so to speak. June 2014, a Congolese man living in a small town starts digging a hole in his backyard. According to his neighbors, he was planning on building a new toilet. About eight feet down, he discovers something strange. His shovel hits a slab of hard rock. As he struggles to get the slab out of his way, he notices something else. This isn't just any old rock. It contains cobalt. The gray stone is streaked with bright turquoise and black. If he could get it out of the ground without anyone else noticing, he would be rich. So, the man went back inside like nothing happened. But when evening came, he pulled up the tiles of his living room and started digging from there. No one could ever have guessed what he found. Their only clue were the loud clanging noises coming from the house as soon as the sun set. Then one day, annoyed by all the noise coming from the house, the landlord arrived. He and the man had an argument, and the man fled into the night. In the few months he mined for cobalt, he had made almost $10,000. In a country where most families live off less than $2 a day, that was a small fortune. Not long after, the news was out, and everyone in that same town was digging for cobalt too. They made holes in their yards, in their living rooms, and even in their kitchens. It was like if you discovered gold or oil beneath your home. And it was human nature to try to find it, no matter the risks. Even though what they were doing was illegal, no one in the town cared. They weren't going to just sit there knowing unimaginable wealth lay just eight feet under their kitchen tables. The Democratic Republic of Congo, or DRC, happens to be home to the world's largest supply of cobalt, but the country is also one of the poorest in the world. They don't have the expensive equipment needed to get the cobalt out of the ground safely and efficiently. So much like poor oil countries, international mining companies came in and struck a deal with the government to mine the cobalt out for them. But just like poor oil countries, none of that money really trickled down to the Congolese people. In most cases, even if you manage to get a job in one of these globally recognized mines, you'll only barely scrape by. The Congolese people were left to suffer while transnational corporations were sucking their country dry of their most valuable resource. So instead of hoping to one day be employed by Glencore or some other mining company, groups of Congolese men, known as Kusers, create their own. These artisanal mining ventures, as they called it, started way back in 1998. After the president of the DRC let corruption destroy the country's only state-owned mine, he actually told the Congolese people to mine for cobalt themselves. And that's what they did. The Kusas would pretty much form cartels with the boss, workers, and control of specific territories. 
But unlike regulated mines that answer to international standards, the Cousseurs didn't have to care about pesky things like human rights, employment benefits, or security. All they had to care about was exploiting their own people instead of letting the international conglomerates exploit their people for them. And the most efficient, profitable way to do that? Hire kids, of course. Cobalt might not be toxic to the rest of the world, but to the kids mining in the DRC, it's deadly. Every day, children between the ages of 3 and 18, yes, you heard that right, 3 years old, head out to the artisanal mines. There, they have different jobs depending on their age and skills. While the adult men are the ones digging underground, the youngest boys learn to pick pieces of cobalt rock out of the soil on the surface. The older children carry the sacks. Each sack weighs around 40 kilograms, or nearly 90 pounds. And most of these kids carry around 240 of them a day. For 12, 14, or even 16 hours a day, the kids drag sacks of cobalt from the mine openings to the waiting trucks. Every time these kids breathe, they're inhaling tons of cobalt and dust. If they're lucky enough not to be killed in a mine collapse or die of exhaustion, they will probably end up with cobalt poisoning. Breathing problems, organ damage, blindness, deafness, and heart disease. All of these issues are caused by exposure to cobalt. And there's something these kids have to deal with every day. Doctors say the number of people getting sick is disturbing. We have many young boys and girls coming into us. Sometimes it's injuries from when the mines collapse. Sometimes it's sexually transmitted diseases. People don't wear protective clothing. So in women, we see birth defects and miscarriages from exposure to the metal. And that's not all. Because of the women and girls working in the mines, they have it far worse. Young girls are raped daily. It's hard to give exact number, but we know it happens a lot. You can tell they have been abused by the change in their behavior. Poverty at home forces them to come here. Some aren't even 14 years old and already have children. We are here because we are suffering. We have nothing to eat. The foreign mining companies won't give us jobs. They are getting rich from our minerals, but we stay poor. On this playground from hell, these children destroy their health and risk their lives for less than a dollar a day. But for a millionaire cobalt refiner like yourself, that's exactly how you like it. Once the cobalt is packaged into sacks and carried to trucks, it heads to the nearest cobalt depot. And here's where things get interesting. You see, if you're a global cobalt refiner that sells to reputable companies like Apple and Tesla, you can't just go buying cobalt mined by kids. You'd get fined, canceled, and taken to court in the blink of an eye. Your clients like Apple would also get fined, canceled, etc. So to get your hands on all that cheap cobalt, you need a little plausible deniability. And here's how it works. First, you buy some cobalt from legitimate above-the-board mining companies. You have to explain where you're getting your supply. And if you mention a globally recognized mining company, people aren't going to ask any more questions. Next, you buy from our more sketchy sources, the Clouseos. But here's the thing. If you buy straight from these artisanal miners, it's pretty easy to draw a line from you to the thousands of kids being forced to work in them. 
So you involve middlemen. For collecting cobalt, filling sacks, and carrying them to the trucks, Congolese kids get paid around $1 a day. Each child moves up to 240 sacks every day, which means they earn less than half a cent a sack. Each sack weighs 40 kilograms. That means the kids make less than 25 cents per ton, because 1,000 by 40 would equal 25. The Cluseros sell that same ton of cobalt to Chinese and Indian middlemen for between $500 and $7,000 a ton. And from there, cobalt collected from dozens of mines around the Congo get mixed together and sold to you, the refiner. Depending on the purity, you can get around 150 kilos of pure, refined cobalt from every ton of mined coal rock, dust, and soil. Once it's been refined, you get to sell the cobalt to companies like Tesla, Dell, Apple, and Microsoft for the low price of $80,000 a ton. Even with the middlemen's markup, you're still raking in thousands of dollars more than you would have bought from official mines. And the best part? There's no way anyone can prove you knew you were buying from mines that use kids. These kids are dying for less than a dollar a day while you pocket billions in profit every year. But hey, out of sight, out of mind, right? No one can prove anything. And if anyone in the DRC's government even thinks of saying something, you know just how to shut them up. Here's the thing. The DRC's government doesn't just know kids are mining cobalt. It profits from it. Everyone from government officials to security agencies who control access to mining sites make money from artisanal mining. If Clouseurs want to mine, they have to pay off soldiers and officials. If middlemen want to move their product, they have to bribe the cops to get around. With artisanal cobalt mining turning into such a lucrative business for the government, why would anyone put a stop to it? And the best part? As a cobalt refiner, you get to sell to whoever you want, and they'll never stop buying from you. Even if these huge companies like Apple, Tesla, and Microsoft know the cobalt they use is being mined by kids, they just argue it's not their responsibility to know where the metal comes from. It's yours. We asked these companies whether child-mined cobalt is being used in their products. All acknowledge problems with the supply chain, but say they require their suppliers to follow responsible sourcing guidelines. And when people start asking you questions? Well, look, we get our cobalt from middlemen. How are we supposed to know where it comes from? And all the Congolese kids? Yeah, they get to keep dying so that snobby people in the West with electric cars can be proud of how green they are. Another super sketchy industry is the genetically modified foods and pesticides industry, with the top dog being Monsanto, the company that owns the world's food supply. Just like almost every other business we've covered on this channel, Monsanto started out all innocent and full of potential. Its first real success was actually supplying Coca-Cola with saccharin, an artificial sweetener that helped keep Coke's prices down. That was back in the early 1900s. But from that first win, things kind of spiraled. Monsanto wasn't happy with controlling only one part of the food production industry. Oh no, it wanted total domination. And to get that, it had to resort to creating some of the most harmful chemicals known to man. We're talking Agent Orange, PCBs, and herbicides that kill everything except Monsanto's genetically modified seeds. But they didn't stop there. Instead, they used these powerful herbicides to damage or destroy the crops of any farmer who didn't buy seeds from them. And to make sure that they had a never-ending supply of cash flowing into their coffers, they actually made it impossible to replant any of the seeds farmers got from their Monsanto plants. 
It cost millions of farmers their livelihood to try to keep up with Monsanto's prices and seed licensing programs. But here's the thing. What Monsanto did wasn't really any different from other successful companies or people. They knew they had to step on the little guy to get what they wanted, and they were more than happy to do it. And all of these dark and evil companies that do the same are just as happy to get away with it as long as the masses don't realize the truth. Which is where our private documentary channel comes in. You see, there's actually already a full-length documentary that covers every last detail of Monsanto's evil rise to global domination. But posting it in public would probably get us cancelled. So instead, we created a private, members-only collection of videos with new documentaries being released every month. These are documentaries on everything from Monsanto to MKUltra, the CIA's mind control experiments, Efri Jepstein, and the roots of global terror. These are the kind of videos that would instantly get demonetized in public. They're the darkest, most Machiavellian takes on how the world works. And channel members have been loving them. And all you have to do to get access to all of them right now is hit the join button below. Unlike university, we're not going to charge you $55,000 to $161,000 to learn this stuff. Nope. Just $5 a month for some of our longest, most controversial videos that you won't be able to see anywhere else. Plus, unlike other YouTube memberships, there's a refund policy too. So if you join and you don't think it's worth it, email us within your first month of joining and we will personally refund you for your first month. After your first month, there's no refund option anymore. Because a few bad apples decided to abuse this refund policy. You can follow Jake Tran on his YouTube page. Just search Jake Tran. And uh, I was watching his documentary on Whitey Bulger that he just did. And I was like, mm, I know a little bit. Let me see what I can learn. And <clears throat> I learned that Whitey Bulger was a subject of, uh, see, a lot of people tie him to the FBI. And he was very mm -hmm. closely working with the FBI mm -hmm. for a long time and was missing until they needed to find them. Then they found him. <laughs> when they needed to but prior to his work with the fbi he's a piece of work uh he worked with uh cia he was part of the mk ultra experiments according really? to the documentary yep so it's, it's a very interesting documentary oh. uh that, that jake put together and uh you know i'd seen uh you know the the hollywood recent film about whitey bulger mm -hmm. and then i you know, known a little bit about his uh, his work with who was the former FD uh, uh, Comey? Was it James Comey or was one of the other ones? Uh, I'm thinking it wasn't Comey. It was the other guy. I have to remember his name, but uh, he was missing. And then the FBI director Mueller, maybe it was Mueller. No. He was missing until Mueller needed to find him. And then all of a sudden Mueller was able to find a guy that no one could find for 20 years. All of a sudden, because, yeah, he had a long history working with the FBI and he wasn't an informant. He became like a, a consultant to them and became untouchable in the crime world that he took over uh, from the Sicilian mafia in Boston. So he represented Irish mafia. So yeah, mafia wars. Yeah. And Jake Tran's really good at uh, taking source material, boiling it down into a discernible narrative and then mixing in some, you know, Hollywood nice theatrical B-roll plus some documentary yeah. B-roll. He's got a team, it seems working for him he's got good calls to action he's only like in his mid-20s so he's just getting started uh i look forward to more great things from jake chan and maybe we can get him uh, as a guest on this show i'm not sure if we have the audience big enough to warrant his attention he's a busy guy but we could ask and you never know what happens when you ask my mom always said you don't know until you ask which is kind of wise because people assume and think they know and knowing comes from asking questions and finding answers
just like Jake Tran was demonstrating. Do you see that smooth call to action at the end? He's like, yo, I got stuff. YouTube it's too hot. Come over here. Five bucks. So yeah, support his work. I want to see Good more segue stuff. too. Cause you couldn't yeah. tell where the clip ended and yeah, it right? started. It's like seamless editing. He's, he's very talented. Give All right. Um, let's cover, uh, Kim Iverson is no longer at the view. I'm not Did you want to hit this, whoa, this whoa, Milken whoa. Institute? The Hill. The Hill. Yes. Let's hit the Milken Institute because I, I blew that introduction to that video. So let's go back. <laughs> Remember back when Dell was talking to Jeffrey Jackson and they were talking about, you know, uh, uh, Barda and the, the replication of uh, the vaccine cultures in chicken eggs because chicken eggs, there's a lot of bird flu out there. They need a better way, but they didn't have a reason to have a better way. They indicate that bureaucracy was was keeping them from having a better way. And all of a sudden pandemic shows up, meets all the criteria on the wish list. They get to get this new technology into everybody. You just heard the guy from the UN say that the swine or not the, uh, the smallpox monkeypox vaccine that they're going to put in people. They don't know what it's going to do. They're going to study it live. They do it live instead of having trials and tests. I mean, that they was also real world data, real world, real data. world data. They're just getting us doing it live. You don't, don't need the randomized control trials. Anymore. So to the same extent that they're just doing it live, this is uh, Tony Fauci and Rick Smith from Barta. Rick Bright. And they're Rick, Rick Bright. Bright. Thank you. That's right. Rick Bright. Sorry, Rick Smith. There's 10,000 of them out there now. Rick Bright. <laughs> there are. There's a lot of. Uh, I'm not denying. And the guy from the New York Times. So always forget his name. Um, Michael Sp- Michael Spector. Yeah, yes. So it's New Yorker. Oh, yes, yes. The New Yorker. Yes, yeah, right. New Yorker. Let's get our facts straight, gentlemen. New York. We're doing it live. We can't be sloppy in our journalism. We'll learn about that during intermission. All right. So, um, well, where do we want to pick up? Because uh, Rick Bright uh, appears get, about sorry. eight minutes in, but uh, Spector and Fauci speak well, right before that. Go ahead and let. Uh, so I gave you the longer the journal- clip. There, are, there are smaller clips I could give you from that, but I wasn't no, let sure. Let the journalist ask the question. We don't want to cut any context or make it look like we're editing this video. And so let the journalist from the New Yorker um, ask the question, let Fauci give an answer. And then what we're looking for is the part where Rick Bright from Barda uh, is talking with them about uh, moving to this mRNA type based platform because the chicken, chicken egg vaccine production lines take too long to respond to a modern pandemic. If I remember correctly, I mean, it's been a long time since I've seen this clip. That's why we're going to watch it and see it in its context so that we can actually gain some knowledge about real things that happened in this world. That's the point. All right. I'll pick it up from the beginning and we'll see where we're at. Cool. So we really do have a problem of how the world perceives influenza. And it's going to be very difficult to change that unless you do it from within and say, I don't care what your perception is, we're gonna address the problem in a disruptive way and in an iterative way, because you do need both. We move towards the era of synthetic-based vaccines. I think we remove the dependencies of thinking the vaccine has to be something that we have to grow, grow into something else, in an egg, in a cell, or an insect cell, any type of dependency on growth. If we can move into more synthetic, the nucleic acid-based, messenger RNA-based, those sequences can be rapidly shared around the world. Enzymes that can synthesize 
the small fragments of messenger RNA necessary to go into the vaccine can be made in a shoebox size um, system right now, which is translatable into a 3D printer-like or inkjet printer-like thing. Now, putting those in a system to print those on a patch that a self-administered vaccine could happen. The technologies are out there. We haven't demonstrated their true effectiveness and the ability for a vaccine, but it is not too crazy to think that an outbreak of an, a novel avian virus could occur in, in China somewhere. We could get the RNA sequence from that, beam it to a number of regional centers, if not local, if not even in your home at some point, and print those vaccines on a patch and self-administer. We're a ways out, but the technology is there to be adapted, assembled, to put in that futuristic view of a rapid response to an emerging novel threat. I think is the single biggest obstacle. Is it money? Like if we just had a ton of money focused on this problem, would that make it go away? It wouldn't make it go away, but I think uh, an infusion of more resources would bring people into the field that would not normally be into the field because scientists do that. They, they do things that are interesting to them, but they also follow the money. Scientists do that. They, they do things that are interesting to them, but they also follow the money. Well, I'm not a representative of industry, but I'll pretend I'm one. I make a flu vaccine every year, and it sells, and it protects right. people to the degree right. that we so you can have expect. no incentive. Right. Why the hell would I go spend $400 million right. to do this thing, which may be great, and then if it's right. really great, you give it once or twice or right. five times. And, uh, and that's where the federal government comes in. <laughs> well, yeah, no, with, seriously. with all your money. Yeah. No, seriously. What happens is, in fact, you bring up an excellent point. Our responsibility to the public health and not the profit line has to be able to push the process to the point where industry will find it to their benefit to do that. I think if you're going to sit back and wait for a company that's been growing virus and eggs for the last 30 years to spontaneously change without any incentive, without any de-risking, it's just not going to happen. And that's where the federal government comes in. <laughs> well, yeah, no, seriously. With all your money. Yeah. No, seriously. And what was the source of that video? They want to design a better weapon against flu. So uh, some random a... video I found on Odyssey. Sorry. Okay, yeah. so it, all the it world's a stage. C-SPAN footage over many minutes and short. It shortened it. Yeah, yeah, just clarifying for the audience. They clipped it, looked like it did. Cut. We did not edit that video, but somebody did take source so footage fun. and make it watchable in a few minutes. It's like you have to There's state price, the obvious. Quite the profit. Huh? We so, consider yeah. these truths to be self evident because we don't think people in the future are going to be dumber. We just leave it at that and don't explain it. I found that to be a problem in our culture recently. So it seems like we should say the, the, the smart part out loud and explain it to people and make sure we're all on the same page. Tony's cat in the background is high production value. <laughs> no. No. There was, um, if, uh, if you jump into my YouTube production list, LD or Tony, there was a clip from Allison Morrow. Um, she was interviewing a guy 
who was a school board member. He had a cowboy hat on. And then there was a lawyer, constitutional lawyer she was talking to. If we could find that video and play the first 10, 12 minutes of that, it was a really interesting situation. I'm sure it's going on other places around this country. I was stacking bricks in the backyard when I heard parts that are like now kind of seared in my mind. It's like, but it's going on out there. So you have a responsibility as an adult to know about such things and what might be in the child's library at the school. And I'm not a newbie to these topics. So I was like, whoa, that's, that's dark. I saw that so, earlier on your playlist, but I didn't put it on, but yeah. it is like, it's like right at the top of this playlist. I mean, so, yeah, I've got so anyway, I'm not going to, I, I appreciate when Allison said, she's like, I don't want to make this interview into like some pornographic thing by having the description of the thing that's pornographic. So they were very eloquent. I thought it was very well handled, very professional, very journalistic, showing journalistic integrity and ethics and morals and values of American culture. So let's go ahead and, uh, you know, let's sample it, see what we think, because we're all open minded, looking for truth. All right. We have we have one viral video guy and a cowboy. Well, actually, a school board member who looks like a cowboy. I don't know. Maybe, Chad, are you an actual cowboy? You tell me. Well, I, I would think I don't qualify for that since I've never been on a on a uh, moving cow, cow before. Um, <laughs> I've ridden horses on occasion, but not quite a while. I do a lot of hunting and I do a lot of fishing and stuff like that. So, Why do they, just curious, why do they call it cowboy when you ride a horse? Because you're on cows. Because you rope cows. Okay, I guess. Okay, that's not the topic today, but I figured as long as I had you on, I might as well. Well, actually, okay, while, we're, while we're on it, I have actually worked cattle, so technically, I have been a cowboy before. Okay. Well, well we need. I have two, but I was on a three wheeler at the time, so you <laughs> <laughs> don't really say that that's cowboying. So, um, well, I my mm. aspiration someday is that a the the younger horse that I got a year and a half ago will someday be rideable to work cattle. So that's, that's my goal. I want to be a cowgirl second half of life. So anyway, thank you for explaining that. I, I don't know. It, it's, uh, it's always great to have you guys on, especially when um, not only can you film me in on that, but you can film me in on this viral video where you see Paul in the middle of our uh, trio here. He's also in this viral TikTok video, which at the time it was sent to me, got 8 million views. How many are we at now? It's still at eight. It's like at 8.1 or something. They stalled you guys. I got a yeah. million views once on a YouTube video and then it just, it just, it just nosed yeah. down. We got that. That was, I've never had anything like that happen before. What was funny too is after I sat down, I talked to my podcast producer and I was like, you know, we needed, we needed a good moment, a viral moment to raise money for this lawsuit. And I was like, I just don't feel like I, I said anything that was is going to go viral, and then the next day we had eight million views. I was like, "Wow!" <laughs> so okay, so you were planning to try to get this to go to to go take off. Yeah, we definitely okay. wanted. I mean, we wanted something that was going to get people's attention because, I mean, this what's going on in any school district is just outrageous, and it needs to be stopped. And so, and we don't really have a lot of money. A lot of resources to fight this and so we needed a viral moment to get people mm -hmm. to all right let's play it you guys you guys tell me um what's going on here okay 
And then let me know if it, if you can't hear it. Let me back it up. Okay. Our last uh, speaker on the book issue is uh, Paul Davis. Thank you, Paul Davis. I'm a civil rights attorney, and Ms. Stenkel, your outrageous display of tyranny and how you trampled on the rights of uh, the, the public at the last meeting was shocking. I've never seen anything like it. It was like watching something out of a fascist dictatorship. You place an unconstitutional restraint on First Amendment rights by disallowing signs, clapping, comments, and then you and your little pointing stooge over here had people removed physically. Uh, you used the McKinney police as your personal Gestapo uh, to physically remove people that were wearing green. Uh, those same rules were not applied to people wearing blue. For that, we are we have filed a civil rights lawsuit against you, and now my process server is going to serve you with that lawsuit right now, and we are going to hold you accountable. And uh, we, the people, are pissed off. We're not going to put up with this type of behavior anymore. We're not going to have our rights trampled. And this is completely unacceptable from a public official. Thank you. Our last speaker. Okay, Paul. What what was going on there? Well, okay. So Chad and um, a couple of parents from McKinney, uh, McKinney ISD called me back in March and told me about this situation unfolding with the books. And, you know, Chad had been raising the issue of the books and had gotten a lot of pushback. And then apparently they were doing this or they started this investigation into him, which was essentially a witch hunt. And so, you know, I'd never been to a school board meeting before. I'm not a parent. I'm a single 41 year old male. And uh, I was, I went to the April school board meeting. That was from the May, the May meeting, but I've never seen anything like it. I was so disturbed. I felt like, I had like PTSD or something, not to, not to minimize PTSD, but it was just like, it was that shocking to see what happened. I mean, it was, she started this meeting. That was the school board president, Amy Denkel. And she announced, you know, because Chad had a lot of supporters there, a lot of people wearing green. And then there were people wearing blue, which supported her. Um, and this and, is her, right? Yeah, this is Amy okay. Denkel, yeah. So she is, you know, she'll say she's opposed to pornographic books, but she does nothing to remove them and always comes up with excuses and uh, persecutes people who oppose uh, the existence of the books in the schools, including Chad. And so, you know, she started this meeting and says, uh, you know, we're going to, you know, nobody is allowed to clap. Nobody's allowed to say anything like no crowd noise at all. Um, and you can't bring signs in. Um, but that was actually just like displayed outside. You cannot bring signs in. And, um, if basically, if you, if you say anything other than like your time speaking at the podium, or if you clap, you're going to get thrown out of the meeting. And then, I mean, so it was just crazy. It was like people would speak and, and then she, uh, she'd say, if you raise your hand, if you agree with this person, like we're all like in kindergarten or something. So people, you know, raise their hand and, you know, inevitably, people were murmuring and saying things and clapping here and there and both sides were doing it. That was obvious to everybody in the room, but it was just crazy to watch because she had this guy, Robert Montgomery, who's the head of security for um, MISD uh, just pointing. She said, you're going to point people out whoever you point out, the police are going to remove. So he just starts pointing out people on our side, like only people that were wearing green or were obviously opposed to the books. And, they, you know, the police would come up to them and, uh, you know, the first person is Kevin Witt, one of our clients in the lawsuit. And he's just like, this is the United States of America. I have a right to free speech. Like, I'm not leaving. And they they made him leave. They put their hands on him, dragged him out. 
and you know did the same thing to several other people and it was just very very disturbing to watch people removed because of their political view you know it's it's one thing I, you know i've researched this heavily unfortunately you can actually as a school board in these meetings impose those types of rules but what you can't and you can remove people that violate them but you can't do it because of their viewpoint and that's what they were doing here I see. Okay, so let's talk about why you were talking about the blue and the green and the books and all that stuff. And there may be a lot of people watching who are not familiar with what's going on. So, Chad, uh, who are you, and how do you enter this story? And tell us about the books. Uh, well, I'm I'm the only conservative on the school board here in McKinney, and and uh, I try to watch out for the kids. I try to watch out for the voters, and, and try to watch watch for the money and things. I, the the books was really a shock to me. I went in in October with a uh, um, <clears throat> with a parent and uh, actually went into our libraries and found that we did have the books there. And uh, from that point on, you know, I've been threatened by the school board. Uh, they've threatened to have me recalled. Uh, they said, if I do anything else, you know, this is not what they want. Uh, they said that um, <clears throat> I've acted up on too many occasions. Um, so, and it doesn't, it's not just the books. It's, you know, we have a, a high school where a lot of the kids are crossing across the street and there's no crosswalk there. And so we've probably gotten between 15 and 20 kids that are walking across. And I tried to get the city council to do something and wrote a letter to them on my school board stationery, which is right to do. And so the school board had a problem with me doing that. <clears throat> so, you know, uh, I've been in this position about a year and I just don't agree with, with what they're doing. They're, they're basically a rubber stamp for whatever the administration wants. Um, and having the pornographic books is obviously what the administration wants because, you know, this whole time, nine months, they've been, uh, they, they have made fun of parents uh, that are standing up and reading the books. Um, they've threatened me. Um, they continue to crack down on parents that are making statements, um, and they seem to be getting worse and worse and worse as time goes by, including the mayor getting involved in it. <clears throat> okay, I'm trying to figure out a way to to ask if you could go into a little bit more detail when you're saying sure. pornographic books, but I don't want you to... I don't want this to turn into pornographic material, so how could you explain to me a little bit more about why these books are so concerning for parents without uh without going into to too much detail can, can you help me understand like why you'd be like this is obvious you know uh, yeah these are not these are here, here's a great way to do it you know okay. i am all for classic literature even if it's objectionable by some and you have that with mark twain books um and i think they're classic pieces of literature that still need to be taught uh, the stuff that I'm seeing uh, and, and that I found was the bluest eyes and then another one, which was absolutely gross. Uh, it's two parents and the father's not interested in the wife anymore. And so they turn to their daughter and hold their daughter down and rape their daughter. Um, so uh, that would be one example. Um, they also talk about bestiality in that book. Another example is Queer Nation. And that's basically the Karma Sutra for you know, transgender and gay and lesbian. And, uh, you know, if you want to have that in your home, that's your business. 
Um, but I don't think the school district has any business exposing minors to that material. And those materials were actually available to elementary schools on the internet. Okay. So, so then you're saying that you guys have had discussions over the course of several months about removing the books and are they, I, I, I'm sorry if I missed this, but are these in a library or where are they available? Well, they're in the library. They're also available in, in a few teachers um, have them in their actual classroom as well. Okay. And how, how were you tipped off to the books? Who, who was the initial person that said, hey, these books are here and we need to get rid of them? Uh, Rachel Elliott called me up and she said, you know, I bet, I bet because we see these things going on. And I had just like two weeks before I had received from a teacher a directive where their supervisor told them to use the personal pronouns for any student, whatever their preferred pronoun was. And if the kids were wearing furry animal costumes, that they were to address them as furries. Um, and that kind of spurred on that we probably have these type of books in the library. So we went to check it out. Okay. And you're saying you're the only conservative on the school board, how do you define the other people or how do you define yourself as a conservative? What is that? I guess how, how to tell me what that means in your opinion. That's a that great question. In this particular position. That's a great question. I'm a constitutionalist. I believe in the constitution for everybody. Um, so personal responsibility, um, you know, if you make a mistake that you correct the mistake and you be open and honest about it, you know, as it applies to government, open and honest government, as they're trying to make uh, purchases of multi-million dollar products, um, you know, they need to open themselves up to review by parents. And, um, and, and, and I think that's where the rest of the board would really step away from me. Um, they don't believe that they are to watch over the school district government at all, <clears throat> that... Um, <coughs> that the RFPs don't take second looks, that our school district has been following the law and it has not. Um, we've had several RFPs that have not followed the correct lawful process uh, of, of going through. Um, so <clears throat> it, it's, it's, that's how I would you know, define a conservative. We've got people on that say they're Republicans, but they don't act like Republicans should which we end up saying that way too often. Do any of them say, hey, if you're a constitutionalist, then you would be uh, for free speech and these books are an example of that, so they should stay? Uh, I have. Had, actually, the superintendent has actually said that. And that's fine for an adult. That is not fine for a minor. And, you know, if you want to look at and see so, some of the um, research studies talk about what, pornographic materials does to a minor's mind when they're reading that or looking at those type of pictures. And it's, there, there's, there's no coming out of that type of stuff. Um, so I, I, I would absolutely say that that's not a first amendment, right? To look at whatever you want um, and, and be able to use public money, be able to look at those things. And if I may add something to that too, I mean, sure. it's painful watching the board members talk about that particular issue and make that argument because they say, oh, well, we, you know, we can't be like the Nazis burning books. It's like nobody's getting rid of these books. 
you can if you, if the parent wants the kid to read the book, they can get it off Amazon. They can go to you know Barnes and Noble or wherever. We're not we're not burning the books and banning them from society. We're just keeping them out of our school libraries because you know they're not appropriate for children, and we don't want our taxpayer dollars going to that. There's a huge difference there. And then it's, I've heard them compare. One board member compared said, "Well, if we remove these books, then we have to remove the Bible because there's sex in the Bible." And we're just like. There's not like, you know, graphic descriptions of, you know, how to go about doing behavior it in the Bible. I mean, it's it's not even close. <coughs> it's Those are the ridiculous arguments that they make. It's just it's embarrassing, honestly. OK, so there's two separate issues then here. One is this. You guys have a gifts and go. So if people want to go check that out and, and participate in the work you're doing, they can do that legal battle to keep pornography out of our schools. Um, and then there's the issue of how the how it's being dealt with with the school board. Am I right? So there's these two separate storylines. Correct. Yeah. So you have, you know, the witch hunt they did against Chad, which we're um, looking at our, our theories to fight back against that. And I have uh, two good theories in particular that we um, could, will most likely be suing them for as soon as we uh, raise enough money to get that going. And then we have the... Uh, the First Amendment issue where, you know, that I mentioned earlier, that was the viral video and that lawsuit is ongoing and I can I can go into depth on that. It's a, it's pretty there's some pretty interesting issues in that lawsuit. Um, and then, you know, there would be the issue of actually getting the books out, which, you know, we're looking at maybe doing some kind of uh, civil rights. Uh, what we call Section 1983 uh, lawsuit for the parents right to not have their kids exposed to these books. So. That's kind of an overview of the legal issues there. Okay, yeah, let's go back to the... One of the other fascinating things I learned in that interview was um, the constitutional lawyer guy. He says, um, when you're at any of those meetings, <clears throat> under constitutional law, they have some limited obligations, right? So they're having a public meeting, but really they make up the rules of that meeting. And if they want armed security or police to remove you from that meeting they have every right to like arrest you and manhandle you and he talks all about that mm -hmm. he's like where you get to challenge it is your first amendment right you know you go to court you know you go you go do business you don't try to you don't try to convince the people trying to take you out of there not to take you out because they do it all the time and he's like and they have the right because that's how it's set up and that's why you can't really challenge okay. you argue for it in court right and so when you see like a ray mcgovern getting beaten because he stands with his back to Hillary Clinton, right? Ray McGovern, former CIA whistleblower, famous protester, getting on in years. He's got to be in his 80s by now. And to get bloodied by people removing him from a public event where he said nothing and just simply turned his back, he turned his back. It was something like this. Right? And so you might consider that to be rude, but uh, they removed him from there anyway, uh, pretty brutally. And then the, that became a viral video. So um, in those situations, you have to speak truth to power very politely. The lawyer in that video made a really good example of going to the meeting within the time allotted, making his claim on the record, serving the legal paperwork at that time and getting out like that's that's a good example. It's a peaceful example. It's following the rules example. It's not toppling society. It's actually maintaining society by saying, hey, we got a set of rules. Maybe we should follow them. Yeah, the biggest problem has been the sort of divide and conquer 
the the false dichotomy that's been set up between. I mean, that's happened throughout all of society. Well, all these various me, if you don't think kindergartners should be exposed like, to parents raping and those types of that's ideas, insane. Right, like, like, that's what I thought that, too. Like, in a public that, school, like, that you see one why thing to have like the prison of modern straight school. up. Right. It's one yeah. thing to have straight up this basic pornographic material. It's another thing to have like like demoniacal sort of like like what is that? That's like rape twisted, fantasy, bro. crazy evil shit. Like what for children? I mean, like I and I'm against all of the pornographic material, but like to go that far down the spectrum to that 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 level of insanity, that level of like just objective evil, it's absurd. And it's one I thing think to adults have, like, should deal with other adults in those areas and leave minors out of it and stop. Jesus, right? I know the fact that like I, I thought he was like, well, the you stop know the husband, well, and it doesn't get it's not into the life anymore, and he goes and has an affair. So I was like, oh, okay, classic story. And it's like, no, they go and rape the child. Like, what? That sounds like it's. Well, I mean, from a Darwinian perspective, I mean, if I could just that, get into some Dawkins and Darwin for a second, Tony. A little bit. Deeper, the gene pool is not going to replicate itself. That has to be made into a meme that can be transferred to p- other people in the gene pool. Otherwise, that idea would die out after a generation or so. So it's, Dar- it's Dawkins memetics, and you can read all about it. He talks about, you know, Richard genes Price. and evolution. and Right? Yeah. Isn't that Richard Bill Dawkins? Hamilton. Well, yeah. he's the one who made it famous, but it goes Richard Price. Okay. That came up with uh, the selfish gene theory selfish gene theory there you go evolution and eugenics at its best based off what tansley's theory of the ecosystem like feedback author tansley we all have the the adam curtis narration in our heads from watching all those movies all those documentaries author tansley yeah what was and it then general smuts field general smuts. he brings you e- ecology the holism that gives the green movement its power it's a british empire idea from Long, well, long that time is, ago. That's your Jan Smuts, I mean, he was famous for bringing in apartheid. So from the makers of apartheid, you got right. the Great Reset. It's basically the gist. All right. Did we find that uh, Kim Iverson clip? Uh, when I looked on Rockfin, it was for premium people only. I, I have access to it. I just didn't see it. Alex Jones? Yeah, so. I wanted to know why she left The Hill, uh, no. not The View. I said The View earlier. Remember, I blew it. But she left The Hill. Right, wasn't or rising or whatever they call yeah, it over there with, the hills with Ryan rising, from which is the show. Intercept, Intercept Ryan over Ryan there and, and Robbie uh, Rico Suave, Robbie Suave, Robbie Suave. <laughs> yeah, we can go to that. That's like six minutes. Yeah, I want to see what like uh, did, did they have intellectual differences? Did they not pay her enough? What was going on over there? Well, and uh, maybe she's going to go with uh, Sauger and Crystal over there. <laughs> Right, breaking points could use a third. You know, is it time to get Kim on the show? Well, I think uh, Stephanie was already reaching out to see if she'd be on the show. Oh. Working on it, yeah. We're not worthy. No, I, I'm just saying that because I saw was... a Rolling Stone magazine from 1992. It had the Origin of AIDS article in it, and it had Wayne and Garth on the front of it. It was in the archive over here. That's a Wayne's Wayne's World ism. We're not worthy. So yeah. All right, so let's go to the uh, Kim Iverson clip. Let's see why she and uh, the people at the Hill departed ways. So as some of you may have heard, I am no longer with Hills Rising. And I know many of you want to know what happened and why there was a sudden departure. So I'm here to explain. Now, a year ago when I joined Rising, I promised the viewers that. I've already noticed she's got a better background 
And I'm going to bet nobody opens their mic halfway through her monologue and fucking brings um, in dude, background I'll take it sound one more step. like her they used to do better. over the hill. I bet they had to pay extra people like to bring on that feature functionality of like bringing dead air into her her dialogue like that. Oh, so let's go. Ahead. Let's see how she does on her own. So I can't can, run a fucking. I can provide a little bit compressor. if that helps. Take us back. Just yeah, take us back to whoever opens the mic over at the hill early. I always thought it was Ryan, but I don't know. Let's maybe it's a switchboard person. Let's see what Kim's doing over here. Though I was working on a corporately owned media show, I wasn't being censored or held back in any way, and I wouldn't be there if I was. Prior to joining Rising, I was doing my own show independently. I was independently funded. And one of the benefits of being independent is that there are no corporate overlords or establishment types meddling with the content. And of course, we have to dance around YouTube's community guidelines. But beyond that, the actual editorial calls are not being made by some establishment hack. Now, obviously, viewers were very concerned when I joined Rising that this would change. That instead of being my normal self of questioning the establishment, calling them out, thinking outside the orthodoxy and criticizing our leaders, that I would instead morph into some shill or stay quiet when I would normally speak out. So I made numerous assurances that this was not happening at Rising, that I was free to say what I wanted and I was free to talk about what I wanted. And that was true. My radars over the past year were all me. I wrote every single one. I didn't have to consult with anyone about what the topic would be or what I would say about that topic. No one edited the pieces. They were 100% mine. No one ever told me what to say or what not to say at Rising. And I know that I made some of my colleagues uncomfortable with some of the things that I would say. And when I did, never once did a manager or producer pull me aside to tell me to tone it down. I was completely free to say whatever I wanted at Rising. And I did. I said whatever I wanted, most notably openly criticizing the pandemic response, vaccine mandates, and Fauci. I still remember the first time back in 2020, uh, sorry, August of 2021, when I stated that the vaccines don't stop the spread. And I was met with fierce resistance to that idea. Do you remember this? Yeah, I mean, I just don't understand. We know now that the vaccine doesn't stop the spread. So I could understand maybe whoa, doing whoa, a vaccine whoa, whoa. mandate <laughs> if there was. It certainly stops the spread. And it doesn't stop the spread. We know it doesn't. The science is clear that it's not stopping any spread. My open criticisms of the narrative, decisions around the pandemic, and Fauci brought in millions of views for rising. Out of all the hosts, COVID and the pandemic response was my topic. All of the viewers knew this. So when I found out Sunday night that Fauci was going to be on the show, I was excited. This was a moment I had waited for and viewers had waited for. I had questions that I wanted to ask him, like, does he still support mandates for these non-sterilizing vaccines with mRNAs not succeeding in ending the pandemic? Why is he still pushing for them? And many more. I had a lot of questions. But then Sunday night. Did she say non-sterilizing vaccines? Can you wind it back for a second? sterilizing vaccine maybe she, so i was maybe excited. she means this was a moment i had waited for and viewers I had waited for i had questions that i wanted to ask him like does he still support mandates for these non-sterilizing vaccines with mrnas not succeeding in ending the pandemic why is he I still think pushing the sterilization for is a metaphor for also like stop the inability to for the virus to replicate in other words like making okay the virus okay inert, yeah that would inert, that, that would have to do inert. with transmission because I was yeah. thinking about how the that's an, that's how the mRNA point. collects in the the loins of people in their sexual reproductive organs, according to the studies, I thought maybe that was the reference. Yeah, it was a it was a, it was a bad word choice. Thank you for helping choice. me to interpret that. 
by her but to your point it was a bad word choice on her part but i think she meant it just yeah sterilizing the virus like it wouldn't tr- it wouldn't transmit yeah sterilizing the virus all right or I had questions that I wanted to ask him, like, does he still support mandates for these non-sterilizing vaccines with mRNAs not succeeding in ending the pandemic? Why is he still pushing for them? And many more. I had a lot of questions. But then Sunday night, I got a call from the producers telling me that when they submitted for the interview a couple of weeks earlier, Fauci's team had asked who the hosts were going to be, and they didn't list my name. They told them Bacha and Robbie would be the hosts. They said originally the interview was going to be earlier than when I typically show up. And so they didn't think to include me. Now, I dispute this because there have been numerous occasions when a guest who they know I would be particularly interested in talking with is scheduled early. And then they ask me if I want to join to be a part of that interview. Sometimes I say yes. Sometimes I say no. But I think obviously interviewing Fauci of all people, it would have been one of those times to ask me. So I told the producers that they needed to go back to Fauci's team and tell them I'm in the interview. And if you won't agree to do it, then we make a segment about that. We say Fauci wouldn't face us, that it needed to be all of us or none of us, especially since the interview had been moved to later in the day when I'm there. So I made it clear that anything other than this would cause the viewers to lose trust in Rising. And trust is what matters most. The viewers had flocked to Rising for this content and to let them down like this would just break their trust completely. So they seem to understand this Sunday night. Now, the next morning as I'm ready to join the show and I'm I'm getting ready to do my radar and possibly interview Fauci, I got a phone call from the executive producer telling me that they had made the final decision to not approach Fauci's team, but to instead move forward with the interview without me. They wanted me to come on the show, record a couple of segments, then ask me to leave so that they could interview Fauci. And I expressed that this was a giant mistake, that the viewers would no longer trust the show, that I had told viewers I wouldn't be censored or held back. And how can I go back to the viewers after this and say with a straight face that I'm not being censored or limited? How am I supposed to do that? I mean, there were times in the past when viewers would accuse the show of holding me back or censoring me or limiting me. And it wasn't really the case. It was other circumstances that made it to where I wasn't in the segment. But in this particular case, that wasn't the situation. So what was I supposed to say to viewers after this? How could I say, yeah, you know, it's corporate media, but trust me, guys, I'm not being censored or held back. I mean, up until this point, it was true. But after this, I wouldn't be able to say that. And that would make me a liar. And it would put my reputation at risk because I made promises to the viewers. And so because of all of this, I am no longer with Rising. Now, I want to say. There are a lot of really good people who work at Rising. The team is amazing. And I had a really great time over this past year being on that show. I don't regret a single moment of it. And I also want to, I I also want that show to be successful because there are so many great people working there. And I hope for the sake of those great people working there who are now worried about their jobs, that those who are making the editorial decisions will go forward, making better choices, understanding that viewers trust is the most important thing. It's the only thing. And the only way to gain and maintain that trust is to keep your integrity. And sometimes, in order to keep your integrity, you have to make a tough choice. So that's it. Um, Going forward, I will be posting Monday through Thursday on my channels on Rockfin, YouTube, Rumble, and Locals. So you're still going to get those great pieces from me that you're used to getting. You're just going to be seeing them someplace else. And I hope you join me. All right, that was that was well explained. Sets sets me at ease. 
knowing I can continue to find her work on Rockfin. There's not going to be some discontinuity and she's not discouraged and heading away with her tail between her legs because they shut her out. And that was she a real move. Seem like the type of person that would. No, she's not a giver up or type person, no. right? It doesn't seem like anyone taught her how to quit. Maybe she, she, you know. I mean, she yeah. made the she out of her own volition. She, I mean, she made the choice to go to Rising. So to her, it, it was sort of a symbiotic relationship. I, I don't know. I can't. I don't know her thought process. You want to maintain but, integrity and trust with whoever you're working she said, with. Yeah, so you can't do that over there at Rising. She got to do it on her own, and that's but a that was sort of her demand. Bold move. Right? Her demand was integrity and trust with the producers, with the executive producers, with. Uh, yeah. the co-workers with the other co-hosts she had to work with. All they and could like, see is we're going to have an interview with Fauci. Fire whoever you have to get them out of here. And they didn't even have to fire her. She quit. Right. They're just like, you know, they, they, they're telling her like, oh, you could show up and not be part of it. And make some, make some commentary on it. And she's like, uh, what am I? A clown to you? Here to when amuse did, you? When did Sager and Crystal leave? Like two years no. ago, maybe, or a year and a half ago. And when did, when, uh, Kim, come on, because Crystal and Sager. She used came to on shortly after that. After, after that's what I thought, right? Because okay. she was doing her own thing, and she was doing well at it and getting better at it. Oh and yeah, she's great. She had that opportunity, she's... and then more people got exposed to her, and they'll just follow her over to where she is oh, now. No, and they're going to try to backfill. We'll still frequent her stuff, assuming it's content worthy. Of... And she's right. I think we should continue to keep an eye on Rising and what's going on over there, on over there, especially in her absence. And the first thing I think we should check out is what's that Fauci interview look like that she couldn't be there for? Can we get a can we get a gist of that? What was going on? What are they trying to tell the public that they didn't I want mean, her to be uh, like Johnny on the spot with? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, let's let's do I a mean, little, you know, little finger still in the walking. Now, while you do that, because that's an audible, that's... I'm going to cover the time like this. I'm going to give you three points. These are not connected whatsoever. During the assassination at JFK, Fletcher Prouty one of the top people in the military, he was sent to uh, Antarctica. So, you know, while the event goes on, they sent this honest dude far away. During 9-11, uh, Colin Powell found out about 9-11, waking up to smell the coffee in Peru. He was far away from the event, right? Well, now you got this Fauci interview over at the Hill, and uh, they wanted Kim Iverson far away from that because they don't want scrutiny. They don't want logic, reason, somebody using... Uh, journalistic methods to answer who what where when why and how about a situation and pass that along credibly to other people because then people the cat could get out of the bag and i heard the cat's really hard to get back in the bag that's why that's a big deal what'd you find I mean, tony if this is it if it, how yeah, long of an interview it. is it it's 20 minutes it's 20 minutes but joshua yeah. just said there's a a quick clip on kim's twitter so I'm there we go. Looking for that real quick. Oh, okay. Kim yeah, Iverson yeah, approved advertisement of why, why would they? I understand. It doesn't make sense, but I understand because they don't they do stuff that doesn't make sense. That's but the deal. point is with Robbie. So okay, with Robbie with uh, Sager and Crystal. So the Sager and Crystal for a while they would do some risque segments, if you will, um, uh, sort of similar to the way Kim does it. Or either way, the point is. They would do these segments that sometimes, I don't know, I hate these words, but people that would approach alternative theories and history, geopolitics, COVID-19, whatever it might be. And then they go away. And then all of a sudden Kim, Kim comes in and she does great work. I really appreciate her work tremendously and will continue to frequent her work. But um, it just seems, you know, like, in other words, they recognize to Kim's point, 
that that actually questioning some of the pre-scripted narratives that are sort of running rampant across mainstream narrative or mainstream media. People aren't are finding that sort of uh, monotonous and sort of uh, lacking in creativity. So like getting a different perspective. In other I mean, words, it appeals to an audience that like ha is trying to use reason to understand the reality they're experiencing. You mean, is it questions. like when Jimmy Dore pokes fun at Ryan Grimm's charismatic presentation and stylings? Is that what you're talking about? Is that what you're sussing out? That she, she's like, show. she was the invigorating part of the show. <laughs> Vitality. Yeah. I think not. she's the one that brought, I think she's alluding to it sort of in a roundabout way. Um, doing these subtle jabs is like, you know, it brought people in, in other words, questioning the narrative, asking questions, trying to, you know, around what is being parroted. Citizenically speaking, well, being real and talking about it, reality is going to be more appealing than anything coming out of the corporate boardrooms. And that brought people meetings. in and that right. brought viewers. And so. And if those people in the boardrooms were really that smart, they'd be the on air talent bringing audience in and not the people telling you what to how do. How would so. they want to interview Fauci and lose all the. I'm curious to see why they would scuttle one of their best intellects in order to get a, you I mean, know, they have a, an interview with Fauci recently. two years after the pandemic. Wait, 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 real quick, real quick. Let us not forget that Sagar and Crystal Dale. left because what? Well, I was just saying stale information. Oh, yeah. No, I'm just, it's funny because of the continuity between, I mean, they left over a similar issue. It was, uh, what was her? Um, they wanted to speak with Parthesia. No, it was the LA Congresswoman. What was her? Um, she's crazy. They wanted to speak with Parthesia and it got too close to. Like, you know, I'm sure they Anyways, were stressed. Long... Are they going to lose advertisers saying this? Are they going to lose their job and paycheck from over there? Why can't they? Why don't they just do it on their own and control their own paycheck? Be entrepreneurs. Educated, calculated risks. That's what it's all about. All right. Maxine Waters. Clip. That's it. You got it. <clears throat> if you want to yeah, go to Maxine, just two so minutes. Good. Yeah, let's go to the two minute clip. Let's see it. I so appreciate what you're saying, doctor, about the moving target. Um, at the same time, there were um, authorities that made different decisions than the CDC's recommendations, for example, on school closures, and they did not see higher levels of child mortality when it comes to COVID. And meanwhile, the schools that did close down were now seeing just disastrous levels of learning loss among poor children, children of color, mental health crisis. I wonder if you would recommend locking down schools if you had to do it all over again. Well, you know, again, it's uh, first of all, I didn't recommend locking anything down. You're, you're, you're asking me questions. You're talking about the CDC is the public health agency mm -hmm. that uses their epidemiologists and their science based approach to make recommendations. Clearly, whenever you close schools, there are collateral effects that are negative. I have always been well aware of that. And I have always felt, and you go back and look at my statements, that we need to do everything we can to keep the schools open and safe. And by safe means, if you need to wear masks in that, wear masks, get better ventilation, surround the children with people who are vaccinated if a vaccine is available to help protect it stops transmission, the children. Right? Again, I have been on the record of saying that 
always try to the best of your ability to keep the children in school, but in a safe environment. Locally, this a decision is often made when there is so much You're infection to close the school. But I would always see that as a last resort. And I have always felt that. And their pushback was... Oh, there was no pushback. Maybe, maybe there's a longer part, and they pushed back because well, yeah. I'm pretty sure I've seen a clip of Fauci versus Fauci, where he did say, and then he did say, and they contradict. And I'm not saying I'm judging a conclusion about that. I'm just saying these clips contradict. Fauci has contradicted himself more than conspicuously contradicted himself more, more than any other Bible? public figure in the past two years. What? That Fauci contradicts himself more than the Bible. A lot of contradictions in that. Book. Well, the Bible. And when they say, read, "Hey, by the, the way, Bible, speaking of books and schools," it's something but a big contradiction. You got to read it as a. Speaking of books and schools, when they say, "Well, you know, uh, if yeah, you, you know," that guy said, "Well, if we pull these books, then we have to pull the Bible." Good kids in school aren't reading the Bible. They can learn about that at home. It's available everywhere else. They got the rest of their life to find out about Jesus. Maybe we should keep this parents raping the kids book out of their out of the fucking library. You know what so I'm saying? Insane. Now, maybe that's, that's an inaccurate insane. summary that the gentleman in the cowboy hat brought us, right? There's there's that consideration. One can hope that when I don't, I, it wouldn't, I, I hate to say it's not really that even surprising. At least that's like, it wouldn't really surprise me if that really Is was it the, the modern I don't want to know Oedipus story. What's going on there? I mean, you can read it in Greek. The Oedipus story at least had like a, a philosophic sort of underpinning to regards to the concept of fate and do like this are we predetermined by causes outside of our control oh like that's bigger, a, that's an big, interesting it was like a story used to illustrate a bigger metaphorical concept yeah yeah you got like yeah, the greeks yeah. used to do uh, maybe there's a metaphorical <laughs> right. context in the blue eyes book that we we're missing i was looking to see if it was uh, on that shelf behind that new host while she was interviewing fauci but all right so nothing to see there, oh, yeah. except, you know, the news is Fauci never ordered the lockdowns of the schools, uh, you know, that sort of stuff that ever happened. How many times you've yep. heard him say he supports lockdowns, we need to extend them. The HHS continues to extend the, the emergency, which allows them to extend the EUA, which allows them to continue the use of these vaccines under EU. I mean, it's what's the big deal about EUA, Tony? What's the big deal? So they get a little emergency insurance use, companies, you know how authorization. Goes, right? Are they not responsible for their actions and get like money thrown at them because of that or something? Maybe you'd have to define what you'd have to define. I think they're just responsibility is. They're just so incompetent. To, it's all acts. It's all accidental. It's got to, you just got to define responsibility. Or I'll choose coincidence theory. That's a good one too. These days, <laughs> apophenia theory. Yeah. I think it's something yeah. a little bit more. All right, answer. so uh, we got an answer to why Kim Iverson left rising and uh i don't think we're going to see too many more rising clips maybe we'll see maybe we may rising will continue to make the cut it was certainly easier to show clips on the news from their organization when she was presenting the news so poignantly as opposed to now we're going to go see what ryan and the well crew let's be real like uh out. we would cut out most of the time the dialogue the discussion she would have after her segment so we want to leave something to the imagination tony <laughs> we don't want full frontal is that okay? why full okay. frontal grim all right now <laughs> see that would be a good grim god. sight good god that would man. be a grim sight. <laughs> it's, it's uh, yeah is how late is it it's oh it's almost segways 
Segway. Are we uh, off the cliff? Do we need to hit the Alex trial? Okay, we do have that coming up. I wanted to make sure we had all the other things. Let's go through that YouTube playlist. What other? uh, Burmese had this really good clip on Bohemian Grow. Uh, like the one he streamed midday today, or another one earlier. He had a couple of them. He had one he did in the fourth hour the other day. He had one he did today. so yeah, he's on Rockfin as well. So while you're checking out Kim Iverson and uh, Jimmy Dore and us on the Rockfin, go over to Jason Burmes and see some of the Bohemian Grove stuff. Um, I think we're gonna have to bump him from intermission to talk about his big boss's pro or his former big boss. I'm right? sorry, last last he year he said a lot of nice things about Alex Jason Burmes was intermission where. The, uh, yeah so um oh i know what i was watching he did a review of alex's war i saw that today a, that as well. new documentary and in there because he explained that, you know yeah he did a really good job I well he, he did, did a good job like he presented the his review by presenting himself as being in someone who's worked from the inside he got a relationship a working relationship with alex jones and of course many years ago albeit but nonetheless he has sort of an understanding of who alex is he has you know, a relationship with him as a friend and a co-worker, business partner, whatever. And then so. from that review, I went to Rockfin and I started watching Alex's War. And uh, I was trying to watch it from an objective perspective, especially how would people who think Alex is the devil, how would they see it? How would these clips play? And I like Burmese's uh, summarization yeah, that the like movie it. is made as a Rorschach. And that depending on your predisposition is what you're going to see and reflect out of it. Right. So I was trying to watch it from, you know, various people's modalities and perspectives to see like, you know, if you're a raw, raw Alex Jones fan, here's what you'll see out of it. But if you're looking to see like, where's the holes in that operation, there's some crazy stuff. He does some crazy stuff speaking in tongues over at the Georgia Guidestones. Like there's something for everybody in there. It's got a wide ranging menu. It's a good spectrum. And I think it does humanize him which is an important thing to do for anybody who's being especially uh, with what he's going through right there. now. I mean, there's no, it's obviously is timed well, he's specifically not, with what's happening. Let's he's not real. in this situation without making a few mistakes along the way. He made so, all he did. He did. Yeah. He so did. I watched some of the trials. So, and I did, I took one for the team and I've made sure I watched every hour of the trial. I did, this past week. I did not watch it live. But I did make time in my schedule to be able to review it while doing other productive things to be able to <laughs> see what, testimony evidence yeah. expert witnesses the whole shebang to see uh what's going on over there so we're going to get into it we're going to watch um this is probably 25 minutes into alex's war i just wanted to get the gist on the record of his uh uh his his start working at public access doing a cable access type of show bootstrapping back in the day uh taking and uh going up to probably the bohemian grove clip that'll take it there and then um, you can see the whole film on various places. It's streaming. There's a link tree we can put in the notes for this episode, show you every different place you can see it. It's good for consideration because there's a lot of a lot of free speech precedent riding on what's being done to that gentleman and his organization at this point. And uh, yeah, it's, it's worth, a very roundabout uh, way to completely take around, take down Infowars. It's well, if you can get the guns in the independent media at the same time, but very Ooh. clever. Yeah, it's like right. a royal flush for them. The queen would be really happy if she had a royal flush. She's been <laughs> constipated lately. All right, this is a comedy show, just for the record. Let's go ahead and play this clip from Alex's oh, War. Boy. And uh, hope you're not a groomer of the stool. See how I brought that together? 
they use silk. I already put myself on mute. Put myself on. All right, I'm uh, jumping in. I think it's right after the Guidestones is when it gets into the uh, to his public access. Yeah, thank start. you. We're doing it live. It's on the fly. InfoWars, the most banned network in the world. I ended up moving down to Austin in the middle of high school to get away from all the trouble I was in in Dallas. It was great because it was a lot more relaxed and laid back culture. I didn't really get in any fights to speak of once I moved to Austin. It had all this beautiful canyons and streams and rivers and lakes and that's it, just totally peaceful. That can tell you it was a really cool town and it was a real college town it was very very libertarian and it was very very classical liberal and by that uh, I didn't know if I was a Republican or a Democrat because there were things I liked about both parties things I disliked but the average real liberal like knew about health food and was anti-war and was free speech and seemed really informed and cool for a while I went and had jobs and was dating a lot and you know, out of high school, wasn't really worried about doing media for a while. But I thought maybe I'll do media because I wanted to be on air just to be able to talk. And then I was watching Access TV. There were like rock and roll shows, and a lot of Christian shows, a lot of old ladies doing exercise shows. It was it was everything. Like we don't care what your speech is. Then I saw all these local conspiracy theorists that were talking about the new world order and world government. You know, that's what I'll do. Our descendants from Davy Crockett. Uh, this is myself and my wife. And if you go all the way over, uh, my fourth great grandfather was uh, Nathan Crockett, which is the brother of Davy Crockett. And my fifth great grandfather was the father of Davy Crockett. And um, I guess that's where I get my fight from. I love Selena. I love Selena, I love Elvis, I love Martin Luther King too. I even love Alex Jones. Welcome to the underground bunker. <laughs> Come on in. I met him back in 1990s down at uh, Access TV and I knew right away he was gonna be a star. He had that quality. Hi, I'm Alex Jones, the host of Exposing Mass Media, a show dedicated to showing you the lies and corruption that are being fed to us through our national media. It's on every Wednesday night from 7 to 8.30 p.m. on Channel 10. All we want is for you to be a free American and not to have to kneel 
on bended knee to the elites that are consistently more and more buying up this country and controlling it. How's that? Make you talk? He was a local bus driver. He kind of did interview style shows. And so right away, we started working together. But that's why I got to know Mike. I'd say for a good, I don't know, six, seven, eight not, years, um, we were inseparable. I think we probably did over 2,000 productions down there at Access TV. We figured it out one time. Now, let me just say a couple of things about Bill Clinton. Uh, beside the fact that he is an elitist, secret society scumbag who uh, is working for the, the private interest. Take your microphone where you can hear you better. Put it down a little bit. The private interest of international of international financiers. I was producing for Jeff Davis, and then Alex came along and kind of outshined Jeff Davis. And without any further ado, I want to welcome to the Jeff Davis program here tonight, to Mr. Alex Jones. Alex Jones, welcome to the program, sir. Appreciate that, Jeff. And he just he took off like a rocket. Jeff, if we were all ants and bees, this would work just fine. The problem is, is that one of these systems, corrupt individuals always foster this system so that they can have an excuse politically to control your destiny and your life. It's all about control. What can they get you to accept? And that's why I say long live the Constitution and death to the New World Order. It is a deindustrialization plan, not by accident, not by folly. These people have the power because they're premeditated and they're evil. Closing comment. Uh, yeah, guys, listen, I'm a maniac. I'm a maniac for freedom. It takes, you know, what is a radical? Look in your dictionary. It's somebody that differs from the norm, the mainstay of society. For one second, feel the human spirit and stop this dehumanization. It could be incredible. He could draw a crowd even back then. We say to tyranny in the United Nations. Get it, Alex. Death to the new world order. Death the idea of losing our sovereignty. We don't like this flag, and we're sick and tired of it. I mean, people knew in their hearts that he was telling the truth. Drive off when I come over there. All I'm out here doing is standing up for the damn Constitution of this country. Yeah, that's Alex Jones, baby. All right, we're talking about some serious issues today. We're talking about how they got us divided. It should not be front-page news that Fuzzy Zeller said something racist, even though he's an old, fat racist. Who cares about an old, fat racist that says something about an awesome man, Asian, African-American, who's worth probably $100 million? Who cares about words? We're Americans. We're all together in this boat. You know, at one time, Alex was on the radio and had three different shows going on on Access TV. And then on top of it, we'd have rallies and he'd bullhorn for hours on end. I don't know how his voice held out all those years, but it did. How's my hair look? Good. Is it blowing? Good. Well, how's it look now? All right. We're here at the Alfred P. Murrow Building in Oklahoma City, the site of the April 19th, 1995 bombing. And there's a lot of questions, a lot of unanswered questions, like why has the media ignored two seismograph reports from the University of Oklahoma and the U.S. Geological Survey that show two distinct explosion patterns? Why have they ignored the first preliminary reports of two explosions by people on the ground as witnesses? 
and I am not sitting here claiming to have the answers, but I know this, they don't want you to know something. They're keeping something from you. They've done it A to Z from intimidation of witnesses to covering up evidence to destroying this crime scene. This is tyranny at work one way or another. Either they're exploiting this terrible tragedy and our children that died, or they were actively engaged in it. Yes, the federal government actively engaged in tyranny. Oh, that would be such a change from history for a government to be involved in that type of behavior, wouldn't it? No, it wouldn't be at all. Actually, that's the way history works. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. It wasn't very popular back then. You were out there as a conspiracy theorist, but Alex made it more popular because he was well-spoken and very professional. He was kind of like the Dan Rather of the conspiracy theory world. You can follow people around, you can harass people, you can back up your bankster buddies, but a revolution of peaceful information's coming, and when it comes time, you people are gonna be brought to punishment. Cops and FBI agents, Congress people, and Alex held them to a higher standard than they ever thought they were gonna be held to. George W. Bush, is an absolute front candidate. He'll probably be president in 2000. They're already pushing him across the nation. He, his father is CFR, Trilateral Commission, and Bilderberger has been linked to bringing drugs into this country. He was ex-head of the Central Intelligence Agency in the 70s. It just goes on and on. 1998 is going to be good for Texas, and that's the most important thing about the campaign. Wouldn't, it, sir, shouldn't we abolish the Federal Reserve and the CFR? That's the real reality that none of you will talk about, most of you are members. That's what's destroying this country, Governor. Don't you stand for America, sir? What about the Federal Reserve and the CFR? You people are being lied to. This country's been taken over by Europe, and I'm being drug out. Laugh at it. So you're saying you're going to deny me the constitutional right to travel if I do not submit to this digital thumb scanning. Uh, look, I feel like I'm being raped here. You're working with the foreign banks and the military-industrial complex. This is all their idea. Read the military war college from 1968. This is reality, not conspiracy. It's not funny, Elshire. You are a liar. You're lying to the public. It's disgusting. I knew back then was that attack on humanity that I saw early on that I really wanted to wage war on. And I knew people instinctively would rally to my cause. I knew once I got on that path, it was like everything was leading me towards that path. We are gonna win this fight. Now you're where you're supposed to be. There's no one back from that. Once you taste that, once you hit that, there's no going back. This is April 19, 1998. Five years after the murder of children. Under the blistering Texas sun, investigators comb the smoldering remains of the Branch Davidian compound. More than 80 people are believed to have died in yesterday's fiery conclusion to the 51-day siege, 24 of them children. Today, the FBI said it's not responsible for the deaths. We were just reading the Austro-American States. It never talks about the children. It talks about David Koresh being as some sort of cult leader. They wanted to raise the American people's consciousness about cults and out of control organizations of this nature. So they surrounded the place, opened fire with helicopters, and then 51 days later, set it on fire, sent hit teams inside, and murdered the people. You know, like Sheila, she lost her whole family. She lost, I think, four children and her husband. That's Ophelia. 
the tank ran over her house in the back back there. After just a week of planning, dozens of volunteers from across the state gathered at Mount Carmel to build a church. It's a project that was started by Austin Radio Talk Show host Alex Jones. Who started the project by recruiting people on air. They received directions. Head to ground zero. We're gonna rebuild it. We're gonna build this church back. I've talked to Survivor Branch Davidians and they concur with my idea to have it a church and at the same time a memorial and a museum for what happened right here on this very ground uh, in 1993. You were a damn kook if you took up for the Branch Davidians. You know, we got a lot of threats over it. When we were rebuilding it. The Ku Klux Klan come down to Waco. Good morning, and Alex and I and a bunch of other people went over and bullhorned them. Yeah, the truth was and the federal Gestapo controllers are not welcome here in Central Texas where the real patriots reside. And then that night they tried to come out and burn us out. Fortunately, a lot of the people that were helping us rebuild had guns and kind of ran them off. I think the feds were were behind some of these uh, Ku Klux Klan people. There's always new federal lies that we are forced to counter here. Texas talk radio personality Alex Jones has been crying murder and cover-up from day one of the Waco horror. These are thugs who wanted to engage in terrorism against the American people. And I say their terrorism has failed, and this horrendous lie is starting to unravel. I remember they called me in. I liked the number one talk show in the ratings in Austin. They said, you're not going to criticize Bill Clinton anymore, and you're not going to talk about Waco. And I said, well, I don't talk about Waco that much. It's a memorial church. He goes, no, you do it, you're fired. And I said, well, I can't stop finishing this thing. I said I was. So they said, well, we're going to fire you. And they did fire me for that. Broadcasting worldwide in defiance of tyranny. Only on air because of you. I'm Alex Jones, your host, and I'm blessed and honored to be here. This is 1776 stuff, boys and girls. This is total game time right now. This is the Super Bowl for the whole future. And if they get Biden in, they're never gonna take their foot off our neck. We've gotta resist this. A pandemic inauguration, because no one's gonna be there for his inauguration, so oh, it's gotta be all BS. We'll be in DC. We don't care what your mayor says that we're not supposed to be there. Burn in hell, this is all America. We're coming this weekend, and we're coming on the inauguration one way or the other. We don't accept you, you're illegitimate. Right. Oh, you're pathetic, you must accept it. You didn't accept Trump with all your lies. You had not one stinking card in your dirty little globalist hands. But America was blind and thought we were invincible. America thought that we could never be defeated and we were living on our laurels, living on our ancestors. And now we realize how much trouble we're in. That dragon's got its teeth on our leg. Well, that's okay. Let's politically just stop whining about it and just start taking our thumbs and poking the eyes out and punching it right in the nose. And just all of a sudden you might notice you have the political strength to grab it by its ears and just tear its skull right open. 
but you've got to decide you're going to break its head open lovingly, peacefully, politically. And that means hitting the streets and spreading the word and just letting the globalists know you'll never surrender. They're all the sellouts. They're all the trash. They're all the garbage. You want to cancel Christmas? Never, you little degenerate pedophiles. You'll burn in hell. Well, that's it. You kind of lose your mind during your climax. I mean, everything we've talked about is basically unfolding just as we said it would. I have a sick feeling, actually, because I know what comes next. And it's not a feeling of satisfaction. It's actually extremely nauseating and disgusting and horrible to be right. They've never met opposition, which is why they're openly pissing on our face and declaring China is our master. No, I will not be part of that, especially when it's an endless lockdown to impoverish everybody, you jerks. I pray God strikes you down, Xi Jinping, you maggot. We'll be right back. Stay with us. The general public are like babies inside the womb. They don't even know what's going on in the outside world. They're like inside their mother. They have no idea what's going on. And meanwhile, there's these mad scientists trying to steal the future from them before they're even born. That, that's what it feels like. So I'm outside. I got outside the womb. And I'm not totally blind. And I'm powerless to stop them. Even though I can tell people what's coming next, it, it doesn't even matter. They, people just still, they, they can't deal with the magnitude of this. And, and I understand. It's like if I said, the next door neighbor's house is on fire. And you can say, I don't believe you, or you can look out your window. If you look out your window and the house isn't on fire, then just disregard me. But it is on fire. It's like the whole house is burned down. It's, it's, it's rubble right now. Hardcore, man. Hardcore. Wikipedia says InfoWars started in 1999. It did. It started in 1997. Police State 2000, the military and police training for gun confiscation and the takeover of our constitutional republic. All the proof you need to wake up America. Police State to the takeover. They go from training to actually serving search warrants, running checkpoints on American highways, and integrating our society, completing its road, its path to slavery. Paid the money with the money I was making off of selling VHS tapes and DVDs and things. I put that into a satellite feed and to reaching out to radio stations and buying ads in radio station publications. They picked me up. By 1999, I was at over 100 radio stations. You're in the heyday of talk radio, AM, FM, some of these the biggest stations in the country. I mean, if I knew then what I knew now, oh man, there wouldn't even be globalism now. We would have beaten it. I mean, I literally was reaching tens of millions of people and not even knowing. I had no idea what we were doing. Enemy lines, the information war continues. It's Alex Jones and the GCN Radio Network. No longer is the New World Order some foggy apparition over the next hill. The talk of extremists. 
in the rural areas, yes. The media has tried to make jokes of it. They've tried to create their little stereotypes now. They openly speak of it in the Senate. You will have globalism. We will disarm the American people. Alex is a syndicated talk show host from Austin, Texas. He broadcasts from his bedroom down an ISDN line to 8 million listeners. Alex believes that the shadowy elite at Bohemian Grove are the puppet masters who control the world's governments, banks, the media and the United Nations. It was the late 1990s and John Ronson was going to do a TV show for Channel 4 titled Secret Rulers of the World. And he already had a contact inside Bohemian Grove, but he didn't want to have the liability of being sued if he got the footage. So he wanted me to get the footage. I didn't know whether men like Henry Kissinger and George W. Bush really dress in robes and attend a secret owl-burning ceremony in the forests of Northern California, a ceremony said to be called the Cremation of Care. It was hard to believe, but Alex was intent on discovering the truth. Ah, oh, it's my red coat, friends. Uh, how you guys doing? Sorry we're late. I mean, I didn't even know about the Bohemia Grove until asked Alex to sneak in, and then, of course, I got roped into that, too, so... Well, you've got to go in, up the, the road that says no through road, because we've got to sit in the car and get a shot of you going up the road. So you've got to go in. You've got to be the guinea pig. But you're a brave man, Alex, aren't you? So, no problem, so... no. <laughs> so that's cool. I wouldn't, ask, I wouldn't ask a man who wasn't as brave as you. All right, it's no big deal. As a final preparation, Alex and Mike practice being preppy by having appropriately preppy conversations. We're just going to walk normally as we would, calmly, la la la. There's going to be guys sitting there, and we're, you know, we're fat cats, so let's go ahead. But uh, seriously, David, as fast as microprocessors are starting to move, it's getting down to a molecular level. The question is, at what level will just the actual basics of science stop us from making these, these systems smaller? And I'm, it's the entire nanotechnology revolution that I find to be most dynamic. I agree. It was the night of July 15, 2000. Mike Hansen and I were about to attempt the first ever successful infiltration of the Bohemian Grove. Others have tried and failed. No one has ever actually made an in and out with video evidence. Be careful, Mike. God bless. Yeah, pray for us. Keep the evil off us. I had no idea what I was getting involved in. Not until I really got out of the car and figured out that I'm probably not going to make it out of here alive. So the first hour was really us just trying to hide out in the woods and stuff. So it really wasn't any good. While we're inside the Bohemian Grove, we're actually not inside yet. We said, well, we've got to figure out how we're going to get the ceremony. So Alex cut a hole in the bag and stuck the camera in the bag 
we were smart enough once, we got questioned twice, to go basically hide under a deck of one of the uh, clubhouses. That was pretty good looking still then. Mike was not bad looking. We had guys try to slap us on the ass, pinch our butts, yell at us, hey baby, come on over here. It's kind of like Pepe Le Pew chasing the cat around, but they're Pepe Le Pew and I'm the cat. And again, this is mainly the Christian conservatives that go to this. Once it started getting dark, we were able to go get into the main crowd. I'd handed the bag to Alex, then we went into the ceremony. And at first I'm like, this is overblown. This is just like a Faustian type play. And that's when Alex was getting it with the bag like that, whipping it around and doing all that. I whispered to him, I said, Alex, that's just too obvious what you're doing, but nobody seemed to notice it. Across the small lake, we saw a carriage with men in black robes bearing a bound body. Remember, it was a hidden camera and at somewhat of an angle. But it was being there in the dark when the lights would flare up, seeing the faces of the men, and they were really into this. And I'm like, oh, this is quite interesting. They're like, shut up, this is a very important ritual. Year after year, you burn me in this room. Lifting your huge shouts of triumph to the stars. But when again, he turn your faces to the marketplace, do ye not find me waiting as a whole? In it, they are all collectively putting their bad mojo, their bad karma from the hedge funds and the wars and all the corruption they're doing onto this effigy of a child. And they burn it, and, and the child screams in pain. And so it's captured basically like a genie in a lamp, and then it's cast out. They go on, don't care. Fire shall have its will of thee. Be gone, don't care. And all the winds, big fairy with thy dust. Hail, fellowships, eternal flame. Once again, midsummer sets us free. <laughs> Like you're sitting there for an hour going, God, these people are psychotics. You're like, well, it's not just this guy, it's that guy, it's this guy. And that's the corporate leaders. This is the shirt I snuck in the Bohemia Grove with. See, that's the same shirt. And that's the shoes that I snuck in the Bohemia Grove with. That was the day after I was scared to death. I mean, I can talk about it now and laugh about it, but you know, back then I thought they were gonna come after us and kill us, which, you know, they could have. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm so glad uh, that you could join us today for this Wednesday, July 25th, 2001 broadcast. Tyranny is enveloping the globe, and the United States is a shining jewel the globalists want to bring down, and they will use terrorism as the pretext to get it done. If any terrorism comes, it's from this government. And if there was an outside threat like a bin Laden, who was a known CIA asset in the 80s, running the Mujahideen War, and whose family builds all the military bases over in Saudi Arabia right now, he's the boogeyman they need in this Orwellian phony system. We know the government's planning terrorism. We know Oklahoma City was terrorism. We 
know the Joint Chiefs of Staff wanted to blow up airliner. If you do it, we're going to blame you because we know who's up to it. Or if you let some terrorist group through it, like the World Trade Center, we know who to blame. I put out the White House number and I said, call the White House, tell them don't blow up the World Trade Center and blame on Osama bin Laden. And I won't want you to believe Alex Jones. I want you to go get these news stories off my website. I want you to call these major newspapers. I want you to find out these statements were true. Here's bin Laden. He's going to attack you. When he attacks you, you give up your rights. And I saw that in the newspaper. I saw it on TV. It was a talking point. They were rolling it out. On 9-11, 2001, I was in the shower. I'd just gotten up, and my then wife at the time came in and said, hey, a plane just hit one of the World Trade Center towers. She had it on the television living room, and I walked out, and I saw it, and I said, this is going to be terrorism. And I went in there and went on air and punched up the computer and started covering it all in live time. At uh, 8.50 a.m. EDT, plane hits World Trade Center, 9.20. FBI says at least one plane hijacked. 9.30, Eastern second jet crashes into World Trade Center. Both columns, both uh, buildings with 50,000 plus people in them have collapsed in the last hour. It was almost like they were giving them time to evacuate. Again, uh, degreed uh, in the structural engineer uh, area, you're saying it was the most beautiful implosion you've ever seen and of some of the biggest buildings in the world. Absolutely. It was perfectly engineered as far as the way it came down. Here to give us the Hollywood perspective is my good buddy who knows all about the globalist, Joe Rogan. Joe, you know I was predicting this, uh, telling you all about it. Well, you know, you do predict that the government is doing these things, but I mean, uh, you don't believe that there's people in other countries that hate us? And you, you have this thing in your mind that there's a grand scheme and a grand plan. What do you think they're trying to accomplish with Why did Hitler burn the Reichstag? Uh, you know. He'd been elected chancellor, he wanted to abolish the presidency and become pure. Okay, I, I see where you're going with this, but look, but it's blaming even on the anybody channel, for anything Joe. without any evidence is pretty much just, it's irresponsible speculation. 9-11 happened and I said, hey, there's anomalies, the government stood down, they're working on radical Islam, they're using this to attack Iraq, Iraq didn't do this. I mean, you talk about being rejected. I went from over 120 stations down to like 35 stations. And to me, it didn't mean anything because 9-11 was an event that uh, definitely need to be questioned. This police state media that puts cancer viruses in your children's vaccines, that feeds them Ritalin and Prozac, BBC now reports twice as strong as cocaine, that puts toxins in the water supply, is telling you that a bunch of people that live in mud huts are your enemy. And morons called our comment line, the vast minority, and said, how dare you be anti-American? We'll kill you. That was conservatives, that was Christians, that was nationalist, saying, oh, you're with radical Islam, you're a piece of crap. No, I'm not saying radical Islam doesn't exist. I'm actually against it. I'm just saying there was something bigger here. But you know what? It's going to feel so good to nuke Iraq, isn't it? Of course, you have the motive of launching all these big wars and rolling out and legitimizing the giant NSA surveillance state that's now become just an everyday thing that we, I guess, accept. You're all working for the great Satan. And I've got the evidence, you're all connected. You start looking at it. God, it's just sick. Hey guys, Merry Christmas. Go ahead and pause it.
All right, so that was from the new documentary. It's called Alex's War. It's available lots and lots of places. You can just search for it. Alex also has a new book coming out, and they've let that go to the top of Amazon history list and stuff like that, right? So he's doing some public relations juxtaposed to his court situations. I think over the past five years or so, maybe, I don't know, as a listener, I picked up on there were dozens of courts, uh, cases, legal suits filed against InfoWars for a variety of reasons up to the current January 6th uh, interference debacle thing going on there, right? So there was a couple things that uh, he said during that clip, right? Again, it's a two and a half hour or two hour, 10 minute documentary. Can't play the whole thing, but now you know it exists and why you might want to check it out if that piqued your interest. He mentioned uh, CIA MI6 working with bin Laden in the 1980s. Operation Cyclone started in 1979. That's under Zbigniew Brzezinski. I just wanted to show for the record. That according to Mark Curtis of the Royal Institute of International Affairs, that this book contains information on bin Laden's London headquarters in 1990s, uh, 1996, I think it was. You can get this book on Amazon and other book outlets. Here's another one. He mentioned, um, call the White House and tell them not to have the World Trade Center attack by Osama bin Laden, right? And you ask yourself the question, first, is that a legit, authentic clip? It is. He said that on July 25th, 2001, whatever the date said it was. Yeah. Now, the next question is going around. The times. The na- yeah, that's that's been out there for 20 years. Like a lot of mm-hmm. people have seen that. Oh, yeah. The next question is, does he have uh, a magic eight ball? Does he have a crystal ball? Does he have some sort of stone that he looks into to scree the future? No, he reads things like foreign affairs. And in 1998, you got two wonderful articles in here. You've got uh, Bernard Lewis's explaining how Osama bin Laden is the new uh, global terrorist. And you got combating catastrophic terrorism that hasn't happened yet with Ashton Carter, John Deutsch, <laughs> Philip Zelikow. Zelikow, he did the 9-11 commission report. This, if you can do math, this is before 2001. This is Zelikow and John Public Deutsch math. from the CIA and future Secretary of Defense Ashton Carter combating catastrophic terrorism now if we go to bernard lewis's article real quick i'll forget so we got, so like got our favorite people involved with printing this magazine that's not the point let's go to bernard lewis osama bin laden license to kill i think is the article here it is license to kill osama bin laden's de- declaration of jihad you can look into bernard lewis maybe he has a political bias you should know about before you read the article um Talking about the Jews and Crusaders, Osama bin Laden's here to disrupt the world, and he makes a good case for this future soon-to-be-well-known terrorist taking the scene. And then you have the catastrophic terrorism tackling the new danger, weapons of mass destruction, uh, like just out of just like out of a t- Hollywood Tom Clancy novel. Down here, you've got the uh, Ford Foundation, Ashton Carter, CIA, MIT, uh, Zelikow uh, came from the National Security Council. Uh, we also have National Security Council, sorry. Uh, elaborate international networks have developed among organized criminals, drug traffickers. Oh, like BCCI, arms dealers like Adnan Khashoggi, BCCI, Iran-Contra. And bin Laden works with all these people with the CIA and MI6. Specifically mentioned World Trade Center, like Pearl Harbor, this event would divide uh, our past and future into a before and after. Remember the post 9-11 world that we all live in? That's what they were talking about in 1998. So when AJ, Alex Jones, is saying that thing 
in July. Well, it's probably because like, he read articles like this. That's all I'm pointing out. So it's not that he's a soothsayer, has some magic connection, predicting the future. There are journals where the people he's talking about write down their thoughts and plans for the future. Royal Institute of International Affairs was this one right here. Britain's collusion with radical Islam. I'm glad America never had a collision course with that collusion of radical Islam coming to shape our post 9-11 world. Now, that already had shaped much of the pre 9-11 world for the past century. I put that clip conveniently because I just saw the documentary in part earlier today. Mm -hmm. So the clip that we selected from that documentary is meant to serve as background for what you're about to see next. What we showed you was how Alex Jones started at Cable Access, built himself up by doing two things, calling out apparent contradictions and doing activism, doing activism and, and asking people to call the White House switchboard that day might have seemed like a crazy thing to do at the time. I mean, really, no one's really attacked us on American soil successfully since Pearl Harbor. Alex, come on, you know. But he's like, hey, I know about the people that write these documents and they do what they say they will do. They they not writing this down for no reason. They're pointing toward the future they're trying to create. So later on, people might say, oh, OK, so that's interesting. Now, with the lawsuit that's going on, let's uh, break this open. I think it started this past Monday. It's in Texas. It's on the YouTube channel Law and Crime Network is where you can find it. Go into their video section. You can find day one, day two, day three, day four. Um, and I don't know where the uh, uh, depositions or pre-trial anything is, but from the, the live trial this past week, that's where the videos are, right? So I'm going to refer to them. Uh, the first clip uh, that they did was opening statements by the plaintiffs. So that's the, uh, the guy that looks like... Uh, <laughs> an actor out of a B movie and he's given a PowerPoint presentation that he didn't share with the other side. And it's interesting. And we might actually watch that clip. Cause I want to show like, that's the most damning clip against Jones and Infowars is what you're going to see in the plaintiff's mm -hmm. opening statement where you can't yeah. really object. They, they gave him a lot of leeway, a lot of leeway down to him using different color slides to activate juries, neural networks and stuff. Oh, yeah. When oh, you want yeah, him to be angry, show them a red slide. It was crazy. Yep. Oh, then yeah. you have his um, instincts for combat and war, you know, blood. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So then Alex's attorney, this guy, Renaud, um, he gives like a counter, you know, his, his opening statements. Right. So now from those two, you got these two claims. Now I just want to break down the claim of the plaintiff. The claim of the plaintiff is, he said, you got to focus on this one number. And I'm going to show this to you. You got to focus on this one number. And that number is 24%. Do you know what 24% represents, Tony? The number of people do not believe that, or that believe that Sandy Hook was uh, a false flag. Or an inside job or something like that. False right? flag, inside job, children didn't die. I mean, insert any number. Conspiracy believe in conspiracy theories surrounding the Sandy Hook narrative. So when he said that, I said, wow, that's a lot of people. Are you telling me that Alex Jones is so influential that he got 24% of Americans? Almost a quarter to of believe, Americans. A quarter of America to believe that something other than the official story happened at Sandy Hook. That's interesting. And then I thought, well, maybe his poll is based on bullshit. So we'll have to check that out, right? So that's well, we know one polling. part of it. So that's one number you need to know, 24%. 
is according to the claims of the plaintiff, they think something other than the official narrative happened at Sandy Hook. The other number that you have to understand is the plaintiff is seeking $150 million. And they make it very so clear. You're going to see the PowerPoint. It's a, it's a he's civil been case. Well, he's already been charged guilty in civil court. Now okay. it's a, now it's an argument for how much should be paid out. Right. Which doesn't so, make any sense because, well, I won't. Get well, let me just explain the situation because I'm not going to judge the situation. It's an ongoing case. My mind is open. I'm trying to be objective in all this. No, I'm not arguing. The, the case was brought and discovery happened. Discovery was fulfilled from what I understand from InfoWars. And then the other side claimed discovery wasn't fulfilled. The judge decided, uh, you know, kind of mistrial, like deciding, mm-hmm. uh, decide against Alex's favor. A judgment, an administrative judgment without going through the whole process was rendered against him. And Based now it's not to find out if he did these things or if he's guilty, but how much damage did he do in the whole trial? There's 44 hours allotted for the trial. The judge said at one point, I think yesterday, um, and they've gone through like maybe nine of nine of it. So it's going to be another week or two of this yeah. sort of thing. That's going to go on. Um, and the, the gist of it is <clears throat> they're seeking damages. So it's only about damages. If you can't, you know, he's that's already decided he's already guilty. Yeah. He can't really defend himself in a traditional way. The lawyer on his side doesn't object nearly as much as he could. If you were yeah. trying to tap the brake, but at this point he's like a captain of the sinking ship. So, you know, it's, it's not, uh, it's not like a, a good winnable case for him. You know what I'm saying? It, it looks well, bad especially with the opening around. statement from the plane. Like it's not. So Alex said some things. And... Oh, of course. Yeah. There, there's mistakes to be made on the Jones Infowars journalistic integrity and process and method side for sure. But my point is the plaintiffs are seeking 150 million because Tony, they say, Hey, the Infowars store brought in 165 million over three years. Mm-hmm. And they don't tell the jury or anyone else really playing that Alex had a $50 million operation like in 2013. So like, yeah, you might bring in a lot of money, but that overhead of that operation, all those people he's paying for, et cetera, the bandwidth payments on band dot videos got to be hundreds of thousands of money. When I started helping you Satellite guys Satellite access, all that stuff. 2011, that's when I first was really exposed to Alex Jones regularly. And since then he is... Uh, reinvented his entire operation, I think at least twice, including trying to do things like a social media, not a social media, it was like a um, kind of like what you guys are doing with the um, uh, research media group sort of thing, all that, like a Facebook style community. He had all the, he had re- uh, added more journalists. He had um, completely redid the entire operation in Austin. Yeah, he invested his I money. I mean, like in other words, what people don't get, like, is if you spend, <clears throat> it could be a hundred million dollar revenue business but all that revenue is going out to production and overhead and you know projects and basically in other words like if it doesn't drive profit or you're losing money and you're, then you're not really point. worth that much like right. yeah you can liquidate assets like okay so like that's why so a couple of weeks ago or a month or two ago they filed bankruptcy people remember this and people were like why would what's going on why oh you know well, Alex Jones is bankrupt, you know, he can't, well, bankruptcy, part of bankruptcy is really auditing, like the total net worth of a business. And I wonder if that's They're not allowed to mention his net worth anymore. You'll hear the judge say, yeah, yeah. So the whole thing is interesting. Here's who doesn't know what's going on. The witnesses and the jury, because the camera is there when they all have to leave the room and you get to hear what's really going on. That's why it's a great education to go ahead and watch something like this and understand what the process is going on, right? So here's the angle. 
personal injury lawyers go to these families and say, hey, look, we can take $150 million from this guy. Are you in? Eight families say, yeah. What they didn't tell them is Alex Jones is probably 900,000 in the black, like the, the red, right? Like whatever, red, like yeah. he's in debt. That's he's, in debt. He's, in the he's no longer worth all this money. He didn't pocket all that money. There was a lot of expense in just producing the, the raw materials for his supplements, which they, they shit all over. And yet they can't contest the reviews being legitimate. Right. right. So if people give it good reviews and those are legitimate reviews, isn't that a reflection of the, the product? And they Probably make a big more deal because he doesn't fund his news station with advertising like traditional. He sells his own stuff. So instead of selling somebody else's stuff that you don't know about, he sells his own stuff. That's really suspicious. Well, sells the product. They want to make you think. Support, right. Speaking. So Whether he uses them all or not. That's different. But he tends to. I feel double bad for the parents first off for the incident. And now that they are in being used by these other people with an agenda, because the agenda to get Alex Jones did not start with Sandy hook. The agenda to start to get Alex Jones started when Hillary Clinton got on that radar. And that started 20 years ago. That was way before Sandy hook, what he was talking on the Clinton family and then going into the election and all these other things that heated up again. And that's when the Megyn Kelly story came out. And if he had never taken debate on the Megyn Kelly story, all the stuff in the trial would never happen. He had already had apologies on the record at that point. He had already done outreach, but when he got suckered into the Megyn Kelly interview, that thing set it off. And you're going to hear that over and over again throughout the trial. If you choose to, to check it out. So what's the best way to get you interested? I thought maybe we should share the clip of the expert witness who talks about journalism and the proper steps that need to be taken uh, responsibly to do journalism with morals, ethics, and integrity. Now, he might have a little political bias, but he had really good hair for a 67-year-old dude. So I gave him a good listen. And then there's another expert, a social media expert, Columbia, Stanford, very well-spoken, uses all the official authoritative sources, you know, Google Scholar, all these sort of things, right? And I thought that could be really insightful for you guys to learn about. But in the last couple hours, I thought what you guys should really have here for the time capsule of this week is the opening statements. Let's hear in the most damning words without having to present a shred of evidence in the statement. You know, it comes later in the trial. The evidence gets rolled out for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. They're saying they have this evidence. Let's look at the perspective. Let's see what mistakes were made on the InfoWars side, right? Dealing with people that maybe weren't vetted, not having an editorial process to fact check yourself before other people get your dick in the ringer, all these sort of things. The hypocrisy, though, like, but that's the all fact true. When they say it was that, intentional that these people like InfoWars, right? That's they're the part saying InfoWars intentional. Why might have to be like, wait a minute, because. I am going to introduce an exhibit that's not in the trial. Let's go to, uh, can you guys bring up that uh, Hartford Current article? I had looked this up years ago because I live in Connecticut. And the Hartford Current is the oldest newspaper in the nation. It was founded by Ben Franklin's brother, if memory serves. It used to be New England Current. Now the Hartford Current is kind of the representation of that. During the Sandy Hook trial process, investigations, those sort of things. There was a group of journalists from the Hartford Current, and they had an FBI FOIA request. And when they got the results back, it was all like blacked out. Technically, it's white blocks, so it's not black, but it's like redacted. 
redacted information. And they right. printed in, I recall, I thought it was on the front page of the paper to be like, hey, we're the Hartford Current. We asked the FBI and they gave us this redacted thing. Look at this, right? So I have the electronic version. Now the link I have for this story, it's still on their site, but there's no hyperlinks for references to the reports that they used to make the story. So then I used the Wayback Machine and there were hyperlinks in that version of the story. So they have since been removed apparently. Not necessarily maliciously, just like new websites happen and stuff like that. I understand. But mm, when I tried sure. to get to the Wayback Machine source material, um, I was still, I couldn't find a picture of the front page of the paper. I couldn't find the report itself. These things seem to not, as you'll hear in the trial, they make it look like everything's widely available and easily found. Some of these things, this is a credible piece that should be investigated, are not being easily found. And to whose benefit? Does it help the family? with the heavily blacked out Sandy Hook records. Cause if you saw a picture of the page, it's like every 10 words, you get a word. Yeah. You can't make I mean, heads or tail of it. Just to read the headline, FBI releases heavily blacked out Sandy Hook records. This is from Dave Altamari, uh, April 24th, 2014. Uh, just to read a little bit here. The FBI has released about 175 pages of heavily blacked out documents from this Sandy Hook elementary school massacre investigation. Of the 175 pages released in response to a current freedom of information request, 64, excuse me, 64 were completely redacted, and most of the other 111 pages were heavily redacted. The current uh, submitted the request in January after state police released a report on the December 14, 2012 shooting that left 21st graders and six women dead at the Newton School. Now, I'm not claiming that these redactions are malicious or even censorship. I understand they're trying to retain the privacy of the individuals and the situations of first grader or kindergartners' bodies. I got it. However, I'm not the one that thinks it's suspicious. People at the Hartford Current thought it was suspicious. They wrote an article about it. They, they said, hey, there's like a lot of redactions in this. We got nothing to report on this, except that there are a lot of redactions. We don't know what the report from that is what it told me. And maybe right. they clarified or retracted that later. And I'm not, you know, sure. Send me the link. I'd, I'd be happy to check that out. On the other hand, my point would be this. When you have a story with an investigation from an authoritative agency investigating, uh, in this case, the FBI, with that much redactions, what does it do to the public? like uh, the crew over InfoWars. It makes them say, hey, what's in these redactions? And it makes people hypothesize what goes in those blank spots. What are yeah, all these blank spots? setting the conditions for then what they're accusing, they're indicting, and well, then accusing and finding guilty of people are trying Alex to put Jones together the puzzles. entire InfoWars operation. So it's hard enough that there's puzzle pieces from other puzzles mixed in. So which, you know, but when you take puzzle pieces that are necessary to solve the puzzle and you take them out and say it's national security or that's classified or that's top secret, they are creating an environment that would, if it was a Petri dish, grow something called conspiracy theorists. Correct. You're allowed to speculate. This is free speech. Now, where it becomes an issue is where if he were to intentionally sort of rouse individuals to go incite violence or cost the parents. And that's the malicious damage the part is where it's not yeah. freedom. Right. Correct. Okay. So, but the problem Alex is Jones... defining that line is very difficult because you have to define, you have to be able to show clear intent. Now, in civil cases, it's not guilt beyond a reasonable, or it's already guilt. It's already doubt. guilt. Now it's just I'm how sorry, much for, for him. Right. Right. So, and so it's, it's a really murky sort of like gray zone area. I mean, there's a lot of different 
standards and it depends on the state and jurisdiction as to like what definition they uphold for evidence in that regard or how much evidence weight i mean it's yeah all right the point is like it it can be very circumstantial um okay and it's a very much left up to the yeah it's a very subjective thing that the 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 jury can say one dollar or they can say 200 million dollars And then it's going to be, can you they get blood from a stone or are you going to work with whatever the guy's offering or got or whatever? Right now, there's a couple aspects to this, right? There are the things that InfoWars has done on their own. And then there are other things being attributed to InfoWars because they magnified the claims of person A, B or C. Alex Jones had nothing to do with whoever, whomever went in and shot those kids, whether there's it was no Adam direct, Lanza. I've not seen any evidence or yeah obviously not with those he had nothing to do inspiring that that horrific shooting to happen and yet in the public eye people think sandy hooks alex jones well that's crazy that's a false equivalent that's like people saying like 9-11 and it's like the wurlitzer the mighty fucking wurlitzer out there repeating it for everybody all the time so there are these inaccurate perspectives. So some of those inaccurate perspectives, hyperbolized perspectives are not just held by Alex Jones. They're also held by the plaintiffs, attorneys, the, the personal injury attorneys who have went and told these families hyperbolized stories about Jones because they don't really watch his program. Yeah. They think now here's Maybe their claim. They- their claim is, Tony, because Jones has a store that sells nutraceuticals, that they shape the stories and the news to make people buy more nutraceuticals. I'm like, no, they actually don't have a whole lot to, to do with each other. It's like, you want to be healthy, get some nutraceuticals, get some vitamins. He in has your body. his doctor segments on and stuff, but they're not. They're, they're he not hasn't had those for years, though. I, and that was when he was developing the first stuff. Right. But he just white labels other stuff out there and makes it better. And that's I'm the saying it's a tertiary at best part of the show. If there's any sort of right. Of, yeah. They also try to say, speaking of tertiary plaintiff's attorney says, isn't 35 percent of the show used to push the, the product? And Troyer's like, no, it's more like 10 or 15 percent. He's like, so you'd say it's in the ballpark, right? Like they're <laughs> they're trying to force the truth into their narrative. And that was a theory that was floated by Jones and Schroyer. They did a segment earlier in the week where they talked about it and they apparently Schroyer broke the rule. There's a rule and you can't talk about the court case while it's going on. Right. Yeah. yeah, He got chastised for that. I think the other day, but the point was they had talked about the things they couldn't say when you can't say first amendment, you can't say free speech. You can't all these things that were like part of the shaping of what is kind of like uh, a public defamation trial for purposes that are political, not just oh, yeah. malicious damages to those parents. Yeah. This is political. This is sending a message to other media producers like this. He, whatever one's opinion is of Alex Jones, he is the paragon of alternative media. He has been able to replicate as much better than any other alternative media host, the sort of mainstream sort of turnover of information but present it with an alternative sort of understanding of what's going on with globalism and the new world order and geopolitics. So if they are able to take him down through this roundabout way, very clever, very evil. Um, well, they didn't get him, him with the WikiLeaks a, pizza place, but they no, almost they, they're did. getting him through this roundabout, like and civil case. Right. And they, well, they, they also take got him January down. 6th. They have a well, full spectrum ba- dominance going I, against. I think that's them. their yeah. back pocket is. I think January 6th. Which like there is there's less there 
than there is with this case in regards to like, I mean, Alex, you can see in bullhorning, don't, you know, don't march in the Capitol, don't fall into this is a false flag. Like he's screaming there. And yet. Right. But. So before we go to this intermission clip, which we're going to play the plaintiff's opening statement, Alex has continued his trend of calling out contradictions, apparent contradictions, and he's continued his trend of calling people into action. Unfortunately, in the Sandy Hook, uh, Sandy Hook case, there were several apparent contradictions, which turned out to not be contradictions in some way, shape or form. Right. So he goes through CNN using a blue screen. That's not really a thing. And there's like explanations for some of these. And they legally they waited till they got him. They're like, he said enough of them. We can get them. Yeah. And then they pounced. And it's it's been and a long started, time. I coming. think it actually started. With, yeah. Yeah. It's, They've been yeah. trying for a long time, man. They and sat some on of the same too, people though. being persecuted for January 6th. They were also back when the, you know, Texas pizza place thing happened with that organization. Right. So there's been a couple of these honey trap situations where it's like they're going to redact some information. So you jump to conclusions and think the kid in Pakistan or what, because you're going to hear these accusations. It's a very strange. Statement. It's but it's true. It's a very sort of uh, it's a modality of a honeypot where they sort of bait you into it. When BBC prints the photo, but you get blamed for circulating it. Yeah, that's a honeypot because, yeah, you know, they there's a I'm but not going to say the name, but there's a name. There's they're going to hear it. One of the children that was a victim, his picture ends up in a suicide bombing photo over in Pakistan. BBC covers it. Infowars covered it because someone else published it. They didn't publish it, but they're they're the ones that got the copyright strikes that led to the lawsuits and all this other that domino effect I mean, besides like and there are many issues they made there's just the issue of free speech though i mean this is central right now in regards to because you're allowed like as far as i understand it you're allowed to say the most belligerent want like absurd nonsensical anti-unreal anti-reality unrealistic as long as it's not directed with intention to cause harm to a specific person or persons specifically with intent now trying to so an um, angle would be tony hypothetically prove if somebody was harassing sandy hook parents and ccing infowars on those emails that would such be that infowars corporate knew that person a b or c was doing x y or z then there is an issue there and that's not it. something that we can learn you know like we can't emulate and carry forward we have to learn from that mistake and people not do that Right. Because it's a it's as an analogy to like uh, contract law. Yet you have to have some sort of understanding and sort of communication of not only intent, but what's being traded. And the other each person has to understand, not just in the words of the contract, but like the, the conceptual abstractions of what's being determined or else people can just play word games and contracts and then people don't understand it and then they get taken for a ride so and then the like, last honey trap they got them with was megan kelly no oh, yeah that was an actual honeypot trap that deal. was one, the traditional yeah, was she, she flashed and leg did a little sharon stone <laughs> cross cross on cross her legs and he was You're like the joe rogan here's thing. your four minutes of fame kid so i just right. like yeah it's just frustrating because even like for all the and Alex Jones has said some pretty insane shit over the years, um, but you're you're allowed to do that. I mean, I, I want to see I what I want to see, and maybe you know more about this, Rich. Is like, do they have that smoking gun evidence? 
on a civil court and a civil trial, you don't need that. But I like I'm almost approaching this from a criminal trial. Do they really have some sort of like uh, links in they, the chain that they can prove prove causally beyond a reasonable doubt that it's they that Infowars and Alex Jones specifically knew that he was intentionally uh, galvanizing and riling up individuals that were going to harass. Parents. Evidence of that regard has not yet been presented because the, what they're catching on them on are emails they didn't really read or weren't really, you know, because oh, no, the email shit. Right. Oh, I can talk endlessly about that when discovery, in a business context. Yeah. So there's a whole there's a whole lot business to law context. Yeah. Right. So as somebody who has represented themselves pro se in court, I'm interested in the process and what they're preparing and what the argument like. There's a whole set of strategy. You know, oh, if you like God. chess, start sitting in on courtroom drama of rea- of reality, real people with real things going on and start getting learnified on that. I use learnified, you know, facetiously you think, to make you, you laugh because this is a comedy show where we learn about reality and have a good time laughing. The lawyer, <laughs> even if it's not uh, flicking off the plaintiff's lawyer. Do you think that's like sort of pre-staged in his mind? Okay, so uh, is this like one of this is a power play thing? Like they're gonna either they're friends and they already agreed, hey, we're gonna make bank on this, and they'll they'll fight as lawyers in the courtroom (laughs) and give each other the finger, right? Because I pick up on the vibe way more sense. Wait, I only saw the the flash giving them the the bird. I only saw that today. So I watched the I I got I was already done with the trial, in other words. Like I didn't see that part of that space. I mean, you see it because they're on weekend break right now. But what I already picked up on was the two lawyers did not get along well and they were they were digging in each other. But I think that's a distractionary tactic because maybe Alex's guy is distracted by that and not objecting enough. There's a lot of hearsay there is. But on oh, the other yeah. hand, it's already, he's already been judged too. against. He's already yeah. been found to be guilty. And now it's just about how much. Right. So the lawyers kind of cruising it, maybe tapping the brakes a little bit. I don't know. Hence why this this is an interesting trial being live streamed because he's already been found guilty. He cannot present evidence beyond just trying to lessen the severity of rewarding money. And he's not in the room most of the time. Jones and his, his three bodyguards, like he's there. I mean, I wouldn't want to sit there through the clips you've already seen either. Right. So he's in there when he needs to be in there, but he has a corporate representative, Daria. And uh, she does a really good job under pressure. As far, I mean, not, no. It's she got there in 2015 after these events mostly had already happened, right? So she's kind of like picking it up real time, trying to get it done. And the lawyer's like, hey, you didn't prepare. You didn't read this. But no one told her to what extent on right. these 1,500 exhibits she had to be knowledgeable, right? So, but that lawyer will be really nice to his, his uh, expert, and his expert, uh, you know, uh, what was it? They had a very chummy, they're very cordial relationship, very, very warm and happy relationship going on right there. She happens to have a real political axe to grind, that expert, right? Which I found to be interesting and that and- they actually got it on the record because they're like, didn't you tweet that you thought all Republicans were white supremacists? And she's like, well, you'd have to show me the tweet. Then he shows her her tweet. She's like, well, I, I can't authenticate. That was really me who tweeted. <laughs> I was like, okay, really? Okay. And this is what they call an expert witness. Like, let that sink in a little bit. Well, like, that's, yeah. that's, that's one of my... Yeah, yeah, I know she's Oxford trained. And all this stuff, but yeah. I know. 
I'm going to let the opening statements speak for itself. Let's now go to the Sandy Hook hoax defamation trial uh, featuring Alex Jones and part of the InfoWars crew. Uh, yeah. A trial that's still in progress will continue next week. So we're on day four up to now. All right, I've got day one pulled up. It's about 54 minutes in. It's, I think yeah, the, the plaintiff's I, opening statement's what we're looking for. <clears throat> yes. And you might be able to fast forward a couple minutes into it because I think that they're just getting rolling. That was the first thing in the day. All right. Like I said, Mark Bankston, I first want to talk to you about two rules. Right after his clicker starts working. first rule. You can't recklessly tell lies about someone. You can't do it. If you do it, and you cause someone damage, you're responsible. This is the second rule. You can't recklessly tell lies about something important to someone. In this case, like the death of their child. If you do that, you know you're going to cause them harm. You're responsible for that. You're here because those rules are broken. And they were broken in a way in which the world has never seen before. Before we get into that story, you're going to need to understand two things. Who is Alex Jones? What is InfoWars? This is Alex Jones and InfoWars. Alex Jones is one of the country's most popular and most influential media personalities. InfoWars is one of the nation's most popular and widely watched media networks. Now, some of you may be forgiven for not knowing about Mr. Jones or the fact that InfoWars is one of our widely watched news networks. And the reason is, is because we now live in a world of bubbles. We now live in a world where we all watch different things. We don't all just turn on the news on one of the three major networks and watch it back in, like, in the 1950s. We now live in a world where significant parts of this country get their information from things that other parts of the country would never even see. And over the last decade, Mr. Jones has become incredibly influential over a segment of this country. And the thing about Mr. Jones' business is it doesn't quite operate like most media businesses do. Right? Most media businesses are a bit different than Mr. Jones. Mr. Jones started on radio. Right? That's where he became a big star. But Mr. Jones is one of the first people in this country, of media people, to understand the internet and what it could do. And long before most me major media organizations even made their first steps into the internet, in the very early days of the 2000s, Mr. Jones was on the internet. And as a result, he has these radio shows, a live broadcast nearly every day. He has an internet website, Infowars.com, where you can view videos, news articles. And he has a YouTube site, or at least he did until very recently, where he got billions of views on that page. The other thing that's different about Mr. Jones's business is that most media businesses make their money through advertising. And you're going to hear from the evidence in this case that Mr. Jones makes a little money that way. That's how they operate. But the main way that this business operates affects the news they cover. Because what they really do, the primary way the business operates is to sell products. As you see here on the screen, in Exhibit 15. This is an, another example that you'll see in the sidebar of the articles you'll see in this case. 
here's a product called DNA Force. It, it claims it's going to overhaul your body's cellular engines and protect them from reactive oxygen species. Now, these kinds of products dictate the kind of news that has to be told on InfoWars because you want to try to attract the audience that will buy these products. So that's what Mr. Jones did. His, his programming is very fantastical in some respects. In some respects, it's meant to convince you that powerful, shadowy forces in the world out to get all of us and have put a cloak over reality. And Mr. Jones is going to take that cloak off and show you the real truth. That's, how his, that's what his media network's about. And for the past 10 years or so, Mr. Jones has become very influential. He has gained a position in media maybe unlike any other media figure in this country. And when he did that, Ten years ago, in 2012, when his popularity was truly exploding, Mr. Jones made a choice. And he made that choice. God, there we go. Made that choice on December 14, 2012. That was the day of the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. Really one of the darkest days in American history. When you got to think back to 2012 when this happened. We've never seen anything like this before. I mean, the idea of someone coming in and slaughtering first graders, we were all, all of us, in like a collective state of shock over this. But not Mr. Jones. You see, Mr. Jones made a choice that day. Mr. Jones decided he was going to go on the air that day with the title of a video. And that video, was called Connecticut School Massacre. Looks like false flag, says witnesses. Now what's a false flag? It's actually, it's interesting, it's an older term, it's a naval term from 17th, 16th century. And what it means is, let's say you were a Spanish ship and you wanted to attack a French ship, but you didn't want to get Spain in trouble. Well, what you could do is you could put up a British flag on your ship. You could fly a false flag. That's what that meant. So that you could attack the French ship without getting Spain in trouble. That's where the term comes from. But in the modern sense, in Mr. Jones's world, false flag now means something very different. A false flag is when a mass tragedy, <coughs> shooting, or bombing was actually staged by the United States government and particularly the Central Intelligence Agency. And that is fake. Didn't happen. I want to show you Mr. Jones on the day of Sandy Hook. As news was coming in of Sandy Hook, on his broadcast he called Connecticut School Massacre looks like false flag, says witnesses. And you'll see that Mr. Jones is talking to somebody who has a relative in Newtown. And he's trying to coax out the information to prove that this was a false flag. Let's take a look at that clip. I said, this is the attack. Look, people got to find the clips the last two months. I said, they are launching attacks. They're getting ready. I can see them warming up with Obama. They've got a bigger majority in the Congress now in the Senate. They are going to come after our guns, look for mass shootings. And then magically it happens. They are coming. They are coming. They are coming. 
as you'll come to see, when Mr. Jones says magically it happened, that's sarcasm. Mr. Jones means that it was planned, that it was all staged. That's what he's talking about. And over the next couple of weeks, you will see in this case in, of, the, of the broadcast in 2012, that December, Mr. Jones continually was churning this idea that Sandy Hook was fake. By just one month after the shooting, Alex Jones, who would become patient zero for the Sandy Hook hoax, he had created a sensation. And by a month later, he had aired an entire episode entitled, Why People Think Sandy Hook is a Hoax. And for some of you, I think, and it hit me right at the beginning, is why? Why is he doing this? It's guns. It's about guns. Mr. Jones knew that his audience were worried about this. Maybe even rightly, they, they were worried about, you know, people who wanted to own AR-15s, maybe there were going to be some new registration checks, or maybe they were going to ban the AR-15s, right? That's people that had that worry. But Mr. Jones played on that fear. He knew it. He knew they felt it. And so here's what he did. Jones told his audience that Obama was coming for their guns. So he told his audience that Obama staged Sandy Hook. And not that Obama ordered the murder of those children. But that there were never any children at all. That the school was fake. That it wasn't an operating school. That the parents were liars. Paid actors. Your Honor? No. Well, Your Honor has ordered that all demonstrative exhibits be shared with the other side before. And this PowerPoint was not. So. These are words that he's saying, overruled. Okay. And yeah, I've shared all the images in this. Part. Let's go back. Mr. Jones said that the school was fake, and it wasn't an operating school. He said that the parents were liars, paid actors. He said the funerals were fake. Their tears were fake. Everything was fake. So that Mr. Jones could have this story on his broadcast. This was a massive campaign of lies. That's what the evidence is going to show. And in fact, it is difficult to wrap your head around it. We have brought for you we're going to be showing you in this trial dozens of videos. 44, I believe. We're going to try to show you before it's all over. And we can't show you all of them, and I'm going to tell you why. If we were to sit down and try to watch all the videos that we have about San Diego, if I just put them on and let's play them and let you watch them, and we're going to spend the rest of this week doing it, we couldn't do it. would not have enough time for you to sit here every single day and watch it. So I'm going to have to show you what I can I'm going to respect your time in that. And we're going to be showing you clips from over years and years and years, and we're going to try to give you the full breadth of what happened. And the other problem we face is we don't even have all the videos. We know there's more out there. You're going to hear testimony about that. You're going to hear expert witnesses talk about it. We don't have it all. We can only show you what we do have. Right? That we, no one really even knows how massive this was. Because some of that is lost to the sands of time. But this was done, this massive campaign of lies was accomplished because Mr. Jones recruited wild extremists from fringes of the internet who were willing to be as cruel 
as Mr. Jones needed them to be. The first one of these is a man named Wolfgang Halvig. You're going to hear a lot about this man during this trial. Wolfgang Halvig, you will hear, was a former Florida State Trooper. And then apparently he started some sort of security business. And Mr. Halvig was on InfoWars all the time. They just had him on over and over and over. Because Mr. Jones needed somebody who could pretend like they weren't going to support what he was saying. And Mr. Halvig was willing to do that for attention. I want to show you, of the many, many times that Mr. Halvig was on, let's first watch this first clip from September 25th, 2014, in an episode entitled, Connecticut PD Has FBI Falsify Crime Statistics. All right, and what you're going to see in this video is Mr. Jones describing Mr. Halvig, and then I want you to pay attention because you're going to see something very strange. You're going to see Mr. Jones do mocking imitations of the parents' crime to try to say that they're fake. You're going to see Mr. Jones say that there are photos of their children that prove that they're still alive, that they faked their deaths. Let's take a look at what Mr. Jones said. We're, we're fearless, folks. Support us. Support Wolfgang. This is not a game. This, they are hopping man. We're covering this. CNN admits they did fake scud attacks on themselves back in 1991-1990. Would they stage this? I don't know. Do penguins live in Antarctica? Wolfgang W. Halbig's our guest, former state police officer that worked for the Customs Department, and then over the last decades created one of the biggest, most successful school safety training groups, and he just has gone and investigated, and it's as funny as a $3 bill, and they've been... But man, Wolfgang, you dropped a bombshell of your scores of points, your 16 questions. If you've got a school of 100 kids, and then nobody can find them, and then you've got parents laughing on, <laughs> and then they walk over to the camera and go, <laughs> and, 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 but not just one, but a bunch of parents doing this, and then photos of kids that are still alive, they said died. I mean, they think we're so dumb that it's 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 really hidden in plain view. And so the preponderance, I, mean, I thought they had some scripting early on to exacerbate and milk the crisis, as Rahm Emanuel said, but when you really look at it, where are the lawsuits? There would be incredible lawsuits and payouts, but there haven't been any filed, nothing. I've never seen this. Uh, this is incredible. That's Mr. Halbig you're seeing on the screen right there. Mr. Halbig will come on the show and they'll do interviews, and we'll see some from Mr. Halbig too. We're going to see some videos of him talking. But that's the guy that he would be bringing on these shows to talk about this over and over and over and over again. The following day, they published this article on Infowars.com. This article reads, FBI says no one killed at Sandy. Now, let's just make this clear. Everyone now agrees. You're going to hear testimony from the author of this article. This is obviously wrong. You're going to hear. He didn't read the chart right. He just didn't scroll down. And they went with this and put it out to their audience. And the important thing about this is this story was InfoWars third most popular story ever. This was a viral sensation. Millions and millions of people saw this article. You're going to see the data on that. And when Mr. Jones realized the explosive popularity of these kinds of things, he doubled down. 
You gotta remember, we're two years out from Sandy Hook. No network is covering Sandy Hook anymore. Mr. Jones, though, saw how this was doing to his audience. It became an obsession at InfoWars. You're gonna see that there are parts of Mr. Jones' show. You know, he has his live show, and he has these internet videos he puts up, and he also, you know, he does a radio show. So he has call-in guests sometimes, or call-in listeners, who will call in and talk about things with Mr. Jones. And they were eating the Sandy Hook stuff up with a spoon, and Mr. Jones kept inflaming it. Here's an example from December 29th, 2014. This was called America, the False Democracy. In this clip, you are going to hear Mr. Jones say that these children did not die. Sandy Hook is 100% fake. Uh, let's talk to uh, Kevin. Kevin, uh, go ahead. Uh, you're on the air. Hi, I'm uh, calling about Sandy Hook. Uh, basically, my take on it is I live about 50 miles from Newtown, and the whole thing is pretty much the next step in reality TV because with other false flags like 9-11 or Oklahoma City or the Boston bombing, at least something happened. With Sandy Hook, there's no there there. You've got a bunch of people walking around a parking lot is pretty much what it comes down to. And none of the other... No, no, I've had the investigators on. I've had... The state police have gone public, you name it. it. The whole thing is a giant hoax. And the problem is, how do you get, deal with a total hoax? I mean, it's just, how do you even convince the public something's a total hoax? Very hard, because, you know, anytime I talk about this issue with people, you know, they you get criticized, blackball, ridicule, call every name in the book, or they respond with the magic words. They were saying on TV, there's no statement more proof positive of somebody who's been brainwashed by that stuff, mainstream media, than those words. They were saying on TV. Well, I always tell people the same thing. Go out and prove the official story. And there's and I knew the millisecond this happened with that now fake picture of the kids being let out of the school, that this there's nothing that's going to sell this agenda like dead elementary school kids. No, that's right. The general public doesn't know the school was actually closed the year before. They don't know they've sealed it all, demolished the building. They don't know that uh, they had the kids going in circles in and out of the building as a photo op, blue screen, green screens they got caught using. I mean, the whole thing. But remember, this is the same White House that's been caught running the fake bin Laden raid that's come out and been faked. Uh, it's the same White House that got caught running all these other fake events over and over again. And it's the same White House that says, I never said that you can keep your doctor when he did say you can keep your doctor. People just instinctively know that there's a lot of fraud going on. Uh, but it took me about a year with Sandy Hook to come to grips with the fact that the whole thing was fake. I mean, even I couldn't believe it. I knew they jumped on it, used the crisis, hyped it up, but then I did deep research, and my gosh, it just pretty much didn't happen. This kept up in the 2015. The next part of our story. <clears throat> You'll see here another one of these call-in segments in an episode on January 13th, 2015. It was called Why We Accept Government Lies. Same kind of format here, except now Mr. Jones is starting to add new stuff. One of the things you'll hear in this video is that now Mr. Jones is saying that there were photos of a child in, at Sandy Hook that were used to stage a fake mass shooting in Pakistan. All right? It's confusing, but we'll get into it. I want you to take a look at this video from January 13, 2015. To make yeah, when well, you're trying to, I mean, decipher cloak and dagger, dirty tricks, it, it's pretty hard to do. It's just that when you then you learn that they were funded by Western funding, 
The, then you learn that it was the same Amarillo Lockheed connection underwear bomber. Then those are big red flags that they were patsy provocateurs. The classic MO has been followed. And then, yeah, it kind of becomes a red herring, you know, to say the whole thing was staged. Because they have staged events before, but then you learn the school had been closed and reopened, and you got video of the kids going in circles in and out of the building, and they don't call the rescue choppers for two hours, and then they tear the building down and seal it, and they, they get caught using blue screens, and uh, an a email by Bloomberg comes out in the lawsuit where he's telling his people, get ready in the next 24 hours to capitalize on a shooting. Uh, yeah, so Sandy Hook is a synthetic, completely fake, with actors, in my view, manufactured. I couldn't believe it at first. I knew they had actors there, clearly, but I thought they killed some real kids. And it just shows how bold they are that they clearly used actors. I mean, they even ended up using photos of kids killed in mass shootings here in a fake mass shooting in Turkey. So, yeah, or, 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 or Pakistan. The sky is now the limit. I appreciate your call. Shortly after this, InfoWars got its first YouTube strike. This means somebody made a complaint against the channel. In this case, it was a father of a victim. It was a father who had complained to InfoWars because their son's photo was used in one of their videos. It was this whole thing about the Pakistan shooting, and, and we'll get into that. It's not important now. It's obviously a lie. But when they used the son's picture, they complained to YouTube for copyright reasons. That's how they figured they could stop him. So YouTube issued him a strike. But InfoWars smartened up after this, and they realized don't use pictures of the children. That's what you're going to see. So from this point forward, you'll see Mr. Jones react about this and say, this is you know unjust to me, and I'm going to keep doing it. And it did. It kept up. Mr. Jones had Mr. Halbig all through 2015. And you'll see on March 4th, 2015, in this video, it's out of New Bombshell Sandy Hook Information Index. Now, I want, before we look at this video, I want to talk about, you've heard some of them already, Mr. Jones is going to keep repeating these same false claims. He's not questioning anything. you got to make sure there's a big difference here. He's not questioning He's not going, hmm, something fishy might be going on at Sandy Hook. He's not questions, he's just stating facts falsely. And here they are. You'll hear about Anderson Cooper on a blue screen. And you might know about blue screen from like Marvel movies. This is how they composite somebody into something. The argument here is that Anderson Cooper of CNN did an interview with a parent in Newtown, and they weren't really in Newtown. They were really on a CNN studio in Atlanta, and they faked it and made it look like Anderson Cooper was there with the parent. But these people weren't even at Sandy Hook. lie. You're going to see it's a lie. It's just an obvious lie. You're going to hear them talking about kids walking in circles, going around the building, doing, doing drills. And you're going to see the video he's talking about in, in his videos. He's going to play it. And what's most astonishing is the video he's showing the building in the video isn't even the Sandy Hook school. He just lied to his viewers. It's a firehouse in Newtown, and you're gonna see that this video is hours later in the day when parents were showing up to pick up their kids, find out what happened, and there's a group of adults and teenagers and all walking around the building to get to the front of the building. And Mr. Jones tried to sell this to his audience to say that this was fake. It shows that it was the children were actually being let out of the front of the building and then back into the building. And he'll say, well, you should be getting them away from the building. It's not even Sandy Hook. 
He's going to say, talk about men in SWAT gear caught in the woods. But you're going to see video that proves that they actually knew that the video they're talking about, it's helicopter footage, was taken well into the afternoon, hours after the shooting, had nothing to do with the shooting, and you're going to find out it's some reporters who tried to get too close to the school, take pictures. It's all in the police reports. It's all public. But he tried to convince his viewers that these were um, CIA operatives or whatever in SWAT gear to facilitate the shooting or something. Whatever, whatever false thing he thought was going on here. Let's talk about how the school was actually closed. It was not an operating school. That they just opened it up for this day to stock it full of people and did like a stage production. But it was all not real. And, and it's these kind of statements that you're going to see in this case. And the, and the internal communications inside InfoWars, they knew this was a lie. They're not, they're not that. They, don't, they, they know there's copious evidence out there if you really go look for it that San Diego was open. They were saying this knowing it was false. You'll hear him talk about a Michael Bloomberg email the day before. Michael Bloomberg is the former mayor of New York City. And part of what he has done since being mayor is he's been a real big gun control advocate. And they want to have their viewers believe that Michael Bloomberg sent an email to his supporters saying, hey, 24 hours from now, we're going to have a mass shooting. Everybody get ready to mobilize on it. As if Michael Bloomberg had foreknowledge that they were going to fake this shooting. You're not going to see this email because obviously it doesn't exist. It's made up. Just a lie. You're going to hear about rescue helicopters. Why weren't the rescue helicopters called? But you're going to find out. Mr. Jones doesn't know where the rescue helicopters were coming from. He doesn't know how close the hospital was to San Diego Elementary. And you're going to hear that those EMS, they would have gotten there way faster than a helicopter from way far away. You're going to hear all sorts of things about the ambulances and the EMTs. He tells his audience that they never even allowed EMTs in the building. And, and I'm guessing here is you don't have to get the EMTs in on the conspiracy, right? You just keep them out of the building. They'll never know it was all fake. It's garbage. EMTs went in that building. Anybody can verify it. It's not hard to figure that out. Most of them have given interviews about what they saw that day. It was the worst day of their lives. You're going to hear about that response that day. And yeah, EMTs were in there. He's going to tell you that they sealed the death certificates and that even owning one is a felony. That's on an InfoWars episode you're going to see. And the truth is, any one of you could right now get on, call up the Newtown clerk and get one for $20. Any of the victims. It's just a lie. You're going to hear him say, as you've already heard him say, that there are photos of the victims who are still alive. This is so disgusting, so repulsive, that I feel silly standing here and telling you that's false. But that's what I have to do in this case. That's where we're at. I want to show you a video of him saying all these things. This is when Mr. Halbert comes on the show again. And let's listen to what Mr. Jones has to say. Uh, Mr. Halbert, thanks for coming on. Recap who you are. Recap. Why you question kind of the top 10 or 15 points that I know are on your website uh, of, of why this doesn't add up. And, and, and then now they're really trying to, 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 to seal everything when they could discredit us anytime they want to. Just tell us why Anderson Cooper's nose disappears, watch blue screen, 
just tell us why the people are walking in circles in and out of the building. It appears to be staged. Tell us why they said they didn't catch somebody in the woods when they did. Uh, tell us why the school was closed before and then after, why they've sealed it all, why they've not torn it down. Tell us why Bloomberg sent an email to his people the day before saying, get ready to launch an operation to capitalize on a mass shooting. Tell us why you didn't launch the emergency helicopters. Tell us why the, the ambulance is parked for an hour down the road. Uh, tell us you know, tell us why this appears to be as funny as the $3 bill. Wolfgang, thank you for joining us. And you'll notice these aren't questions. Tell us why this happened. Because it did happen, according to Mr. Jones. It would be like if somebody came up to you and said, tell me why you're a thief. Tell me why you're a liar. Tell me why you're a murderer. It's not a question. That's not what Mr. Jones was doing. You're going to see that by November 2015, there was more people getting involved in this. As I told you, Mr. Jones was recruiting wild extremists from the fringes of the Internet. One of those gentlemen was a man named Jim Fetzer. Jim Fetzer, InfoWars helped distribute his book, Nobody Died at Sandy Hook. Jim Fetzer was a former professor who, in his twilight years, started doing things like this. And wanted his stuff featured on Mr. Jones' show. And InfoWars wanted to help him. And you're going to see the internal emails in which InfoWars helps him distribute this book. This horrific book. The next month, it's important to know that at least a couple of people inside of InfoWars knew what was happening was wrong. They knew it. They didn't just know it. They warned them. Editor-at-large Paul Watson, the editor-at-large of the company, warned Mr. Jones in writing. Now, I know that's probably hard for some of y'all to see, so I'm going to read this to you. This is an email you will see. This is from Paul Watson, the editor at InfoWars. To Buckley at InfoWars, who's another managerial employee, and Anthony at InfoWars, who you'll hear is another managerial employee. And he says, send this to Alex. He says, this Sandy Hook stuff is killing us. It's promoted by the most batshit crazy people, like Rince and Fetzer, who all hate us anyway. Plus, it makes us look really bad to align with people who harass the parents of dead kids. It's going to hurt us with Drudge and bringing bigger names into the show. Plus, the event happened three years ago. Why even risk our reputation for it? And when he's talking about Drudge, some of you probably know, he's talking about Drudge Report, um, a, a website that compiles news links. And if a media organization gets featured on Drudge, it gets a lot of traffic. So Mr. Watson wasn't so much concerned about the morality here. He was concerned it's going to make us look bad, and it's going to hurt us with Drudge. This is about money. This is about the bottom line, what he was trying to get Alex Jones to see. And... Mr. Watson had very good reason to be alarmed. Not just because of the things that were being said on InfoWars and the things that were being written, but what, what Mr. Jones was doing on top of it. And one of those things was sending his reporter to Newtown, Connecticut. And what you're going to see is that this reporter, Dan Badondi, who you will find out is a former professional wrestler, he went to Newtown and confronted people in Newtown. I want to show you a video of that. This is going to be Mr. Badondi following around Newtown City officials. And I want you to hear what he says to me. Criminal. 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 Criminal.
internal operation. They had communication with the helicopter. They're lying on the stand. Uh, that's perjury, sir. You know what perjury is? himself as a political enemy and rival of Hillary Clinton. And when she said this about him, he was mad, and he decided to respond. So he released a video on November 18, 2016, and it was called his final statement on Sandy Hook. It was not his final statement. It was very, very disturbing. You're going to see a couple things in this video. You're going to see that Mr. Jones, for the first time, directly addresses 
the complaints of the parents who had been outraged about this. And he's going to say about that, that that is suspicious, that they protest too much, that they must be hiding something. And at the end of this long rant, you're going to hear Mr. Jones look right into this camera, tell the people directly. He will address the people who say they're parents that I see on TV. And what he says to them is, my heart would go out to you. But the problem is, I've seen actors before, and I know when I'm watching a movie, and I know when I'm watching something real. You see Mr. Jones nodding along with that. And why should anybody fear an investigation if they have nothing to hide? In fact, isn't that in Shakespeare's Hamlet? Methinks you protest too much. So here is my statement for the media when they call up, saying, where do you stand on this? Where I've always stood. When there were other mass shootings, I would simply point out that they're very rare statistically, and why should we all give up our rights? Because some other bad person does something. A guy with a car runs over 50 people. Do we ban driving cars? It's the same thing. And there have been other instances of shootings that are very suspicious. Aurora is one. Just look into that. But this particular case, they are so scared of investigation. So everything they do basically ends up blowing up in their face. So you guys are going to get what you want now. I'm going to start reinvestigating Sandy Hook and everything else that happened with it. I'm on the show signing off from InfoWars.com. If you're watching this transmission, think for yourself. I know it's a thought crime. And then ask yourself, what is it so strange about Sandy Hook and that tragedy? But I will say this, finally, uh, my heart does go out to all parents that lose children, whether it's to stabbings or whether it's to car wrecks or whether it's to stranglings or whether it's to blunt force trauma or murder, uh, firearms, whatever the case is, I'm a parent and my heart goes out to all parents that have lost children uh, in these tragic events. And so if children were lost in Sandy Hook, my heart goes out to each and every one of those parents and the people that say they're parents that I see on the news. The only problem is I've watched a lot of soap operas and I've seen actors before. And I know when I'm watching a movie, I don't know when I'm watching something real. Let's look at the Sandy Hook. This man knew that the parents of murdered children were emotionally distressed, outraged, grieving. And he looked straight into that camera and he said, the only problem is I've watched a lot of soap operas and I've seen actors before. And I know when I'm watching a movie and I know when I'm watching something. It kept going. It just kept going. It doesn't stop. 2017. And it's still going. They're still making videos saying it's phony as a $3 bill. In fact, one of those from that year that I want to talk to you about was called Sandy Hook Vampires Exposed. And in that video, Mr. Jones says that the media, the central intelligence, the, the parents that say the parents that he sees on the news, people who are the fake crisis actors, the people who are faking the interview of Anderson Cooper, they're all vampires of Sandy Hook. And he says, all the same fake stuff again. The school wasn't even open. It was rotting and falling apart. It didn't even look like a real school. 
And he asks, why are we seeing pictures of bodies? Him and his nightly news director, Mr. Dew, they wanted to see the bodies. And at this point, in 2017, they are at their breaking point. At this point, there had been an ongoing nationwide controversy that was all churned by Jones. There was Jones's public denial of their son's violent death. And they were getting harassment by Mr. Halbig and other followers of Jones. They were at the breaking point. And so Neil made a decision, a very tough decision. He made the decision on June 19, 2017. He decided he agreed to an interview with Megyn Kelly. I think some of y'all may remember Megyn Kelly used to have an NBC show. It's called Megyn Kelly Tonight, some news magazine. And he thought, when Ms. Kelly asked him if he would come on the show, because she was doing a profile about Mr. Jones, he thought, if I go on the show, and I say, please stop. Please stop. I'm a real dad. He thought if Mr. Jones was be able to look him in the eyes and see him, that he could solve this. And so he went on this Kelly show in front of a national televised audience and said, look, I'm a real dad. I, I lost my son. I buried my son. I held my son with a bullet hole through his head. Please stop. And Neil was hopeful. And he was really hoping that it would stop. It did not. On June 25th, 2017, InfoWars struck back directly at Mr. Hessel. They retaliated. And they did it in a disgusting way. They aired a video that said, talked about Neil's interview on Megyn Kelly and said, hmm, one problem. Mr. Heslin's a liar. Mr. Heslin never held his child. He made up that story. And we can prove it. Because you see, according to InfoWars' version of events, the shooting was fake. And all these fake actor parents, who were like paid actors of the CIA, were given a cover story. And one of the easiest parts of the cover story, apparently, was that they didn't release the bodies of the children to the parents. And the idea being, if you don't have to worry about the bodies and all that sort of stuff, it makes it easier to pull off this fakery. So they had all these paid actors say, we never got the children. The bodies never released us. But the allegation here is that Mr. Heslin forgot his cover story and said something that wasn't true, that he held his child. They did this by deceptively editing video interviews. The first is of this man. You're going to see this when these videos are played. I'm going to play you this video about Mr. Heston. And this man is Dr. Wayne Carver. He is the medical examiner who had the incredibly difficult job of seeing those children after seeing And what you're going to see, the evidence will show you that, that Dr. Carver in this interview was talking about the process by which the children were identified. Right? They got all the children, and they got to get the parents into contact, right? And he'll talk about how the way you do that is through photograph. Right? You don't want, and the reason you do that is it's thus traumatic, and you don't want to bring a parent into the room of a body of a child that's not theirs. Right? So you want to do this by photograph. Make sure that you get them lined up before you do And as you'll hear, he'll even say, there's a time and a place for up close and personal. But first you identify by photograph. They actually edited this video 
in such a way to make it look like, oh no, the parents were only shown photographs of their children, or that was the story anyway. And it's actually just a, a complete deception, sleight of hand by editing this man's interview. They do the same thing with these parents. This is Lynn and Christine McDonald. And Lynn and Christine McDonald, you'll see in this interview, we're talking about the process of being at the funeral home with their daughter. And her casket. And, you know, as a mom, when your child has suffered these kinds of injuries, you have to make a very difficult decision. And that decision is whether to open that casket. And Miss McDonald made a decision not to. And you're going to hear, you'll have, you'll hear expert testimony talking about this interview, where you'll see that Miss McDonald wanted her little daughter, she wanted to remember her just the way she was. So she didn't look. And what InfoWars did is they took her interview and they cut her off mid-sentence and made it look like she was never allowed to see her children. Both of these things, all of this stuff you're going to see in this video, came from this anonymous blog post that had information from that gentleman, Jim Fetzer, who InfoWars, you'll hear testimony, that they knew, at the time they published this broadcast, they knew Mr. Fetzer was crazy, completely unreliable. They didn't care. They were doing this to retaliate against Neil, who had the temerity, the audacity, to stand up on national television and tell him this stuff. That's what this was for. I want you to see that video. Let's play that. So folks, now, here's another story. You know, I don't even know if Alex knows about this, to be honest with you. Alex, if you're listening and you want to, uh, or if you just want to know what's going on, Zero Hedge has just published a story. Megan Kelly fails to fact check Sandy Hook's Sandy Hook father's contradictory claim in Alex Jones' hit piece. Now again, this this broke. I think it broke today. I don't know what time. But featured in Megan Kelly's expose, Neil Heslin, a father of one of the victims, during the interview described what happened the day of the shooting. And basically what he said, the statement he made, fact checkers on this have said cannot be accurate. He's claiming that he held his son and saw the bullet hole in his head. That is his claim. Now, according to a timeline of events and a coroner's testimony, that is not possible. And so one must look at Megyn Kelly and say, Megan, I think it's time for you to explain this contradiction in the narrative. Because this is only going to fuel the conspiracy theory that you're trying to put out, in fact. So, and here's the thing, too. You would remember, let me see how long these clips are. You would remember if you held your dead kid in, in your hands with a bullet hole. That's not something that you would just misspeak on. So let's roll the clip first. Neil Heslin telling Megan Kelly of his experience with his with uh, with his kid. At Sandy Hook Elementary School, 
one of the darkest chapters in American history, was a hoax. I lost my son. I buried my son. I held my son with a bullet hole through his head. Neil Heslin's son Jesse, just six years old, was murdered, along with 19 of his classmates and six adults, on December 14th, 2012, in Newtown, Connecticut. Yeah, I dropped him off at 904. That's when we dropped him off at school with his book bag. Um, hours later, I was picking him up in a body bag. Okay, so making a pretty extreme cl claim that would be a very thing vivid in your memory, holding his dead child. Now, here is an account from the coroner that does not cooperate with that narrative. Uh, we did not bring the bodies and the families into contact. We took uh, pictures of them, um, uh, of their facial features. You have, uh, uh, it's, it's easier on the families when you do that. Uh, a time and a place for a close and personal in the grieving process. But to accomplish this, uh, we felt it would be best uh, to do it this way. And uh, you can sort of, uh, you can control the situation uh, depending on your photographer. And I have very good photographers. Uh, but uh, it's going to be hard not to have been able to actually see her. Well, at first I thought that, and I had questioned maybe wanting to see her. Okay, so just another question that people are now going to be asking about Sandy Hook, the conspiracy theorists on the internet out there that have a lot of questions that are yet to get answered. I mean, you can say whatever you want about the event. That's just a fact. So there's another one. Will there be a clarification from Heslin or Megyn Kelly? I wouldn't hold your breath. <laughs> so now they're fueling the conspiracy theory claims. Unbelievable. We'll be right back with more. The man you saw, his name is Owen Schroeder. He's another media star at InfoWars, sort of Mr. Jones' protege. And what you just saw there was a manufactured, fabricated lie, specifically engineered and calculated to hurt Neil Heslin and Scarlett Woods, to retaliate against Neil for daring to speak out, proposing any sort of resistance to Mr. Jones' years of cruelty. They struck back against him. And it didn't end there. Right? Now, now Neil and his family had been introduced into the Sandy Hook conspiracy. They were a key part of it now. They were a focus of this lie. And it didn't end. A month later, you're going to see that there was significant controversy over this video you just saw. And Mr. Jones, a month later, doubled down and defended it. He got on a show, he played that entire video again, and then he said this. He said, that was a month ago. He, meaning Mr. Schroyer, had said, I wouldn't hold my breath looking for a response. We've not seen a clarification. Mr. Jones then said, the stuff I found was they never let them see their bodies. This is Jesse. And the thing that I think is really important to understand about Neil and Scarlett's state of mind 
when this video came out, is, you know, obviously Neil is talking about the last moments he spent with his little boy. And Alex Jones came along, and he took that memory, that rather beautiful memory, and he ruined it, and he tarnished it, and he made it ugly. And now every single time that Neil Hessler has to think about the last moments he spent with Jesse, he also has to think about this horrible moment, this disgusting series of lies that will be ever, forever tied to his son's death. That Jesse's legacy had now become tied to this. That there would always be an asterisk next to his name. That there would be this contingent of people who would come out of the woodwork and decide they needed to confront Neil and Scarlett about this. And Neil and Scarlett spent the next years up until the day they're sitting in this courthouse dealing with this fallout. Of having all of these people think that they're liars, crisis actors, CIA agents, and their son Jesse didn't even live. I want to talk about what this trial means. Because there has never been anything like this. All right? There are lots of defamation cases in the past. It is, in fact, our oldest human law. Objective argument, Your Honor. Defamation is one of the oldest laws we have in human society. Many of you know it in another form, in its earliest form from the dawn of man. We do not bear false witness against our neighbors. We believe that as a people, and we have since the moment we all started sitting down and living in cities together. And in the modern form, we see defamation cases. And that would, you know, sometimes be about a news article or a book, or a video on TV, or in some cases, maybe a couple of articles, or a series of videos. But never, never in the human history of defamation has somebody for 10 years, over and over and over, to a global audience, harassed, lied, and attacked the parents of murdered children for 10 years, causing huge portions of this country and indeed the globe to doubt them and their story. It has never happened. Where people are showing up and confronting the parents of murdered children in public, threatening their lives, it's never happened. This trial is different than anything that's ever gone on in this courtroom. And you're not here to decide whether all this happened. I think we all know that now. We're going to see the videos. Nobody doubts that the videos were published. You're going to see the black and white documents. You're going to see the internal emails. But you're not going to have to decide whether all this happened. And you know that you're not here to decide whether Mr. Jones is legally responsible. It's also not something you need to decide. And this also has nothing to do with the Constitution. Because defamation is not protected by freedom of speech. Okay? We decided that long ago as a people. It, it actually recalls some of the words written by our old Chief Justice, William Rehnquist, the former Chief Justice of the United States. And he wrote 
He wrote in Hustler versus Falwell. Same objection to argument. Um, I'm going to allow it, but make sure you. It's very brief, Your Honor. In Hustler versus Falwell, Justice Rehnquist said this false statements of fact are particularly valueless. They interfere with the truth-seeking function of the marketplace of ideas, and they cause damage to an individual's reputation that cannot easily be repaired by counter-speech, however persuasive or effective. It's for that reason that we do not protect defamation, false speech. Because speech is free, but lies you have to pay for. There is also no question that Neil and Scarlett suffered harm. I don't know what InfoWars lawyers are going to get up here and say. I don't. But one thing I know they will not tell you is that Neil and Scarlett weren't harmed by this. That's not going to happen. They won't tell you that. Because we all know that happened. And the testimony will show that free speech systems admits that its conduct harmed the plaintiffs. They'll admit what they did to these parents' grieving process. They'll admit it. They just don't care. And they do not believe that they should have to pay anything beyond a dollar for it. They think that the pain that they admit that they caused has no value. None. They're going to stand up here after the things that you've just seen, admitting that they did wrong, admitting that they caused the harm, and they're going to have the absolute gall to say, give them a dollar. That's what they're going to do. You have two tasks. There's two things you've got to do while you're in this quarter. The first task is how much money should Neil and Scarlett be paid for the harm Mr. Jones has caused? The second thing you're going to have to consider is how much money will it take to punish Mr. Jones for his actions? That's it. Those are the only two things you're here to do today through this trial. And I want to talk really briefly about the burden of proof for doing that. Because that came up a little bit during jury selection. And you'll notice they use this term, preponderance of the evidence. And ever since I came out of law school long ago, I do not know why we use words like that. That is dumb. Why do we talk that way? It really, because there's such an easy way to say it, and I think everybody in the courtroom will agree with me, the defense counsel will agree, that what preponderance of the evidence means is, is a fact more likely true than not true. Just a slight tipping of the scales. If you think you could flip a coin flip and it's better than those odds, that's more likely true than not true. And that's how we decide things in a civil court. Obviously, most of the things, like about whether he did something wrong or whether these videos are published, you won't have to decide that. So this actually isn't going to be that difficult in this case because the evidence that you're going to see is going to fill up that scale you see that's pushing down. It's going to weigh it way down, because what goes in that part of the scale is the harm to Neil and Scarlett. And the evidence of that is overwhelming. You're going to be hearing a lot about it. You see, Mr. Jones knew that his lies would damage Neil's reputation. He knew that. He knew that if he cast Neil and his family in the middle of this Sandy Hook lie, 
that millions of people across this country were going to believe it, that they were going to harass these people, that their lives were going to get more difficult, not because of what was going on in their minds, but what was going on in the minds of the millions of people who saw this. He knew that damage would happen. He doesn't care. He thinks it's worth a dollar. What I want you to remember about this is this number. 24%. You are going to hear expert testimony in this case. That will tell you that that number, 24%, at the time all these events were happening, is the percent of people in this country who believe that Sandy Hook was either definitely or possibly staged. One in four Americans. And you're going to hear expert testimony that Mr. Jones was the only voice of any importance whatsoever, the only commercial media figure at all to spread these lies. That there was, these were things that were confined to the weird corners of the internet, bizarre Facebook groups and weird little YouTube videos and you know, these crank professors writing their anonymous blogs, nobody with millions and millions and millions of followers. And nobody was doing it. It was Mr. Jones. And you're going to hear expert testimony that Mr. Jones and his conduct is the nearly exclusive driver of this. That as Mr. Jones put that out and his followers put that out and it spread like a virus through the internet. And you're going to hear how had it not been for Mr. Jones, this number would be trivial because it would have never gone beyond the most crazy places on the internet. And you're going to hear how for 10 years Mr. Jones's lies have inspired his guests to harass Neil and Scarlett. That's something you're going to hear. You're going to hear how guests and viewers who believed Mr. Jones' lies contacted Neil and Scarlett at home. That they accosted them in public. They harassed them online and by telephone. And that they threatened their very lives. Mr. Jones knew that his lies about Jesse's death would cause severe emotional distress to Neil and Scarlett. He didn't just knew it, he intended it. Intended to inflict emotional distress. This was his goal. It wasn't that he committed an accident. It wasn't that he was just not careful. He intended to hurt them, and now he wants to pay a dollar. But for 10 years, Mr. Jones has robbed Neil and Scarlett of the time they needed to heal over the violent death of their son, Jesse, because Mr. Jones wanted to sell more of his products. That's the reality. You're going to hear how Mr. Jones' lies caused Neil and Scarlett to get stuck in loops of negative thinking about Jesse's death. And what we mean by this is when your thoughts don't have an off switch. You're going to hear expert psychological testimony, medical testimony from medical experts, that what this is called is forced rumination. Rumination is obsessive thinking about a tragic situation when it interferes with your normal function. And that's what was happening to Neil and Scarlett over the past 10 years. For 10 years, 
Jones has used his campaign of lies about the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting to force <coughs> Neil and Scarlett to ruminate about the violent loss of their son, Jesse. Whenever Neil encounters the Sandy Hook lie, he can think of nothing else. And whenever Scarlett encounters the Sandy Hook lie, she shuts down and isolates. It didn't have to be this way. I want to make crystal clear to all of you. We are not here today to seek compensation for the death of their child and the grief that comes along with losing a child. A lot of parents lose children way more than we want. It's accidents, disease, firearms. We've actually gotten to the point where firearms is a leading cause of death of children. Parents have to deal with this. And yes, it's horrible. But with qualified medical intervention and time, you can heal. You don't get better. You just heal. You develop scar tissue. You come to a place of closure. You come to a place of acceptance. And the grief will always be with you. But if you can do it in a healthy way, the outcomes for a parent who's lost a child you're going to hear are, are okay. You can get them to be in an okay place. People like Neil and Scarlett can heal over time if they are allowed to shape their past and present circumstances. But Neil and Scarlett were prevented from healing because they had to contend with Alex Jones' lies. Dealing with this conspiracy of lies for 10 years put a lot of life stressors on Neil and Scarlett, which led to a substantial decline in their well-being and caused them to continually suffer aggravated mental anguish. That is what you will hear from a medical professional, psychological professional, I'm going to tell you this. And that's one of the other things you're going to compensate for in this case. We talked a lot about mental anguish yesterday, but it's that and the reputation, right? It's about what went on in their minds. That's the mental anguish. But in the millions of other people's minds, that's the reputation damage. Both of those things happened to Neil and Scarlett. That's not the only thing you're going to have to consider. You're going to hear evidence over the next coming days that relates to the things you'll need to consider for punitive damages. And as we talked about, these are the damages designed to punish the defendant and also to deter, to convince every other media organization that if they go down this path, if they try to copy Mr. Jones's formula, it will not be a good thing for them. Hopefully, this trial will be able to deter and prevent any other media organizations from following the same cruel path. Because what you have to remember is that Mr. Jones, for 10 years, intentionally lied that the shooting was fake or a government-led plot. When I say 10 years, it's because I want you to understand this hasn't stopped. Bringing this lawsuit did not solve this. You can look at what Mr. Jones has said afterwards, and you can see inside of his mind and know how malicious he was, because he is still saying Sandy Hook is synthetic. I want to show you a video from October 1st, 2021 just last year, in which Mr. Jones says that, you know what? My original instinct was right. 
you know, at first I thought it was fake. Then I thought maybe it's real. And, and now, he says, seeing how fake and synthetic everything is, maybe I was right. Maybe Alex Jones is always right. That's what you're about to hear him say. I'm going to show you this video from October 1st, 2021. It's like the New York Times lying about WMDs on purpose and all the people things that, oh, but I questioned one of the big events they hyped up because of a lot of the anomalies, and I have a right to question that. In fact, I, for a while, thought it didn't happen, then I thought it probably did, and now, seeing how synthetic everything is, maybe my original instinct, maybe Alex Jones is always. I'm pretty much right 99% of the time, folks, and so are you. I mean, we all know this is easy to look at to see what's happening. And you've seen him here today. Mr. Jones still nodding along. Mr. Jones, you'll hear. He still thinks. It's a cover-up. Sandy Hook. Keeps pushing it. Because it's important that his audience not hear him retract. It's important that if he was to go out and say, yeah, I was wrong. Yeah, I, I need to be accountable. That will destroy him with his audience. Can't do it. He won't do it. <coughs> You need to understand that he intentionally lied to sell supplements. That's what he did. Mr. Jones used Jesse's death to sell his products. That is the reality. And Mr. Jones retaliated against Neil for speaking out. Mr. Jones told the world that Neil was lying about holding Jesse's body. Because Mr. Jones will do or say anything to protect his ability to profit off his lies. This is a case about creating change. You have the power to stop this from ever happening again. You can put an end to these lies by punishing Alex Jones. You can make that part of Jesse's legacy. You can make Jesse's legacy this trial, in which he can hopefully, Jesse's legacy, can prevent this from ever happening to another thing, to another set of victims. That can be Jesse's legacy. But just as importantly is compensating Neil and Scarlett for the harm that they suffered. And I remember when we were talking in jury selection, when my partner, Mr. Ball, was talking to me. We were, a lot of us were talking about how it's difficult to wrap your mind around something abstract, like mental anguish, reputation damages. And I know one of the things you're going to find out, that's going to be, that's why we all are for. We're going to tell you everything we can. We're going to give you all the instructions we can. We're going to show you all the evidence. But it's going to be up to you. And one of the ways that I think Right now, obviously, I'm just an opening statement. I can't show you everything. But one of the things I think you should think about, a number you should keep in mind, something to help wrap your head around this level of damage, is this number, that 24%. The number of people in this country who believe that Sandy Hook was definitely or possibly staged. This pool of people who do not believe in Scarlet, Scarlett, these pool of people who doubt them, from out of which come these followers who harass them. That group of people is 75 million people. And we would submit to you that a fair measure, analysis, of the level of harm 
that was done to Neil's reputation out of all of this is one dollar for every one of those people. Just one dollar. Seventy-five million. And we would submit to you, too, that the emotional damage that was done to Neil and Scarlett, which you will hear through, through medical experts, we'd submit to you that that is at least as valuable as what happened to their reputation. At least. In this case, that has never had anything like this ever happen. Another 75 million. And that is why, at the end of evidence, we're going to come and we're going to ask you for a verdict of $150 million. Now, that is a huge verdict, to be sure. But it is one that will do justice to the level of harm done in this case. Harm that was done to the parents of grieving parents of murdered children who have had to endure for 10 years the most despicable and vile campaign of defamation and slander in American history. We look forward to telling you their story. Thank you very much. All right, thank you, Mr. Bankston. We are going to take our morning break. It is 10.50. We're going to break for 20 minutes. For my jury, remember all of my instructions. This is still a uh, no discussion time. So you can go after that door as soon as this magic deal comes in um, and be ready to come back at 11.10. Thank you. All right. And this whoever is last, make sure you shut that door behind you, please. Thank you. statement squarely put before the jury um, content that the Civil Practice and Remedies Code that the Texas Legislature says should not be in an opening statement in the first case, uh, first part of a bifurcated trial, uh, and therefore we'd ask for a mistrial. Right, well, this is not, as we, as we have discussed at length, a traditional bifurcated trial. The only element, the only issue, and the only type of evidence that is bifurcated is the evidence on Mr. Jones and Free Speech Systems net worth, which was not discussed in the opening statement. The motion is denied. Thank you. And just to remind you that we need to take up a quick thing about the board here. That's fine. If I stand up, everybody stands up. Thank you.
or if there is any member of the jury within sight. And on the fifth floor entirely, no talking about this case at all. No talking about anything. Because my jury cannot be hearing any of that. Is this understood? Yes, Your Honor. Yes, Your Honor. We need to shut that door. Can you do it? I didn't know if you need the rest of my counsel. They just came and told you you needed me. They are welcome to come in. I need at least one person from each side, and I needed Mr. Jones to hear me, that if he is asked a question, he is not allowed to answer on the fifth floor. You can go down to the first floor. Fine. See if you remember, you may not say anything. And neither may anyone else. I just don't think they're going to be asked. Um, also, at 5 o'clock, this building is closed. So if you want to be interviewed, you got to do that outdoors. Or even if you don't want to be. <laughs> it's outdoors. It's not in the building. We end at 5, and everyone must immediately pack up and leave. Potentially, the lawyers can stay and talk to me. All right. What was the issue? Mr. Baxter doesn't like my demonstrative example. I, uh, my, actually, my other claim is this one is just broadcast. They don't, that's not a thing. They don't, they're not, they don't broadcast over airwaves. It's just factually incorrect. Um, but as far as this one, Oh, we want to put that on there. Okay, so my problem here, my objection here, Your Honor, is that this is a factual claim that there were 27 hours spent on Samuok, and that constitutes less than 1% of its number, but they violated discovery orders to produce this that material. We know there's tons more of Samuok videos. We've had everything to this court from the experts to prove it, and we've never been able to establish the total amount of time that spent on it. And they could have established that, but they did not. Um, can I put this down? You can. Okay. Uh, your Honor, we just had a conference where we agreed on Exhibit 31 as being the totality of the Sandy Hook videos. We just did that. Well, I wasn't in the conference. What was agreed to me was that these are the videos that are admitted in court. This case is in its unique and frustrating situation because of the choices your clients have made. Period. That's the end of the day on that. Council and I agreed on Exhibit 31 as a summary exhibit of the, the videos that were done between 2012 and the filing of the lawsuit in 2018. I wasn't there. What was presented to me is here's an agreed list of the videos admitted into evidence. Those are two different things. I would love to be presiding over a trial in which a full discovery process unfolded properly and according to the rules. It did not. Not because of my choice, not because of the plaintiff's choice, because of the defendant's choices. They are stuck with the consequences of those choices. I'm not gonna let you use those demonstratives. Understood. Anything else? We had the issue that I raised you from changes earlier, I don't know how you do it. I don't want to have that conversation out here. Okay, exactly. Yes. So whenever you want to just yeah. Alright. So I'm I'm not done with my break. Um, we're gonna go about three more minutes over because I had to deal with all of that. I'm gonna make sure that whoever is out there and I don't know who it is knows what my orders are now going forward. Mm -hmm. Mr. Bankston, you'll tell your team 
think all of you were in here when I issued the orders about the hallway and the building. Is that right? All right. So then everyone should understand that. All right. I'll be back. Pause it. Could we also play the clip of uh, the lawyers being alpha males together in the courtroom? Because I don't know what day or clip that came from. I just saw it earlier today, but I know it's in the production chat. Was this episode? Let's see if we can get that. Rolling. Yeah, one second. Thank you, sir. Um. Oh yeah, I think I see it. It's like Rocky and an opponent like sparring back and forth before the match. Will you talk to me? And you know, will you talk to me? Will you talk to me? Will you talk to me? When you stood in that hallway, you said to me, are all your videos on this? I said this is a summary exhibit, and we're agreeing to hey all guys. Hey, guys. Maybe now's not the time. Maybe we can cool off, and I'm going to have a phone call later. Okay. Yeah, how about like a good other? Can I talk to you for a second? Anything you're going to say No, no. I'm just going to say that. way you can tell him, and then we're not going to have a fight, and it'll be easy. Mark, do you have his phone number? I don't have a phone number. Right, so I'm not entirely sure, but I God, did that catch boy, soy boy plaintiff. I I'm caught, sorry, man. That okay, guy so is, he's just again. I'm not sure which day this is on, so let me start recounting one of the like situations that happened. Hands folded down there. I'm so nice and prim hey, and proper. Look at sorry. Apparently, Alex before this kicked off, he was supposed to deliver uh, a million dollar payment to the plaintiffs, right, as part of whatever's going on. And that was supposed to transact. And the lawyer gave the guy the check and the guy, the guy with the folded hands, he said the, the check was illegible and it was for the wrong amount and they refused the check. And therefore Alex didn't comply, even though it, it looked like they thought they did, but it was refused. They had to go through it again. And the judge said, if it's that, you know, you need to make a new check out to the plaintiffs. And if you don't have his number, get his number. And then I think that was the corresponding, like, hey, can I get your cell phone number? Only he didn't want to ask, so he played no, hard I, to get. Yeah. <laughs> That's the, yeah, very coy indeed. Um, did you like the dude, the folded hands guy? Um, did you like how he did the 75 plus 75? Because at first oh, yeah. I bet people were like, Rich got it wrong. I'm like, no, wait for it. No, he, I like no, this I knew, use of I knew green this up, and red man. slides, almost like it was a Christmas presentation. Green for good things, red for bad things. Red makes audience and jury bat like mad, right? You just did you catch that? His he did choice blue. of language. Is... He did blue right before he went to the final. Oh like, red, yeah, red no, card. The, the, then that's there scary. Was a lot but... of high pressure rhetoric for sure. Yeah. So I mean, oh, that's uh, that's subtle the guy's job though. Yeah. Right. But the part I don't agree with. Because I don't agree with the, the actions that Infowars took necessarily, but I also don't agree with the plaintiff attorney making the families think that there's a lot more money to get there than is yeah. ever possible to get there from that operation. If he well, saved his money for the next 10 years and you let him operate, but you guys banned them and a whole bunch of other things. And that's why they don't have all the videos. See, they say Alex didn't turn over all the stuff, but they can't be sure because things got banned and things got deleted and not everything was captured. Right. So there's a whole bunch of well, little that, discrepancies, that's... nuances that are being like played on that 
you know, opening. Salvo. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's the hypocrisy around all of it. I mean, essentially, they're accusing Alex Jones of doing this specifically double down, doubling down on his claims that he made throughout the years that he's commented about Sandy Hook, stating that he specifically when he doubled down on those claims, when the parents came out and spoke out on Megyn Kelly's interview and whatnot, that uh, he did it specifically to attack them. Like the claims, like no one's question, like the, the, the key thing I'm trying to like hone down on and what I was listening for throughout that entire thing is like, what's the specific claim against Alex Jones? Okay, they kind of showed it. No, but, and I know, I know what it is. That's what I'm just going to Well, no, but, do you? Because it's, uh, it's a Sunday broadcast. It's the one where Schroyer says, hey, Alex, Alex doesn't even know about this, but maybe he's going to hear about it right now. Somebody, so picture this because i listened to the testimony schroyer's doing he's just he's not a host yet so he's like sitting in for alex on the sunday show which nobody really listens to like it's a small percentage know, of the audience right i've listened to it before but not consistently right it's a small the judge the the attorney the folded hands guy he tries to make it out like hundreds of millions of people heard schroyer in the last Correct. four that, minutes of a sunday show who got handed an article that he didn't read and he didn't say but someone said, hey, this should be on the air. It was a zero hedge article, which is mm, shaky to start with. And it was by an anonymous author and had three shares, which should have been a red flag. Don't don't air this type of thing. Schroyer is in the moment. He gets handed a piece of paper. He starts going through the story. The story has con- apparent contradictions, which can be resolved. But he didn't have time to research it because he's live on the show. Right. So that's where it all gets hung out to dry. And then there's some stuff with Wolfgang. No, I, and, I, I get yeah. that. I, I, I'm with you 100% on that. But the, that what they're trying to do is say like that's where they specifically targeted that family. Hessen well, and uh, his wife. Like That's and, where like, it that, starts. That's I where think. they're yeah. saying like that. And that's where it's going to be interesting. Like, again, I, I, we're not really dealing with we're dealing with rewarding the families a certain so, sum of money. So we're so not dealing with like event. a traditional comes with Schroyer reading that article on air, which is a direct consequence of the airing of the Alex Jones, Megyn Kelly interview on the Father's Day weekend, which is a direct consequence of Alex saying yes to that interview, which could have been avoided in his steps. Right. But on the other hand, if you're going to make, you know, uh, you know, make a bond and heal that gap and heal that divide and build some scar tissue. Maybe he was right in taking a risk to do that interview, but he didn't have informed consent or knowledge of that, but that was the purpose. It was, it was so he couldn't really do that in the interview with Megan. It's almost like Megan said, Hey, I want to bring these two sides close enough, but not close enough to heal because right. the non healing process is profitable for Megan Kelly. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's the hypocrisy. I'm sort of leading to the hypocrisy yes. of him asking for at the $75 million dollars on top of the yeah. $75 million just for the, the reward for the patient damages for the ruminations they've suffered, yeah. which I'm not denying that. What I'm saying is like he's going to get a big sum, lump of money uh, from the, you know, the consulting rate that for whoever is being charged. The point is like he's going to get paid out more. So like th- th- that's not the bigger issue. The, 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 I'm just lawyer, trying to point. Yeah. I'm trying to point out the hypocrisy all around. Whether it's Megyn Kelly, whether it's the plaintiff's lawyer, whether it's, um, but with the, the plaintiff then claiming that Alex Jones is doing this specifically just to keep his, oper- sell supplements. Really, what he means is keep his operation running. He's pandering to a certain audience that wants to believe a certain narrative that then will help him stay in business. But he's trying to say that he has specific evidence. The plaintiff and their side. They have specific evidence where they can paint a, a, a um, causal chain 
uh, a link, if you will, um, of well, events where like there's emails, there's the Paul Joseph Watson internal email, but then there's other emails, there's former input. And I'm not saying I already that did that because it was default judgment. And that's the, that's that's the problem. That's what like that's so, what's different about this case is like it's already decided. It's just about how much. Right. right. And um, and so, how much. Yeah. I mean, how much of that is out of context as well? I want, I'm not trying to defend Jones's camp too, but when I don't, when we won't really know because that's not what necessarily this case is about. It's, it's a very straight, I mean, besides the, there were subtly, there were subtle fallacies. Like he, he explained, first of all, the, the language he used, like the colloquial, like very basic language, which is fine as a lawyer, you want to speak to, you know, keep it simple, stupid sort of thing. But like when he explained what a complex question is, is a fallacy, you know, like that's what he's or um, there are a number the appeals to emotion or there is amphibole, but there's this one. I'm forgetting the name of the fallacy, but like just that's his job. Pause, he's good I, at his job, like, but he, he's, yeah, he's for very playing good. that side of the the attorney scale. Like he did a good job on his side. Yeah, but the, 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 the timber, the, the not the saying cadence. he's right or that everything he said is true. I'm just saying from like a position player. Oh yeah. I, no, I'm waiting to good. see Jones's attorney step up and actually be a little more assertive unless he's not supposed to do that for some reason. I don't know sure. how shackled. They I will are say this process. out of all the recent trials we've seen that have been sort of sham trials. This is interesting. insofar as, uh, Again, this is so weird because we're dealing with the, just the payout. But the way in which they're building the argument is very clever. Because um, Alex Jones did say those things. That's on record. No one's denying those things. It's very clear. But for but, defamation, it has to be a but, malicious. Right. He had to do it in, on purpose and, and knowingly and these sort of things. Those people. And that's and they, the problem I'm having. Like, I, I he, he, to me, he builds a specious straw man right now. There's not enough evidence, but he did present a lot of evidence in that opening statement, which I'm not really sure he's supposed to do, but we won't go down that record. It's or, a fine line like record. between murder and manslaughter. It's the intent, right? It goes right. back to, did this guy take some cavalier, non-malicious, should have been more responsible, you know, should have had some more methods in place to assure things not like, you know, because it wasn't intentional, but oh shit, my car just rolled into yours. Only it's, you know, bigger more valuable concepts like yeah. human souls and turmoil and the pain they go through through these transactions correct no i mean that's yeah i mean it, it, it that's exactly right it's um but that's that's the point i'm trying to bring up like the, he's building this special sort of straw man argument around the this this idea that they have internal emails they have disgruntled ex-employees and then they have admissions by Jones himself, which, but the way he described those admissions, when I listen to them, I'm thinking, is that the context in which not every video, obviously, some are just so straightforward. I've listened to enough Alex Jones to know that like Alex Jones says a lot of crazy stuff. He's very hyperbolic. Everyone knows about this. There's a little bit of a performance artist in Alex Jones, and he says things that are very broad. And oftentimes very metaphorical. So it's and like they need some... to be looked up to actually get to what he's saying, because right. it's mixed up all over the place, especially over the last ten years. But like the fact they're trying to paint this connection, he does it just for the money. He did it just to intentionally defame, has like that that family, the plaintiffs that the plaintiff is representing, or mm -hmm. group of families, and he did it based on these clips where he's 
to me, speaking pure speculative, it's with pure speculation. There's not much evidence coming in. There's other clips where not, he speaks more assertively, okay. like, okay. Uh, you know, in support. I think around 2015. And then it goes quiet because a litigation had started. But again, right? and then, support. Then you hear different. some of the other filmed depositions, people who aren't there to testify. Like I thought the Bedondi, if you're going to go into the film depositions, I watched uh, Rob Jacobs, uh, Kit Daniels, Dan, Dan Bedondi. Uh, yeah. And so there were definitely mistakes made on their side that could have been prevented. Oh, with yeah. A stronger method for journalism and no, sure. some best practices on human interactions and, you know, uh, giving people they, the benefit of the doubt and speaking with diffidence, meaning I'm pretty certain, but I'm open to learning because I'm a human being and we're all fallible. So maybe I made a mistake. Maybe I, you know, didn't carry the one in the column. Let's see. When you, when you take those elements of humanness out, it becomes a kind of inhuman interaction. And that's what uh, the plaintiff's trying to point out. No and doubt. when you get to I mean, some of those like, actors first that of all, like I, Alex I, Jones himself and free speech systems themselves did not take, like, I don't think anyone's really supporting. Well, no, that's fair enough. I and mean, those critiques he, he deserves and his, and his entire establishment deserves. The problem I have, again, is this issue of hypocrisy. It doesn't make it right. Well, they're trying to but hold then, them to then, a standard that's not actually that, that's, realistically held up to CNN or any of these other places. That's the point, exactly. If anything, they're just as bad as he is. Arguably worse in certain instances, maybe not with this specific story, but with other stories, right? And different contexts. Um, that's that's the problem. Like, if, okay, we're going to uphold, and rightfully so, we should. Alex Jones, maybe other, all media institutions to you know, the tenets of journalistic integrity um, or principles, principles of journalism, whatever they are. That means every media outlet would need to uphold to that. And we know that CNN, MSNBC, even Fox, like they all, they run with stories without fact-checking. They, they run with narratives. That's oh, they do clickbait. All, I mean, yeah, that, the, the whole thing ever since clickbait. they changed in the late nineties to make news companies have to be profitable. Yeah, it used to be a public service. Act. It used to be a loss for the company that owned it. Hey, that's not going to make a profit. That whole business unit, they do news. It's not profitable. Right. Then they tied it to the advertisers and then that tied it to censorship, which is why Kim Iverson left the, the hill. See yeah. how that all comes together. That's what's going on out there. So you got independent people and independent people don't always have all the same resources as a Bloomberg or a New York Times or Washington Post. And guess what? Those places get shit wrong all the time, too. Yeah. Oh yeah. And when 100%. they lie, half a million kids in Iraq die. So I'm not justifying anything the Infowars or the free speech systems people did. I'm just saying, in comparison, there's some other worse stuff going on. No one's talking about, but they talk about it on Infowars. Maybe that's why they want that place gone. Exactly. This is the one um, chink in the armor, if you will. The one one weak spot, the Achilles heel, for what all the things, the crazy things Alex Jones have said over the years. And to prey upon the parents who are obviously going to be on a really in a constant state of a form of griefing their entire life over the loss of their child for the lawyers uh, to, you know, go to those parents. And it's payday on both sides. They're both getting paid top dollar to do that situation. There's there's a lot. It, when you say one hundred fifty million dollars, that guy has a percentage. His firm has a percentage, a large percentage. Man 
but they're that. accusing Alex Jones. He just does it for supplements. Like, again, Alex hey, Jones. What do you was think re- that lawyer? You think the lawyer works for peanuts or dollars? You think he's a sophist and says what he needs to say to get his clients paid? I think so. That's why he got the spot over there on on Team Sandy Hook. I don't know. I would say the same thing for Alex's lawyer. Why do no, you think sure. he's got that spot? His you know his firm and whatnot. They're gonna get top dollar too. This is a high stakes case, $150 million on the line. You really going to go with the, the place that gave you the discount and the value pack in the mail? It's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. It's, uh, and it's not there's just a precedent million being set here. Precedent right? being set because then any other... And, go ahead, Justin. Yeah. Uh, it, in, in my take of the context of this through this episode, seeing that first film where they kind of put together Alex's early years you know I haven't really seen Alex Jones in his episodes just since the last year or so Um, but to see him much younger and as passionate as he was there's a real contrast to something that has been going on maybe over the last decade or so and the the plaintiff that was going after that used rhetoric like aimed at to punish to deter to prevent other media from following in the footsteps of what Alex Jones has sent so it really is bigger in the sense that, you know, they're aiming for something that gives them a framework to go after alternate truth-seeking media. Yeah, and that basically through building up these straw these straw man arguments by tying events by tying the ability to question and speculate about events to then saying that's defaming and causing harm to other individuals. It's this tenuous sort of like intent to cause harm. That like if they tie this together, this precedent is set in this civil case in this capacity, that's going to open a floodgates for people to claim that they've been in some capacity harmed, uh, defamed through defamation or slander, libel, something of that nature. Um, and I wouldn't deny that the excessive rhetoric coming from Alex's Jones team size was perhaps irresponsible and unnecessary to the extent that it went. Uh, I'm also not totally liable to believe that it was explicit harm aimed. That's the point. Like, that's what I, I mean, we'll see over the next couple of weeks when they both sides present evidence. Um, We'll get more of a clearer picture if they actually have this, this sort of chain. It's, it's pieces of evidence that would constitute like a smoking gun that like really show intent. Like, that's what I want to see. Like, did Alex Jones really know? It's one thing to say, Alex Jones knows Jim Fetzer's crazy or Wolfgang Halbig or something like that. Um, but, and to, or to question their overall disposition. But it's another thing to say, we know they're crazy, but we're going to use their material just because we want to support this narrative because it supports us getting more people to go to our website to buy supplements. You see how many things you have to like fit in there to say like, that well, line and, of and that's the and hypothesis set fo- set forth by the plaintiffs. However, the plaintiff says Wolfgang Halbig claimed to have been a former Connecticut or not Connecticut, Florida State trooper, mm-hmm. and supposedly runs some school safety security type place. Right? They don't right. debunk his his resume. Now, I suspect they did in an earlier trial at some deposition or whatever, because years ago, well, Wolfgang Jones gave him the Heisman. Jones was like, whatever he heard behind legal doors was like, oh, that guy was not he telling the truth. And yeah. And then uh, Badondi had only met how big that one time and then all of a sudden got caught up with him. And he didn't really help himself out in that. And uh, yeah, his deposition is <clears throat> it's an example for 
people to learn from. Um, so there's, it's probably one third of the trial is over. Um, as far as like, you know, the round where they're going to try to get the $150 million going. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what evidence they're able to present. Maybe there's, uh, maybe there are pieces smoke like that would constitute to taken together as a smoking gun. Maybe well, I'm not expecting his defense to completely exonerate because I kind of oh, see no. what the but situation he... is. But there's also they they are leaving out the reason those questions are being asked in the first place. As a for, for instance, how big went to that Newtown school board meeting or whatever? And but Donnie, I guess, filmed it for Infowars. Yeah. He asked all those questions. Why didn't they just say, hey, we didn't. Hey, bro. Good question about the life flight. Glad you care about the kids. We didn't call it because the, the hospitals are actually right down the road and the life flights 40 minutes away. It doesn't make any sense. Right. Right. So all these things that he had those 18 questions or they the let him go out there and ask that- and make the, make the noise with those 18 questions or whatever it was for a year or so. And then they are like, we'll Set answer up. them in court. Right. Which is a part of the game. There's risk out there. Because Alex is like, well, if they had it, they would just come out. No, dude, they're going to wait and pounce on you in court. It's the same reason why you exile Napoleon. So was it St. Helena Elba? or whatever? Uh, St. Alba, excuse me. Um, How'd that work out? He, but why, why don't you kill him? Why don't you just execute? Oh, wait, there's too many people that support Napoleon back in the Count 19th of Monte Cristo. So, no, it's so it's just, you know, but the idea is like you, Alex Jones is just too big. So how... how what other sort of uh, tactics can you use? The idea is you want to take down Alex Jones or their tactics. Well, first off, as a personal, to... personal thing from a political level, he ran Hillary for pl- prison, like blimps and all this stuff. Last time she tried to run as president, maybe she wants to run against Trump, but she's not going to do it until Infowars is off the scene. And maybe there's been like operation throw 50 lawsuits at the guy over the past couple of years and see what sticks. And this is the one that makes it through. And there's a couple more too. They have. That's my point is you can't kill someone like an Alex Jones. So he become a martyr. And so you have to find some sort of um, roundabout way to take him down. And this is actually a pretty brilliant way to take him down. I can't imagine any other way to take him down except to make it put him in such a state of debt through the court system that he's forced to liquidate his business. When he said in the clip that they played in the opening salvo from the plaintiff's attorney, when when he said something to the effect of like, oh, this is a really weird situation. None of the parents are suing. Right. Well, maybe they are. They're going to get their money from from Jones instead of suing whoever, whoever they would have sued normally in that situation. That's what they're trying to do. At least eight of those families, I think, are represented in the $150 million number. The one thing the plaintiff's lawyer is trying to claim is that it's really at least these individuals that were specifically defamed to the point of being accosted. What about the reason that the shooter went to the place in the first place, right? Like, Because I think the parents do deserve justice. But the guy that's in that trial had nothing to do with the guy that went in and did the thing. And yeah, isn't that another strange? Situation? Maybe there's still things. Oh, Evaldi, Evaldi, we saw what happened down there. I mean, We're everybody got to the see out of that. what didn't happen down there, right? Rather, yeah. right? Yeah. So now people do. They have questions. They've seen that Waco thing where they burned families, women, children alive. They did that and covered that up unless you saw Waco Rules of Engagement, a documentary film made by independent people, not CNN, MSNBC, ETC, right? 
So there is a, a important place in the defending of freedom for independent journalists, for muckrakers, for people to ask questions, for people to trust, but verify, to be critical, to be incredulous, to be comparing and contrasting, to be on the lookout for tyranny and despotism in all its forms. They're trying to discourage that. They're trying to get people to turn exactly. off their immune systems, lay down and take it. Same way with Merrick Garland calling the DHS right now, stating that, you know, it's white Trump supporters or people that support Alex Jones or would listen in to alternative media, that they're the number one uh, threat um, to American democracy. So they, oh, I thought it, farmers it, were. Well, yeah, farmers, that's more world economic form. That's more global. That's more great reset with Klaus. I will admonish Jones by saying Son that. Of you, and there's, there's plenty of... So not chili. Okay. So there's a uh, um Alex Jones obviously deserves plenty of admonishments, reproaches, ex- even excoriations for some of his behavior over the years. No one's doubting that. And like I, I do not uh, condone nor do I support the statements that he's made, obviously. Like it he dug himself into a hole and he's uh not found he's finding it difficult to get out of it. But one of the things that has been known about Alex Jones since I remember talking to you about this, about Alex Jones. I, love, I have nothing but love and support for him, especially since COVID-19, sort of re-engaging with his work and his operation, um, seeing that how much he's double, triple, quadrupled down on his stance about if he, what he understands about the nature of history, reality, the new world order, all that stuff. But he allows, I talked to you off air and LD and everyone else that does helps with production before we went on. He's like the mainstream media. He's like the he's a paragon of alternative media insofar as being able to sort of take the mainstream media model in re, in regards to like news turnover, this like the constant news cycle turnover, and just get it out there. And part of that is you don't really much like CNN or MSNBC or Fox. They're not fact checking. Neither is Alex Jones, and. Uh, that doesn't make it right, but I've I've had major issues because I've said this before. He allows people on that are uh, compromised. They lack credibility. They lack evidence. They they have false ethos, meaning they say they're a specialist in one thing, and and he will just have them on for interviews instantly. Um, you know, so like that's but that's what Alex has always done. Now, in hindsight, he'll have someone on, then he might not have them on again. I could name some individuals. I want to go down that road right now. That's a whole can of worms. But he seems to get these things in hindsight, but he acts first, sort of fixes later. That's sort of how Alex Jones runs his operation. I'm nothing but love and respect for how he's made his thing work. I mean, to be an entrepreneur, to be able to build your own business, it's an incredible feat. But at the same time, like I remember asking you back in 2011, how do you listen to this guy? <laughs> you know, I have a lot more respect for him now. Back then, it was just, his disposition, his demeanor, his hype, like the hyperbolic rhetoric. At times it was comedic, but other times he would comment on things that were like, if you're not careful, this was bound to happen because that's just, but that's also who Alex Jones is. And that's what's so, you need a bulldog in the fight, but at the same time, like that bulldog is, you know, going to bite one too many people and going to put down much more quickly. So well, the, the other thing is, that though, comes into play a... is the level of responsibility when, you know, he, you heard him say in the early 2000s, he had like 10 million listeners, right? So when yeah. you're speaking to millions of people, you should have the resources to be able to A, vet the guests, 
right? Do a little background check. You got you got the ability to make sure they are who That's they claim they issue. are, right? And then the other thing is probably the biggest issue. Though. Have a copy editor to make sure things that you're putting out under your banner or under your name are reflective of the truth. And I've always said, if you've got the documents, then why aren't we getting links every day with every show at three three minutes forty five seconds? That he said this. Here's that CIA ten thirty five dash nine six zero document on concerning criticism of the Warren Commission report where they come up with the phrase conspiracy theory, which is a phrase that is defined several times during the trial because various witnesses are asked to define what is conspiracy theorist, what is conspiracy theory, these sorts of things, right? So rather than recreating the wheel over the years, every time he says a document in the control room has to go find that, like there could have been a like cumulative list of all the like documents over database. the years. Oh, yeah. But uh, someday, maybe with all the money they can solve. Like he leads with a right lot of, now. he leads with claims, and then states he has the evidence and documents. You, I think you told me back a lot of times he did though. He just so you that's know, the thing that that's he doesn't the thing. remember like, it exactly, and that's where that needed to be tightened up. Like you were close, but give the audience the document or tell them here's the script link, or we put it on such and such site, and you can download it, or all these different things, right? That's where you come in, or our show. That's I always show that's where you because like at this point because the way he runs his operation it's almost he has the money to hire you want to call it a, a department or at least a couple of individuals that could fact check that could source that could you know make sure that this stuff is uh data-based even um a lot of the stuff he talks about is correct he leads with claims that are correct but he doesn't back them up so it just sounds like so insane hence why you need what you've done and corbett and so many people in the past who worked with him but not well, I think the absence of, it, of that being done at that operation inspired us all to do it in ours. Because ever yeah. since I've started, ever since Corbett started, we've always put references for every single claim we say I or make or what clip we played or whatever. Leave a breadcrumb trail so other people can learn it on their own and not have to believe you. Exactly. Exactly. And that's that's what's frustrating about Alex is he he knows a lot of the claims he makes are true especially as of recent in the past couple of years, but it's always, for example, when we played um, Michael Mouse, but when he, when he interviewed Alex Jones, he's trying to describe like, what is this history of like the British Anglo-American establishment? Mm. Alex Jones like gave a very like brief general, it wasn't incorrect, but he didn't give any specific names. You gotta names, get the main artifacts dates, that people can verify on their own. Who's Cecil Rhodes? What's his last rule and testament? Which one was carried out? Who's... Uh, Lord Rothschild. Why did he finance? Um, who was the uh, Milner? Who was William Stead? You know, who we don't have to throw out every name. We don't have to go into like Arthur Conan Doyle. He wanted the Anglo-American unity. He's talked yeah. about it in the 1800s, and he's in the Pilgrim Society book over here. Like, yeah, stuff went on. There's major artifacts. You can check it out, and from there you can f- learn there, whatever else you need to learn about it. And you don't get in trouble, or you can, or it's harder to get in trouble if you're speaking with diffidence. A little bit more because you're referring to like allowing room this is for self error. Artifact is saying, and this is my interpretation, my understanding of the artifact. Let's have a discussion. Well, I mean, Where Alex Jones would lead a little bit differently. <laughs> and Godspeed to Alex and his operation. You know, this is going to be if he survives this. I mean, Jesus. Um, oh. I don't know what they're going to do if he survives this. They're like, they're throwing a kitchen sink between this and the January 6th aspects. It's like, uh, they're getting their, their practice. I was looking for the Pilgrim society book 
it's floating around. Oh, I found That's it. That's an extremely because I'm just gonna you know give an example. We were just talking about some quotes, and it's like you know interesting history. And this is a book called The Pilgrim Society, 1895 to 1945. That's uh, under the studies in Anglo-American relations. You might check that out. Um, Conan Doyle. He's gonna be on probably this blue page or yellow page. Let's see. Doing it live. Nelson Rockefeller, Nazi Germany, being supported by Nelson Rockefeller. That's not the interesting part we're looking for. Uh, yeah. Suave. No, right. No, 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 no. McAndrew trial, Pilgrims, Earl Grey. No, no. Earl. Pilgrims <laughs> Society bringing about World War One. No, no, that's not it. Uh, importantly, J.K. Road Scholars. And Ag- no, no, that's not what we're looking for. Probably back here, the early one. Let's see. For people unaware, Rich, what is the Pilgrim Society? Pilgrim Society is Anglo-American establishment type place that uh, they formed Almost... in 1902, directly after Cecil Rhodes kicked the bucket. I mean, they, they, it's they call like this 1895, and, uh, but they weren't doing a whole lot other than planning. <laughs> but once they had a, an agenda written down, oh, here it is. Here's this part right here. I mean, it's always like a privy council. Uh, Conan Doyle. This is the author of Sherlock Holmes mysteries had written a letter to the London times in which he had said he wanted to see an Anglo-American society started in London with branches all over the empire for the purposes of promoting good feeling, smoothing over friction, laying literature before the public, which will show them how strong are the arguments in favor of an Anglo-American alliance. That means getting America back into the British empire. For those of you playing at home, something that Cecil Rhodes later agreed with and made his whole last will and Testament and donation of the Rhodes scholarships to Oxford, uh, a function to bring that about. Look, look, so, it says, see look, the Cecil times, right 7 January 1896. They want to talk about the times early. Venezuelan boundary controversy. There it's good. The Holmes quote is demonstrative of the desires of some sort of Anglo-Saxon union that were held by people like William Stead and Cecil Rhodes. See Arthur Conan Doyle, The Adventure of the Noble Bachelor and The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Copyrighted 1892. So start there. Maybe some people with a longer history than ours have had plans. They're rolling out. Was this Prince Charles in, involved with this 2030 thing at all? Okay. Well, they should see. I mean, people worried about Bill Gates owning land. I think there's nothing to see there. We'll we see how much is stand down and watch Charles's mommy owns. Right. We should the one that was a holographic representation in her golden golden cavalcade. Or at this like point. A, I would like to thank the members of GrandTheftWorld.com make the show go around like this. And uh, LD, who else do we have to thank this evening? GrandTheftWorld.com Yeah, we got a little promo. Owen Schroyer, thank you. Um, Yeah, big thanks to our subscribers. And um, especially, we're, we're doing a little ITE in the evening in the style of the No Agenda show giving people a little ITE, even though at this point it's morning again when we do this. It's a greeting. The no agenda world, uh, everybody throws around an ITM. Anyway, uh, big thanks to small computer system. SES. I I always forget. SES. (laughs) SI1. And... Thank you to Jam Area. Shout out from Portugal. Probably won't be able to stay up to see you live, but want to show my appreciation to GTW. Amazing work. Thank you. Uh, 
Nick the Sound Guy, Nicholas Hayes, finally made it to Rockfin, RGLD and TM, bringing the excellence. Thanks to Jonathan Soper, keep up the great work, guys. Jack Jack, T-Can, another one from SCSI1. Thomas Hutchinson said, no comment this week, just don't want to repeat myself. Great commentary and analysis, LD, Tony, and Richard, as usual. Uh, Dallas Avad, Laurie, and Matt Green says the sun is almost up. So big thanks to all of you. And uh, if you haven't yet, if you're new to the show, go to grandtheftworld.com and uh, click in the top right corner. You can find your level of support when it loads, and it should load quickly. So choose your level of support and get into the Grand Theft World community. You can participate in the bi-weekly town halls. It's coming up this Tuesday. Yep. The next town hall is this Tuesday, 7 o'clock p.m. Uh, main topic is by a GTW subscriber named uh, Dylan. Um, and he is going to... Uh, he's bringing the topic of numismatics. So we're going to have a big discussion on money theory for Tuesday night. So if anyone's interested in that subject and uh, you know, join in Tuesday night town hall. Numismatics night. And talking about the theory of money. Yeehaw. All right. So uh, it'll be a lot of fun. He's a smart guy and he has uh, some interesting things to say. So it'll be a good time. A lot of good things in the town hall. There's a number of other amenities there in the membership. It helps us uh, continue to uh, pay for the bandwidth, all the cool things we got to do to put this show on. Um, it has been said that making, making yourself all the way through this Grand Theft World episodes like riding a bull and not everyone's going to make it to the end not everyone's going to have fun doing it but those who do make it to the end and have fun doing it you guys are the champions thank you guys all for tuning in and not dropping out it's almost 5 a.m here and i'm having trouble getting the words out here is jp to play us out oh should we play the cloud dining yeah no, no. we gotta we oh, gotta the, play that too so we'll, okay we'll so play, we gotta uh, go jp sears and then Tal kyle dunnigan all right, I'll, so Kyle uh, Dunnigan after JP Sears with the time travel coma wake up 20 years later story. That's what I was thinking. Oh, that's the one? All right. Yeah, you got it. Late audible in the game here to get her done. Get her done. Thank you, everyone. <clears throat> thank you, everyone. All right. Thank you, guys. Hey, you're awake. I thought you'd never wake up. Oh my gosh. How long was I out for? Like 19 years. Welcome to 2022. What happened? Well, it turns out that trying to shoot fireworks out from under your hat while on paper is a good idea. In reality, it turns out most of them just stay under your hat. That was kind of stupid of me. Yeah, but it was really beautiful. A spectacular red, white, and blue display. Then we started realizing the red was your blood splattering. Still beautiful, but kind of killed the vibe. And almost you. Man, it's a miracle to still be alive. I'm so grateful for being awake. I probably wish you weren't, though. What's that? Yeah, it's great that you're awake finally, because now you can start living life in this beautiful world of ours. Yeah, about that, what's the world like? Like, are there flying cars, unified world peace? Uh, yeah, um... 
Same old world, uh, not any major changes, just subtle differences, things you'd probably never notice. Ah, uh, yeah, that does sound kind of boring. Well, but at least after 9-11, did our country keep getting more united? Yeah, um, kind of. What do you mean? Well, do you remember in history class learning about the Civil War? Yeah. Well, there's one happening now. Really? Yeah, yeah. So it's like we're united over that. So like in our country, there's opposing armies killing each other on battlefields? No, not yet. Right now, the civil war is being fought at the psychological level, but I'm hoping it progresses to the physical. Why would you hope that? Yeah, I just think it'd be really interesting. One side is very pro-gun, the other side is very anti-gun. I don't think they really thought through their whole strategy on that. That would be kind of cool to see. What else is different? I mean... Not much. It's hard to really think of anything. Oh, men can get pregnant now. Really? Not really, but you kind of just got to go along with it. How come? Well, you know how when you and I were kids, we'd go off into imagination land while we played, but then we'd come back and let reality guide how we live? Yeah. Well, that's reversed now. That's weird. Yeah, but... Just act like it's not. Why do I have to act like it's not? Because if you don't, people with blue hair will get really mad at you. People have blue hair now? Yep. Does it look good? Mm-mm. Okay. What else is different? Well, you know how as a collective we learned about the horrors of communism and outgrew it as we evolved? Yeah, of course. Well, unfortunately, it's still around. Oh my gosh. I feel sorry for those countries. The oppression they must be- It's here. Here in the US? Yeah, but they switched the name of it to progressivism so people wouldn't recognize it. People are dumb enough to fall for that? Exactly. Well, if there's communism, we still have the constitution, right? Yeah, yeah, we do, um, on paper, certainly. But it turns out that that's just paperwork. Freedom of speech? How could they get rid of freedom of speech? Yeah, it was a clever process based on stupidity where the things they were doing to take it away, they were telling people they were doing those things to protect freedom of speech. Like it turns out censorship does not protect freedom of speech after all. Well, I just don't believe people would be dumb enough to fall for that. Did I mention people have blue hair now? Yeah. Sit with that. But yeah, they've obliterated the whole constitution and they even overturned Roe versus Wade. But that was never in the constitution. Seems like the world's actually changed a lot. Yeah, but you barely notice it when it happens inch by inch. You acclimate along the way. I mean, you'll really notice it. You just woke up. I wouldn't want to be you. But for the rest of us, we just get used to it along the way. Kind of like a frog sitting in a pot of water being heated up towards a boil. But what happens to the frog once the water's boiling? We're told it'll really be protected then. Man, it is so good to have you back. Yeah, I'm grateful to be awake now. But... On the brighter side, there's got to be like some amazing advancements from some of the brightest minds on Earth. Like, have they cured AIDS yet? Now they're causing it. How are they doing that? Well, you remember how we used to have freedom of speech, but don't now? Yeah. So I can't really talk about it. 
here. Okay. Oh, M&Ms are still around. That's good news. They are such a delicious candy. Well, that's good. Yeah, except now M&Ms are about diversity and inclusion, which means I think they're against men and straight white people, such as yourself. But it's just candy. How does that even make any sense? Yeah, making sense isn't really something we worry about doing anymore. Oh, and racism's a thing again. They allow racism? They encourage it. So they want you to be racist against black people? No, white people. It's the exact same thing, but in reverse. So black people are now racist against white people? No, not really. It's mostly white people racist against other white people. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> You're getting it. Okay. Wait! Wait for what? I'm right here. Is Lisa still waiting for me? No, not at all. She was really committed to staying by your side, but when things started looking bleak about you ever, well, not just laying there pissing yourself, she left you for someone else. What? Yeah, unbelievable. She wouldn't stay with you through hard times. I don't think a girl like that's capable of actual love. But she married the guy, and they've got a couple kids now. I don't know how to process this. Ugh. Who's the guy? Me. Ah, I mean, what? And you guys have kids together? Yeah. You would do that behind my back? I wouldn't do that to you, bro. We can see the kids right there next to you. You seemed really okay with it. But, ugh. How long was it after I went under that you guys got together? It was a while. How long? So you went into your little coma vacation on July 4th, 2003. So we then got together like three months before that. That doesn't add up. Oh, math is racist now. Dude, this whole thing is horrible. <laughs> Who's the president now? Have you ever heard of a guy named Joe Biden? No, never heard of him. So he'd been a senator for like 150 years, and then... Oh, yeah. Wasn't he the guy that tried to run for president, like, back in the 80s? And he lied about his academic achievements and college degrees, and then got caught plagiarizing his speech and finished, like, 37th in the polls? Right. He's the president. We... Now? Yeah. Yeah, sure is. Huh. Um... And how'd the Civil War start? Well, before you went into the coma, did you ever watch The Apprentice? Yeah, this is a pretty good show. Well, he became the president. Huh? But the New World Order that's trying to enslave humanity couldn't control him, so they made up aggressive lies about him to convince almost half the country to hate him. Made up lies about him? But didn't journalists expose their lies so people could see the truth? There's no more journalism. So, like, the news isn't a thing anymore? Oh, the news is still a thing. Well, you said they got almost half the country to hate him. What about the other side? Did they re-elect him? Uh, kinda. What do you mean? Can't really talk about it because of the whole... Freedom of speech isn't a thing anymore. Got it. Right. Whatever. Well, on the positive side, I'm hungry. I haven't tasted actual food in a while. I would love to eat. Would you like to hear about food shortages? Hi! My name is... What? My name is... Huh? My name is... Dracky Goggins! Hi! My name is... What? My name is... Who? My name is... Uh, the, the guy! 
Hi kids, you like pie tits? Uh, not pie tits. You wanna see me close both my eyelids? I get real close. I'm quicker than most. Let me be clear, I ain't afraid of no ghosts. I, I, I take my talkie Joe drugs. And give super long hugs. I'm also an ice cream guy. Hi. My name is. What? My name is. Huh? My name is. Rogue Rival. Stop the tape. I need to be changed. Maybe get another boost. Get the f out of here. I keep getting it. Sorry. My thing didn't pass. Then I fell on my ass. Off a bike that wasn't even going too fast. No, I'm serious. I flew to Crown Pimp Obama. He's a real bad dude. Gave him a little fist bump because I didn't want to be rude. Gas is still $18. What are you guys talking about? It's alright, the economy's strong. And I couldn't be prouder of my boy Hunty's dog. It, it's, I'm the next guy. So stop your searching. And if you don't vote for me, you ain't a black guy person. Hi! Uh, what? Who are you? Who are you? Who? Jabrock Jabrydon. Thank you, and God bless America. Smile at camera. Sniff Sleepy, who's my name? Hunty and the big guy. DC Records. Conspiracy is a story of history. It's the story of plunderers taking care of people who produce. They claim to take care of them through government, which doesn't give you anything. It doesn't take away first. So it's not creating something out of nothing. It's very real what they're doing. They're taking your rights or taking some people's rights and adding more to someone else's rights. If you haven't heard about our Grand Theft World community membership, here are a few of the things you've been missing. A mobile app where you can access replays of the Grand Theft World podcast and show notes. Access to the Grand Theft World community on Discord, where we crowdsource news and resources, and you can contribute to the show. The opportunity to participate in the Grand Theft World bi-weekly town hall. Exclusive content from Richard Grove, including behind-the-scenes footage and future access to unpublished material. 93 episodes of the Peace Revolution podcast and the Grand Theft World newsletter delivered straight to your inbox each week. If you want to stay ahead of the great game, visit us at GrandTheftWorld.com, click or tap the button in the top right-hand corner, and join a vibrant community of researchers blazing a new path to truth. We'll see you there.